Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear the final episode of God's Socialist, The Rise and Fall of People's Temple, better known as the Jonestown Suicide Cult. If you have not heard the previous episodes, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to those before you get to this one. This is really a, a culminating episode that brings together many, many threads that we've been scattering to the winds over the last six episodes. If you enjoy this series, please consider subscribing to my Substack page where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes available only to subscribers for just $5 a month or $50 a year. You can find it at martyrmade.substack.com. To all of you who are already contributing uh, and subscribing on Substack, I really appreciate you guys allowing me to do this. You're what make it possible. So I hope you enjoyed this series, and I hope you liked this episode. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. apart for this small question of religion. A while back, I came across this series of articles from the New York Times that they published in January of 1973, which, due to events here in 2020, not only in New York City but around the country, I've had occasion to send out to friends more than once recently. The series was about the South Bronx, as it was found by these New York Times investigative reporters at the time of publication. Again, we're talking January of 73. The headline of the first of the four articles, which ran below the fold on the front page on consecutive days in the middle of that month, read South Bronx, a jungle stalked by fear, seized by rage. It was accompanied by a large picture of a South Bronx resident filling up a bucket at an open fire hydrant with the caption, The fire hydrants are open, even in this biting cold weather. Town pumps that provide the sole water supply for drinking, washing, and sanitation for thousands of tenants in 20% of the housing in the area. When one hydrant freezes over, the residents pry open another. The writers did not have to travel far for this story. It's only about eight miles from the rarefied air of the New York Times building to the South Bronx. It's 12 miles from Wall Street up north to the South Bronx. It's just south of Yankee Stadium. And yet traveling those few miles north and across the Harlem River to investigate this 
area of about 400,000 residents, mostly black and Puerto Rican. By 73, I think it was pretty much all black and Puerto Rican. These reporters might have felt like foreign correspondents reporting from a third world country. Of those 400,000 residents, 40% were on welfare. The unemployment rate was 30%. And you, you really have to have lived in a place like that to understand what that's like. You know, it's not just that people don't have enough money. Things change in a community when one out of every three able-bodied working age people have nothing to do and no income coming in. Especially in a slum like the South Bronx where no one was expecting that to be a temporary situation. As the caption accompanying that picture in the Times mentioned, 20% of all residences in this area of 400,000 people had no running water. You really have to take that in. You know, Don't let a statistic like that kind of hit you and be shocking, but just slide past without thinking about what that means and putting it in context. One out of every five homes and apartments in an area containing 400,000 people had no running water. Not way up in the mountains somewhere where infrastructure just hadn't quite been built out. You know, they all had running water a decade before these articles were written. We're talking about New York City, a dozen miles north of Wall Street in a neighborhood that the bankers passed through on their way to a Yankees game. 50% of all residences had no heat at least half the time. And again, this is in New York City, and this article was written in January. It's so cold that the fire hydrants are freezing over. 50% of the homes have no heat. This is from the article. Quote, The number of public health nurses who visit schools and homes has been cut in half in the last five years, and health programs have been curtailed or eliminated. Fewer policemen patrol the streets, and reductions correspond with a matching rise in violent crime. Fewer firemen respond to fires. When they do, they are sometimes ambushed and pelted with debris. Last fall, youth started a rubbish fire at East 163rd and Kelly Streets and blocked off traffic. It was an out-and-out -out ambush, Lieutenant Riley says. They came out of the doors, the side streets, carrying chains and knives and throwing bricks. They broke the windshields on the engine and the truck. One fireman was hit in the face. Fewer welfare workers provide services, resulting in pre-dawn lines at welfare centers. Fewer housing inspectors enforce the housing code, although 60,000 of the 80,000 units are substandard, dilapidated, and in violation of the city code. Of the 20,000 decent housing units, virtually all are public housing. End quote. The ruination of the South Bronx, as I mentioned, was a pretty recent phenomenon at the time. Until the 1950s, it was a middle-class borough, mostly lived in by Jews and some Greeks and Italians and, and some other European Catholic ethnics. And just a dozen years prior, in 1961, the South Bronx was still 40% white, and the schools and infrastructure and public services were, they were decent, you know. It, it was a working class borough, had an edge to it, but it was a livable area for families. The Times article in 73 says that by then you couldn't find a white person uh, among the 400,000 South Bronx residents. I mean, in 12 years, you went from 
almost half the population being white to all of them being gone virtually. They had fled as African-Americans and Puerto Ricans had moved in. It was just a classic case of white flight. Property values crashed. Landlords couldn't find buyers. They couldn't find renters a lot of the time. And so many of them just opted to strip the piping and electrical wiring and anything else that could be salvaged for value from the buildings and either just abandon the properties or burn them down for the insurance money. And since no one was around to buy the ruined properties, they would just stay that way. By the end of the 1970s, uh, this is so crazy, by the end of the 70s, more than 40% of all the buildings in the South Bronx had been burned. People remember there being a constant smoky haze over the borough throughout the decade because buildings were burning there every night for years. There's a famous apocryphal story from the 77 World Series where there was an aerial shot over Yankee Stadium that showed fires burning uncontrollably all around it while the, while the series is going on. And the announcer, Howard Cassell, was supposed to have said, there it is, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. And apparently it is an apocryphal story. He didn't actually say that. But, you know, it got picked up and people believed that he said it. And it became a thing. The Bronx is burning. It became a thing for a reason. It corresponded to something that was going on. There was a single hospital servicing the entire the entire borough. I guess the Bronx is the borough. South Bronx is just part of it. But still a single hospital, a broken down, notorious butcher shop. That was what the residents called it, a butcher shop that we'll discuss a little later for 400,000 people. Rates of, I mean, you name it, infant mortality, venereal disease, tuberculosis, malnutrition, not only the worst in the city. I mean, they're developing world levels. They're often 50 to 100% higher than the citywide rates and double, triple, quadruple the nationwide rates. Quote, an epidemic of viral meningitis occurred about two years ago in the South Bronx. Some 500 residents were hospitalized and 5,000 others were treated at home. Residents were convinced it was traceable to the stagnant water of backed up sewers. It is not the only source of concern to residents. And they get down to the building and street level. Quote, Packs of wild dogs pick through the rubble and roam the streets attacking residents. As protection, mailmen, health workers, and deliverers carry dog repellent. The residents, who have long been afraid to go out at night, are now afraid to go out during the day into streets menaced by 20,000 drug addicts and 9,500 gang members. There are 3,000 to 5,000 abandoned buildings in the South Bronx, many of which are claimed as headquarters by neighborhood gangs. A 37-year-old drug pusher is fatally struck by six bullets that shape a cross on his body. A bus is invaded, and its driver held at gunpoint while passengers are relieved of wallets, watches, and other valuables, Wild West style. A runaway girl is crippled after being beaten with belts and chains. These acts of violence are just a few committed in only the last month. And then they describe a public housing tenement they, they found. It is home to a seven-year-old wino and to his 12-year-old addict brother who injects himself with heroin in a shooting gallery in the basement of the building. It is home to a couple who have finally stopped paying $100 a month for an unheated apartment that has water-soaked walls and, and mice that run between their two sick children sleeping on floor mattresses, end quote. This is just a few items from the first of these four articles. And, you know, the statistics and anecdotes 
dug up by these Times reporters who did a good job uh, while shocking. They're just examples meant to be representative of phenomena that stood out to the reporters or that came to mind when they quizzed the South Bronx residents. You know, they're, they're, they're asking, they're asking you writer comes up and says, Hey, I'm from the New York times and we're trying to bring some attention to the conditions of the South Bronx, you know, and they have the best intentions. Uh, you know, what's it like to live up here? And so the residents got to try to explain to them what it's like to live in a place like this. And what do you say? What are you going to say to somebody who works for the New York times to try to get them to understand because there's really no way you can. And, and so you, you, you seize on maybe anecdotes that will resonate. You tell them about the mice running through the cupboards or some crime you witnessed or the waterlogged drywall. But anyone who's ever lived in a slum or ghetto knows that it is nearly impossible to, to relate to someone who hasn't that chronic, non-catastrophic hopelessness and degradation that permeate your life. Imagine raising kids in a place like this. The education system had less than 10% of students reading at grade level. A large plurality were functionally illiterate. You got to send your kids out to fill up a pot with water from a fire hydrant because you have no running water. And not because you didn't pay the bill, you just have no running water. And on his way out to the fire hydrant, he's seeing kids his own age, 8, 10 years old, getting drunk on the corner. There are these, the, all the famous stories from back in the 70s about the rats that were everywhere. Back in 68, the sanitation workers in New York went on strike and 100,000 tons of rotting garbage accumulated in like one week, just piling up on the streets and sidewalks. And you read stories about these housing projects that were just taken over by rats, these giant rats the size of small cats. There are stories about hordes of rats surrounding and attacking people out on the street, like in parking lots when they're going to their car. In the South Bronx, there were whole areas, forget whole blocks, I'm talking whole sections of many blocks that were nothing but burned out abandoned buildings that you couldn't give away. You, you, you couldn't sell them for $1. They're full of junkies and criminals and these disease-ridden rats everywhere. And this might be across the street from where you live in your housing project, You know where you live with your kids in an apartment with moldy, waterlogged drywall that freezes in the winter because you have no heat. A letter to the editor of the Times responded to the completed series under the headline Urban Cancer, and it read in part, quote, Many people will regard the Times series on the South Bronx as a horror story to be quickly put out of their minds if they don't happen to live in the South Bronx or anywhere near it. But this social cancer is spreading. Unless unchecked, rather, unless checked, it can destroy not just the rest of the Bronx, but the city itself. Some social therapists would get rid of the afflicted area by radical surgery. Knock it down, plow it up, leave it there. A wasteland, a modern Carthage, its people dispersed. Where? Who is to receive the 400,000 people of the South Bronx? The people of Queens? Of Westchester County? Of Newark? 
Should the dwellers of this slum be shifted to another? Will the suburbs open their hearts, pocketbooks, and zoning laws? Not very likely, end quote. You know, the South Bronx was a particularly nasty example of urban decay, but by the early 1970s, it was not unique in American cities. And while the Time series did a good job describing the situation and pointing out some of the obstacles to improvement, it didn't really offer much in the way of explanation for how things had gotten so bad so quickly. Because it is the speed of the collapse that, that, that is really what's so shocking. It's the kind of collapse you might expect to see if your country had been ravaged by war, but no enemy had sacked the South Bronx. If you went back less than a decade from the publication of the Time series, go back eight years and change, from January 73 to when Lyndon Johnson beat Barry Goldwater in November 64 of the presidential election that year, and listen to the way that people were talking about the future, you know, the certainty of their optimism. If you had gone back and told them that this was going to be the state of affairs in American cities less than 10 years later, I mean, they just, they would have thought you were out of your mind. It just would have seemed completely impossible. This passage from Rick Perlstein's book, Nixon Land, describes very well how people envision the immediate future just a short time before this, when Lyndon Johnson became president in the middle 1960s. Quote, Lyndon Johnson spent the first year of his accidental presidency passing with breathtaking aplomb, a liberal legislative agenda that had only known existence as wish during John F. Kennedy's lifetime. His Economic Opportunity Act of 1964, the War on Poverty, passed nearly two to one. The beloved old general Dwight D. Eisenhower came out of retirement to campaign against the Kennedy-Johnson tax cut, but Lyndon Johnson passed that too. And then there was the issue of civil rights. Let this session of Congress be known as the session that did more for civil rights than the last 100 sessions combined, Johnson intoned on his first State of the Union address. It was just five weeks after John F. Kennedy's assassination, seven months after Kennedy, alarmed by a wave of civil rights uprising sparked in Birmingham, Alabama, had introduced the most sweeping civil rights bill since Reconstruction. It had been bogged down by Congress's recalcitrant conservative coalition of Northern Republicans and Southern Democrats. Even Martin Luther King's heroic hundreds of thousands of pilgrims marching on Washington couldn't unstick it. But President Johnson unstuck it. By June of 1964, the first session of the 88th Congress had indeed done more than the last 100 sessions combined. Segregation in the United States in public accommodations was now illegal. Our Constitution, the foundation of our republic, forbids it. The principles of our freedom forbid it. Morality forbids it. And the law I sign tonight forbids it, Johnson said at a ceremony carried live on all three networks. What the ceremony marked was not merely a law, but a liberal apotheosis, an apparent liberal national consensus. Johnson's approval rating, even among Republicans, was 74%. Pundits and public opinion experts proclaimed him an exact match for the spirit of the age. So even did conservative businessmen. Speaking before the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the president was interrupted for applause some 60 times. They had reason to cheer. 
So dynamic had the American economic engine become that it was fashionable to presume that prosperity could fix any social problem. I'm sick of all these people who talk about the things we can't do, Lyndon Johnson told an aide in one of his patented exhortations. Hell, we're the richest country in the world, the most powerful. We can do it all. The Great Society was the name Johnson gave his ambition. It rests on abundance and liberty for all, he said in a May 22nd speech. A society of success without squalor, beauty without barrenness, works of genius without the wretchedness of poverty. The rhetoric was incredible. Still more incredible, it seemed reasonable. Lyndon Johnson successfully framed his reformist agenda as something that was not ideological at all, conservative even. Simply a pragmatic response to pressing national problems, swept forward on ineluctable tides of material progress. I doubt there have ever been so many people seeing things alike on decision day, Lyndon Johnson said of his victory on November 5th. These are the most hopeful times since Christ was born in Bethlehem, he said while lighting the White House Christmas tree. And in his January 4th, 1965 State of the Union address, he said, We have achieved a unity of interest among our people that is unmatched in the history of freedom. He continued, I propose that we begin a massive attack on crippling and killing diseases. I propose that we launch a national effort to make the American city a better and more stimulating place to live. I propose that we increase the beauty of America and end the poisoning of our rivers and the air that we breathe. I propose that we eliminate every remaining obstacle to the right and the opportunity to vote. I propose that we honor and support the achievements of thought and creations of art. The liberal struggle to pass federal funding for education had been a political dry hole since the New Deal. Johnson passed it in the House in March by a margin of 263 to 153. He then insisted the Senate pass the same bill without a single word changed. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act passed the Senate two weeks later with only 18 votes in opposition. He then turned the nation to dreams of immortality, proclaiming, Heart disease, cancer, and stroke can be conquered, not in a millennium, not in a century, but in the next few on-rushing decades. The down payment on the revolution was medical insurance for the elderly, funded out of Social Security contributions. Another stalled New Deal-era initiative steered by Johnson passed its permanent obstacle, the American Medical Association. And then there was civil rights. The genesis of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 echoed the genesis of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Following the march by Martin Luther King, freshly minted Nobel Peace Prize laureate from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, President Johnson prepared to give the greatest speech of his career. Outside the White House, left-wing picketers marched by with signs reading, LBJ, just you wait, see what happens in 68. The threat, redeem the martyrs of Selma or be punished at the polls, seemed viable. Answering that yearning appeared now not just a moral imperative, but a political one. Yet no one was prepared for the moral force of the speech Lyndon Johnson gave to Congress and the nation on March 15th. He wrote it himself and delivered it over the objections of temporizing aides. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. Their cause must be our cause. 
Because it is not just Negroes, really it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. Then, stunningly, he raised his arms in the air and invoked the slogan of a movement that was not too long ago perceived as the preeminent irritant to America's national unity. And we shall overcome! There followed the silence of a reaction, too stunned for mere applause. Martin Luther King cried. Senators cried. The next Selma procession on March 21st was celebratory. Thousands of singing marchers, ranks of glamorous celebrities in the floor, marching all the way through to Montgomery. That night, one of the marchers, a Detroit mother of five named Viola Liuzzo, while humming We Shall Overcome in her car, was shot to death by the Ku Klux Klan because she was sitting next to a black man. The martyr only seemed to intensify the nation's moral resolve. Should we defeat every enemy, should we double our wealth and conquer the stars and still be unequal to this issue, Lyndon Johnson had proclaimed, then we will have failed as a people and as a nation. He signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 on August 6th under the Capitol Dome. He intoned about the slaves who came in darkness and they came in chains. Today we strike away the last major shackle of those fierce and ancient bonds. People cried. The Negro's cause was America's cause. Who could argue with that? End quote. Well, this story, the story of this podcast series, has told part of the narrative of how the rest of the decade went. Just five nights after Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, Following a DUI stop of a black man in Los Angeles that got physical, the L.A. neighborhood of Watts exploded into the worst urban violence since the draft riots of the Civil War. Reporters couldn't go deep into the conflict zone without being attacked, but a helicopter was there streaming live footage of the racial violence into people's homes for the next five days and nights nonstop. People watched... Crowds of civilians setting buildings on fire and dancing around them and then attacking and chasing away the firefighters who tried to put out the flames. Some rioters were giving interviews promising that the violence was going to spread, it was going to go out into the suburbs, and that white residents were going to be pulled from their homes and dealt with. And you know, it was probably, you know, half a percent of the people who were saying things like that. But of course, the reporters found those people and put them on TV. More than once, people were watching the news, seeing a live stream from the helicopter, live feed from the helicopter, when it was forced to flee the scene because it was taking small arms fire from the ground. There had been plenty of racial violence before this in the 1960s, including a riot in Harlem the year before, but nobody was prepared for the scale and the aggression, the rage that they saw on display in Watts. And the day and night sensationalized live coverage of the whole thing, it was incredibly shocking to people who, until then, had liked to think of this kind of thing as a Southern problem. They thought of the whole civil rights issue as, as a Southern problem. It was something that the rest of the country had to impose on the South to get them to kind of catch up with the times. And you know, there was some violence down there, racial violence, as the South resisted it and so forth. But they almost thought of, 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 of civil rights is a little bit of a stretch, but not much, as a, almost as a foreign policy problem. 
Well, Watt showed them that was not the case. Eventually, the city was pacified with the help of the National Guard, and when it was over, dozens of people were dead, and we've talked about it in a previous episode. Over 1,000 people were injured, 3,500 people had been arrested, and although it wasn't obvious to everyone at the time, one of the things that had been reduced to a smoldering crater that week in Los Angeles was LBJ's Great Society. The following year, 1966, Ronald Reagan became governor of California, basically on a single-issue platform, promising to fight what he saw as a threat to civilization posed by this budding black power movement and its white liberal enablers. The next year, 1967, the Black Panthers take to the streets, and the year after that, 1968, sees the most widespread and radical protests in the country's history. Martin Luther King is assassinated, and cities across America just burn by 1968, and again, just compare this to the passage I was just reading, the attitude and the rhetoric of the passage I was reading. You know, that was in 64 and 65. By 68, Lyndon Johnson is so boxed in by law and order Republicans and the radical insurgents in his own Democratic Party that just four years after that historic victory, one of the biggest landslides in American history, he withdrew from the race rather than seek reelection and have to defend, you know, his record. His withdrawal from the presidential race in 68 brought about an unexpected primary election for the incumbent party, the Democrats, to see who was going to face Richard Nixon in the general election. And all the energy on the liberal left was with the youth movement in 68. And after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in June, just after winning the California primary, that energy consolidated behind Eugene McCarthy, who was a senator, not a radical by any stretch of the imagination, but he was anti-war. He was against the war in Vietnam, at least. His opponent, the opponent that emerged for him, uh, Hubert Humphrey, he was seen accurately as representing the same positions that had forced LBJ from the race in the first place, especially on the Vietnam War. McCarthy, the anti-war candidate, dominated the popular vote in the primary elections. The second and third place finishers were LBJ and Bobby Kennedy, who weren't even in the race anymore. But the party bosses used something called the favorite son strategy, where they arranged for several state politicians to put themselves on the ballot in their home states, win their home primaries, and then use their delegates to support Humphrey. None of these guys were actually even running for president. They were only on the ballot in their home states where they were very popular and could count on the local support. And they pulled this off in a bunch of major states like Ohio, California, Florida, and the Democratic Party establishment was able to drag Humphrey to the nomination despite the fact he didn't win a single primary. He only got 2% of the total primary votes compared to McCarthy's almost 40%. The DNC convention in Chicago that year uh, it was in Chicago that year, and the young people showed up to protest, and some of them were rowdy, some of them were more than rowdy, and Chicago's Mayor Daley let his dogs off the leash, and the whole thing turned into a massive riot, and Richard Nixon, the ultimate law and order Republican, was elected president, promising to bring the hammer down on these people who were causing all this chaos. That's how rapidly things had changed. And the way that the Democratic primary and convention went down, it totally discredited the liberal establishment of the Democratic Party among the party's left wing. 
if the moderating voices who were urging these radicals to work within the system and you know trust the process if they had, had any influence before they lost it after the 68 election i mean you got to remember this is the height of the vietnam war guys are being drafted in droves and sent over there if you pick up the papers it does not seem to be going well people are getting killed and wounded in huge numbers and the war is so unpopular that the incumbent president decides to step down rather than defend it and run for re-election. And so in the primary, there's a legitimate anti-war candidate. So the people get behind him and he cleans up. He dominates the, the primaries. But the party establishment says, nope, sorry, we're going with a guy who's going to keep drafting you, keep sending you to Vietnam. Doesn't matter that he didn't win a single primary. Doesn't matter that only 2% of you voted for him. Too bad. So sad. And by the way, don't dodge the draft or we will throw you in prison. And when you protest at the party convention, we're going to turn the cops loose to straight up attack and savagely beat you in the streets. Now you can understand where the radicals were coming from when they concluded, you know, okay, oh, uh, I see now that we are playing a totally different game. I don't know what this game is called, but it's not democracy. And so people who are telling me that I have to keep playing by the rules of democracy, those people are just gaslighting me because that's not what this is anymore. It's very easy to understand why 1968 radicalized both the anti-war movement and the movement for black civil rights. The assassination of Martin Luther King in the spring of that year, and then the way the Democratic primary went down, and remember that included the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. After those two events, the people in the anti-war and civil rights movements, especially the young people, said, look, okay, we tried to do it your way. Martin Luther King was the ultimate version of trying to do it your way. You know, he spoke out against black power. He insisted that people stick to nonviolence and trust the process, and they shot him. College students who were supporting Eugene McCarthy, they were shaving their beards and cutting off their long hair. They called it the Clean for Gene campaign. And so they were really trying to do it the right way. They really were trying. And the response they got was violence. Two months after the election, the Panther 21 were arrested in New York for plotting a mass assassination of NYPD officers. A few months after that, the Weathermen took over SDS. You know, those calling for reform, they just no longer had any ground to stand on against people calling for rebellion. You know, what, what, what could you say to a black power militant? When you call for nonviolence and working within the democratic process and he says, oh, you mean like Dr. King did, right? You know, what do you say to a radical at an anti-war rally when you both agree, because everybody did, that the primary election was straight up stolen so that the people wouldn't even be allowed to vote in 1968 on whether or not they wanted to stay in Vietnam? And that was not an abstract issue. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was... This was an issue of, like, you got a good chance of being pulled off the street and sent over to this war. And so the move toward radicalism was understandable, but once it took root, a process began that was self-reinforcing and began to spiral out of control. Because, again, no one knew how to stand up to the radicals anymore. Is the most radical person today wouldn't be the most radical person tomorrow. 
Today's extreme view became tomorrow's consensus, and the next day another person would appear to take things to the next level, and nobody knew how. Nobody had the logical or moral language to say, okay, okay, that's a little too far. Maybe we should slow it down. The framework just didn't exist to put the brakes on it. I mean, that's the thing about rebellion. Once, in a, once a rebellion is initiated, you know, it can take on a life of its own. And this is why so often revolutions end up turning into something that its original idealists never imagined or intended. You know, the French Revolution, Russian Revolution, all the way up to the protest movements of the 60s. You see it time and again. Whenever movements move on from making specific demands to a rejection of the system as a whole... In the American context of the 1960s, of course, the situation was complicated even more by race and the way class was intertwined with race and the white and black sections of the protest movement began to interact in ways and feed each other's, feed into each other's worst impulses in ways that eventually became very destructive for both movements, for both groups, although more for the blacks than for the whites. Because in the African-American side of the movement, you know, you had an identifiable group of people with a shared history of oppression that had, you know, that oppression had manifested into a degraded present condition. And whatever accessories their movement later acquired when people started reading Mao and incorporating other elements, the movement was always basically political. You know, the goal was a rebalancing of the racial power structure in America and an improvement in the material conditions for these people. You know, you know, in other words, politics. Politics is about power, how it's distributed and used by people and on people in a society. The white protest movement was always coming from a somewhat different place. You know, the base of that movement was white university students. In other words, people who were already part of America's ruling caste, taken in a broad sense. The root of their protest was not political, but cultural. They were rebelling very often against what they saw as the stifling conformity of the post-war society that their parents had built. And over time, they began to valorize rebellion against the system in whatever form they found it. Over the course of the 1960s, the white protest movement grew to fetishize black people as born revolutionaries. It was a tendency that you can identify at least as early as Sartre's preface, preface to uh, the 61 edition of Franz Fanon's book, The Wretched of the Earth. Fanon was a black man. Franz Fanon uh, was a black man, a descendant of slaves, born in a French Caribbean colony. And so this book, The Wretched of the Earth, is written by a colonized person to other colonized people and provides a call and a rough blueprint of a strategy for the colonized to find their own voice and begin to create their own world. And part of that blueprint involved the legitimization of violence by the colonized against the colonizers. But if you only read Sartre's preface, you'd be forgiven for thinking that violence was all the book was about, rather than just the only thing about the book that really excited white radicals at the time. As the protest movements developed and coalesced, Getting into the 1960s, the books that were being passed around and devoured by the white radicals were not sober calls for recognition of black dignity. You know, they, were, they weren't passing around copies of Dr. King's letters from jail. They were reading books by violent men like Eldridge Cleaver, monsters like George Jackson, 
When Leonard Bernstein threw his radical chic party, he wanted Black Panthers at his penthouse, not a black preacher. Many of the white radicals, very often, this is something that, that, that people like Malcolm would complain about a lot. Uh, the, the white radicals would very often tend to indulge in many of the same racial stereotypes that the white racists did. You know, seeing blacks as wild, untamable creatures who are prone to outbursts of violence and, and possessed of uncontrollable sexual impulses, except they fetishized these stereotypes. You know, they thought that they represented the blacks' you know, lack of repression and his closeness to nature rather than fearing or hating these projections, like the, you know, what, which is what the white racists did. But they, but they indulge many of the same, same ideas. Many black writers, from Malcolm to Cleaver to James Baldwin, spoke on this tendency of many whites to project their own repressed desire to act out onto black people and encourage the black other to break boundaries that they themselves would never break for fear of the consequences so that they could live out the transgression vicariously. There's a famous 1963 article in Commentary Magazine, a neoconservative magazine, by neoconservative writer Norman Podhoritz, who described this tendency, but from the opposite, from, from a reactionary perspective. He wrote, quote, The psychologists tell us that the white man hates the Negro because he tends to project those wild impulses that he fears in himself onto an alien group which he then punishes with his contempt. There is no question that they are right about that. For me, as a child, the life lived on the other side of the playground and down the block on Ralph Avenue seemed the very embodiment of the values of the street. Free, independent, reckless, brave, masculine, erotic. I put the word erotic last, though it is usually stressed above all others, because, in fact, it came last in consciousness as in importance. What mainly counted for me about the Negro kids of my own age was that they were bad boys. There were plenty of bad boys among the whites. This was, after all, a neighborhood with a long tradition of crime as a career path open to aspiring talents. But the Negroes were really bad. Bad in a way that beckoned to one and made one feel inadequate. We all went home every day for a lunch of spinach and potatoes. They roamed around during lunch hour munching on candy bars. In winter, we had to wear itchy woolen hats and mittens and cumbersome galoshes. They were bareheaded and loose as they pleased. We rarely played hooky or got into serious trouble at school for all our street corner bravado. They were defiant, forever staying out to do what delicious things, forever making disturbances in class and in the halls, forever being sent to the principal and returning uncowed. But most important of all, they were tough, beautifully, enviably tough, not giving a damn for anyone or anything. To hell with the teacher, the truant officer, the cop. To hell with the whole of the adult world that held us in its grip and that we never had the courage to rebel against, except sporadically and in petty ways, end quote. And you can go back even before 61, before Sartre and Fanon, where you had guys like Norman Mailer, the beat writer and, and, and one of the major leaders of the counterculture. In 57 or 58, he written a famous, infamous, I guess, I don't know today, maybe you'd call it, essay in which he describes this new emerging human type, the hipster. Very different from what we mean by the term today. The essay is called The White Negro. And it is it holds up every 
black stereotype and caricature that you can imagine as an imitative ideal for a liberated white person, which he compares in the essay favorably with the psychopathic personality. And for definition of a psychopathic personality, he draws on a book called Rebel Without a Cause by an author named Robert Linder. Quote, The psychopath is a rebel without a cause, an agitator without a slogan, a revolutionary without a program. In other words, his rebelliousness is aimed to achieve goals satisfactory to himself alone. He is incapable of exertions for the sake of others. All his efforts, hidden under no matter what disguise, represent investments designed to satisfy his immediate wishes and desires. The psychopath, like the child, cannot delay the pleasures of gratification. And this trait is one of his underlying universal characteristics. He cannot wait upon erotic gratification, which convention demands should be preceded by the chase before the kill. He must rape. He cannot wait upon the development of prestige in society. His egoistic ambitions lead him to leap into headlines by daring performances. Like a red thread, the predominance of this mechanism for immediate satisfaction runs through the history of every psychopath. It explains not only his behavior, but also the violent nature of his acts. End quote. The psychopath, says Mailer, is in perpetual struggle against the restrictions that are placed on him by society. All restrictions, all at once, all the time. And he says that the psychopath has this in common with the Negro, who has been shaped into a perpetual rebel by his history and experience. Mailer is singing the praises of the psychopath, the hipster, the white Negro, as being incapable of acting on behalf of others just after Martin Luther King's bus boycott in Montgomery. But Mailer would not have found any contradiction in that. To Mailer, Martin Luther King was not hip. He was a square. And Mailer had little to no interest in King's call for black people to be allowed into the conformist white bourgeois society. Mailer might have said that the Negro actually had an advantage for being excluded from that society. It gave him more freedom, not less. Quote, The only hip morality is to do what one feels whenever and wherever it is possible, and, this is how the war of the hip and the square begins, to be engaged in one primal battle, to open the limits of the possible for oneself, for oneself alone, because that is one's need. Yet, in widening the arena of the possible, one widens it reciprocally for others as well, so that the nihilistic fulfillment of each man's desire contains its antithesis of human cooperation. End quote. If you're asking yourself what this has to do with the black experience in America or the conditions of life for people with kids living in the ghetto, the answer is that except maybe in some very oblique, abstract sense, basically nothing. If you're not so familiar with the era, Sartre and Mailer, these aren't just random names I'm pulling out of a hat. These are two of the most influential radical intellectuals of the age. Sartre, arguably the most influential, certainly in Europe. Mailer wrote or said somewhere in 1959 that the sour truth is that I am imprisoned with a perception that will settle for nothing less than making a revolution in the consciousness of our time. And that's fine, okay, but this is not a man who is primarily concerned with civil rights or the material improvement of the lives of black people. As one of the godfathers of the counterculture, you know, he had a different program in mind. The radical priest, Daniel Berrigan, 
radical left-wing priest in the 1960s, uh, said that to be radical is habitually to do things which society at large despises, which is true perhaps as an observation, but for many of the radicals in the 1960s, the causality and the purpose was reversed, you know, including for Berrigan himself. For a lot of them, doing things despised by society at large became the point rather than an unavoidable side effect of the pursuit of justice. In political action, as in avant-garde art and literature, getting attention by outraging salt-of-the-earth normies, by being unconventional, anti-conventional, at all costs, for any reason, it became the goal itself. And this eventually consumed the movement. And, and really destroyed a lot of people because while famous intellectuals and Ivy League grad students might be able to devote themselves to doing things that the rest of society despises without destroying their lives, most people can't. By 1969, we have Jerry Rubin, very famous 1960s protest leader, writing in the New York Book Review, who the hell wants to make it in America anymore? The hippie, yippie, SDS movement is a white nigger movement. The American economy no longer needs young whites and blacks. We are waste material. We fulfill our destiny in life by rejecting a system which rejects us. That's nice for Jerry Rubin, who was rich, and by the early 1970s had abandoned any pretense of concern for social or racial justice. He decided all that was passe and turned his focus to seeking enlightenment through a plethora of self-improvement and consciousness-raising fads. From Christopher Lash's book, The Culture of Narcissism, quote, Having reached the dreaded age of 30, and having found himself face to face with his private fears and anxieties, Rubin moved from New York to San Francisco, where he shops voraciously on, apparently, on an apparently inexhaustible income in the spiritual supermarkets of the West Coast. In five years, Rubin says, from 1971 to 1975, I directly experienced est Gestalt therapy, bioenergetics, rolfing, massage, jogging, health foods, tai chi, esalen, hypnotism, modern dance, meditation, silva mind control, areca, acupuncture, sex therapy, reikian therapy, and Morehouse, a smorgasbord course in new consciousness. In his coyly titled memoir, Growing Up at 37, Rubin testifies to the salutary effects of his therapeutic regimen. After years of neglecting his body, he gave himself permission to be healthy and quickly lost 30 pounds. Health foods, jogging, yoga, sauna baths, chiropractors, and acupuncturists made him feel at 37 like 25. Spiritual progress proved equally gratifying and painless. He shed his protective armor, his sexism, his addiction to love, and learned to love myself enough that I do not need another to make me happy. He came to understand that his revolutionary politics had merely concealed a Puritan conditioning, which occasionally made him uneasy about his celebrity and material rewards, but no strenuous psychic exertion seemed to have been required to convince Rubin that it's okay to enjoy the rewards of life that money brings. He learned to put sex in its proper place and to enjoy it without investing it with symbolic meaning. Under the influence of a succession of psychic healers, he raged against his parents and the righteous, punitive judge within himself. End quote. Elsewhere, Rubin himself wrote, quote, Puritanism, uh, by which, as far as I can tell, he means traditional behavioral codes and conformity of any kind, 
leads us to Vietnam. Sexual insecurity results in a supermasculinity trip called imperialism. American foreign policy, especially in Vietnam, makes no sense except sexually. The revolution declares war on original sin, the dictatorship of parents over their kids, Christian morality, capitalism, and supermasculinity trips. Our tactic is to send niggers and long-haired scum invading white middle-class homes, fucking on the living room floor, crashing on the chandeliers, spewing sperm on the Jesus pictures, breaking the furniture, and smashing Sunday school napalm blood America forever. And of course, America spelt with a K, because you got to spell it with a K to show them you mean business, right? Now, Ruben, who I'm not a fan of, as you can tell from my tone of voice, um, but he, he's, he's a representative of many people in the protest movement in the late 60s, especially among the leadership. Uh, they, they were very turned on by the idea of protest in general. You know, and for a time, for a brief moment in the 1960s, the African-American came to embody that principle of protest for them. And, you know, to many of these people, they, well, you know, to many of these people, that's really all that they were. You know, a black person wasn't really serving the function that had been assigned to them unless they were playing this role. To the point that you would find a white writer like Irving Howe criticizing the black writer Ralph Ellison for concluding his famous novel Invisible Man with an assertion that a kind of inner freedom is possible without respect to external circumstances. Howe criticized Ellison, saying that to write simply about the Negro experience with the aesthetic distance urged by critics of the 50s is a moral and psychological impossibility because plight and protest are inseparable from that experience. Okay, really? I mean, <laughs> I wasn't able to find a record of Ralph Ellison's response to Howe's attempt to teach him about the black experience. You know, it's a mentality that sometimes leaks through today undiluted when you see people, white people even, uh, will call black people sellouts or Uncle Toms, you know, tell them they're not real black people unless they take an oppositional stance to the mainstream or provide support for some specific array of political causes which are not objectionable in themselves and may in many cases be perfectly appropriate. You know, but there's something else going on when you've got white people conditioning someone's black identity on their political positions. It means that it's not really about the person you're talking to. It's more about yourself. And over time, this dynamic became very toxic and self-destructive in the 60s and 70s. Jerry Rubin wanting to spew sperm on the Jesus pictures, that would have been just as alienating and offensive to Martin Luther King and black church ladies as it was to Billy Graham, who was really his target. And yet, the black protest movement had always, to a degree, depended on white support. You know, the black people provided the leadership and the energy and the manpower, but they still needed white people for financial support, political and legal support, media support. Because, you know, they had the money. They had, they had the access to the institutions. And so what the white people wanted to see mattered. Because they were the ones often who got to decide whose organization got funding. They decided who got media attention, who got bailed out of jail, and who got to rot when they got picked up. Who got a fancy pay lawyer and who got a public defender. 
And by the late 60s, it was very clear that the white people pulling the strings who got to pick the winners and losers in the black protest movement, they didn't want stoic black preachers. They wanted the crazy Negro who scared the shit out of their conservative parents and drove Richard Nixon crazy. And the black leaders who were willing to play that role, and many of them realized it was just a role. They, they, I mean, they would write about this. Some of the Panthers would write about how they would have to play up this aspect of it because that was what people wanted to see. You know, those, those ones willing to do that were the ones who got the attention and the support necessary to move them to the center of the action. And before long, that's what the movement really became about. And that's how we ended up with legions of white people following a guy like Eldridge Cleaver or George Jackson. You know, pimps, murderers, rapists who spent much of their lives brutalizing other black people. And when young black people were coming of age and they wanted to get involved, you know, they wanted to do something constructive. They're looking for role models. They look around. That's who they found. Men who they never would have discovered, never would have heard of in a million years if it wasn't for white activists, white publishers, white lawyers, white celebrities selecting men like that for their own reasons that often had very little to do with getting positive results on the far end for black mothers and kids. That's just a reality. You don't have to take my word for it. You can take Malcolm X's word, Stokely Carmichael's word. They would talk about this all the time. A few years back, a friend was visiting me from New York for a few days, actually. This is a story. I knew this guy mostly online, but we known each other for several years, and he was passing through L.A., so he was staying with me for a few days. And while he was in town, two of his friends from back in New York were coming through, and they were a couple young guys, um, early to mid-20s, from very wealthy families on the Upper East Side, and they were on a long summer road trip, and so we met them for dinner one night. This is such a vivid memory for me. This was in summer of 2014, and so we're out to dinner, and we're talking about politics, and I'm mostly just listening because these guys are all very politically active. Like, they did a lot of work on local campaigns back in New York, very into the nitty-gritty, and I don't have any experience with that. So I'm just enjoying listening to them talk inside baseball. And they mentioned that after L.A., they're heading back east because there was a protest scheduled in Ferguson, Missouri, and they were going to go participate and show their support. And this was after the Michael Brown shooting. And so after dinner, we're at their car, and one of them opens up the trunk to show us how prepared they are for this protest. And they've got helmets, and they've got spray cans, they've got, uh, and you know, one of them's got an expandable baton, a whole bunch of gear, like they're going into a war zone. And I'll never forget this, because a little while later, the Ferguson protest happens, and I'm watching it on the news, and a reporter was interviewing a black man who was marching, and this, the way this happened just burned the whole incident into my memory. The guy who was in his 30s or 40s and from the community is trying to talk to this reporter about the police department in the city and explain some of the kinds of things that had been commonplace before the Michael Brown shooting. And, of course, the reporter just keeps asking the guy, do you think it's going to get violent tonight? Hey, do you think it's going to get violent and I've looked over, I've looked all over the internet trying to find this footage again. I wish I could play it for you, but I just haven't been able to find it. And the black guy keeps telling the reporter, you know, I don't know anything about any violence. That's not what this is about. And he's trying to steer the reporter back to the topics that he wants to talk about. And this is as they're marching, so they're talking and walking. 
And finally, the reporter just keeps up and he tells the reporter, look, if you want to talk to somebody about violence, go talk to some of these white people from out of town. You know, we don't know who these people are. They don't even live here. Go talk to one of them. And sure enough, the protests turned into a riot and buildings got burned and people got hurt and hundreds of people got arrested. And I mean, you can probably tell from the way that I talk about this issue, not just here, but in a lot of this series, this experience that I had with these two guys just before seeing that interview kind of radicalized me on this issue. And I have, and, and I don't mean to generalize, you know, and I'm not making a, a, a real general commentary about, you know, everybody's motivations, but there's a certain type out there that I saw in these two guys, and I have very little patience for it. You know, these two guys that I met were not bringing all that gear to Ferguson just in case. You don't drive halfway across the country with a trunk full of riot gear hoping that you won't have to use it. I always try not to let my politics leak out on this podcast, but this really has more to do with class than ideology for me. You know, those guys, they just got to go home afterward, whatever happened. Tell all their friends about how intense it was out in Ferguson. Zero consequences. Even if they got arrested. Even if they got charged. There were real people with real grievances in Ferguson who were going to have to live with the aftermath of a riot in their town. And these guys were treating it like it was an extreme sport and felt supremely righteous for doing it. And, and it, it grates on me to this day when I think about it. But to a significant degree, this was happening in the late 1960s at a mass scale. White radicals covering themselves in the righteousness of the black struggle, egging on and providing financial and moral support to the worst impulses in some of the worst people in the black movement. Impulses that Martin Luther King spent his life fighting against were being funded and promoted by white radicals and white celebrities. And so in the last years of the 1960s and the first years of the 70s, the movement blew up. And we all know what happened next. You know, November 1972, Richard Nixon is reelected in one of the biggest landslides in American history. He won 520 of 538 electoral votes. He only lost one state, Massachusetts, because the Democrats' vice presidential candidate was a member of the Kennedy family. And you go back and read accounts of the campaign, like Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing and the 72 campaign trail, and so many people were sure that all the energy, the white youth vote, was going to come out in unprecedented numbers and throw Nixon out. They didn't show up at all. That New York Times series on the South Bronx, it came out in January of 73. And so it was being worked on while people went to the polls that November of 72. And people read it. It was a good story. But when it dropped, it landed with a thud. You know, people were over it. By 1973, the movement was over. The people who had spent their late 60s college years protesting, they woke up in a fog, decided it was time to get their lives together, and they followed Jerry Rubin off into the smorgasbord of Enlightenment fads that swept the country in the 1970s. I mean, they just blew up. The white people did that anyway. You can go look at video after video of these S seminars and radical confrontation groups and yoga classes, and you almost never see a black face. They're still in the ghetto, you know, which now is burned up from all the riots. The white people had moved on to the next thing after civil rights protests had stopped giving them the emotional and psychological rewards that they needed from it. 
they rationalized it, you know. They said, you can't fix the world until you fix yourself. And, yeah, okay, true enough. You know, or actually, it's not the world that's broken at all. It's our own perspective that makes it seem broken. And, you know, if we feel any dissatisfaction with the state of the world, it's not actually the world that needs adjusting, but ourselves. Which, again, you know, there's something to that. That's fine. You can find some truth in that. But go tell that to the South Bronx mother with moldy walls and no heat and mice crawling over her sick kids while they sleep. Go tell her that what she really needs is a $100 an hour Tai Chi seminar. Yeah, but nobody was telling her anything anymore. Nobody was even talking to that woman anymore. Some people debate over whether Tom Wolfe calling the 70s the me decade was entirely appropriate, but that label stuck for a reason. On top of all the fads that Jerry Rubin listed off, there were a thousand more. I mean, it was, a, it was the thing back then. People were following gurus and joining cults of every sort, especially on the West Coast. And what political energy still existed on the left retreated into the isolation of individual issues. You know, the movement splintered into the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, the environmental movement, which, you know, today, all of these movements have kind of found their way back to each other and they cooperate pretty well. But, you know, after the splintering back then, these individual issue movements often had as little to do with each other as they did with the religious right. Nixon's enemies managed to get him out in 1974, of course, but that episode just shows how inexorable the shift in his direction really was. You know, despite the humiliation and ugliness of the Watergate episode, I mean, after that, you might have expected Democrats and the left to dominate for the next generation, but Ronald Reagan became president in 1980 and codified this generational transformation of American politics to such a degree that today even Democrats invoke Reagan's name. You know, people fight over, Republicans and Democrats fight over who's more Reagan-esque. When the Democrats finally got the White House back in the 1990s, it was on Bill Clinton's platform of free trade, deregulation, cutting welfare, harsh criminal justice reform. I mean, this, this sounds, maybe sounds crazy to people, but it's, it's really not an exaggeration. Clinton, Nixon was to the left of Clinton in many ways. That's how thoroughly over the 1960s protest movement the country was. And, and that lasted really until things began to shift again in the last few years, like in the mid-2010s. And it wasn't just the protest movement, though. You know, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution of the 80s it really marked the end of a whole way of approaching political and social questions that had begun with the early 20th century progressive movement strive to professionalize the government and came into its own during the Depression and Second World War when the government took on roles and responsibilities that, you know, that, that were of a scale and, and purpose nobody really envisioned before and then reached its brief apotheosis when that World War II generation took the reins in the 1960s, you know, the Great Society. It was this modernist idea that politics doesn't have to just be a means of managing power relations and distributing social goods. It can be a vehicle to realize these grand collective ambitions and to expertly engineer and manage society. And, and not just politics. It was a broader social approach. You know, experts of every field could be mobilized to create positive change. You know, this was at a time when technology seemed to be making life better for everyone, and that influenced the way people approached every problem. It was just a matter of putting the best minds on the job, getting the formula right, 
Even art and architecture and civil engineering had their role to play. The 1950s were a golden age of modernist architecture. You saw giant government housing projects springing up in cities all over the country with great fanfare because they weren't just affordable places for people to live. They've been designed with this belief that the physical environment could be engineered in such a way that better people and healthier communities would just be the natural result. It was a disaster almost everywhere. The emblematic disaster uh, was the Pruitt-Igoe housing project in St. Louis. It, it, it was, you know, it's just, just remembered as like sort of the ultimate failure of this approach. But, you know, when it, it was demolished in 1973 and, uh, you know, people really believed that even human happiness and social harmony, that, that these were technical problems that smart people could sit down around a table and solve with technical solutions. The Pruitt-Igo project went up in the late 50s. It's just block after block of hideous tenement buildings with brilliant features like elevators that only stopped every fourth or fifth floor so that most people who don't live on those floors would have to get off the elevator and walk up the stairs a few floors to their apartment. And this would make people physically healthier, but it would also encourage, you know, those daily spontaneous meetings and interactions, neighbors bumping into each other, and that would build social bonds and knit the community together. I'm going to come up with that idea back then. It sounds great. It always sounds great. Less than 20 years after... Pruitt-Igo projects were built, they were so dangerous that mailmen refused to deliver mail there, and the buildings and infrastructure were so ruined that it was decided there was nothing to do but to just eat the cost to demolish the entire thing. The demolition of Pruitt-Igo has been called the end of modernist architecture of that movement, but the failure was part of a broader shift in how people thought about social problems in general. You know, people thought it had turned out that putting the smartest minds on problems like crime and urban decay, it hadn't helped at all. In fact, it just seemed to be making things worse than ever. That same year that Pruitt-Igoe was being demolished, another project by the same architect uh, was being dedicated that encapsulates the transition that was happening, I think, better than just about anything I can think of. And that was the World Trade Center. Same architect. One's being demolished the same year, the other one's being dedicated. And I think that just captures the transition that was taking place from an era where people believed in big ideas and collective achievements, like the Great Society, toward the neoliberal era of dominant global capitalism that's played out from the 1980s until the present day. In this era, even among Democrats, politics has more or less followed Reagan's theme that that government cannot really solve our problems, cannot really solve any major problem. If anything, it is the problem. And that we should all be casting a suspicious eye toward anyone who shows up with a grand plan about how to make society better. If you want to help your society, the way to do it is to start a business, create some jobs, make as much money as possible, and like George W. Bush said after 9-11, go shopping. Stimulate the economy. If there are people in the ghetto who want to live a different kind of life than the one they're living, and they're committed to pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, fantastic. We should find ways to help them do that. For all the rest, you know, hey, that's why we've got police and prisons. 
Of course, this transition did not happen all at once. It's not how these kind of things work. And so not everybody's ready to give up the fight right away. It's not like we took a vote and, and the next day everybody decided on a new program or new way of approaching these things. In the early 70s, there were still a lot of people hanging on, even to the idea of revolution, long after most people had, had moved on. But as people were moving on, you know, it, it, the ones who left first, it was the moderate and the half-committed people who began to filter out of the movement. And as that began to, as that process took place, what was left was the distilled radical essence, right? And as groups like the Weathermen and the Black Liberation Army dragged what was left of the movement further and further to the militant fringe and made the movement more unfashionable and distasteful to more and more people, the ones who did stick around were very committed, sure, uh, but also often just people who had nothing else to do or nowhere else to go or who were, um, I mean, simply just kind of crazy. The hospital that I mentioned in the South Bronx uh, near the beginning, it's a good example of what I'm talking about. Um, it was, it's called Lincoln Hospital, and it's still there in Mott Haven, uh, a pretty legit medical center now from what I understand, but that was not the case uh, back when the New York Times was writing about it in 1973. It was a rundown, chaotic mess that had been condemned in 1949, but in 1973, remained as the only medical facility serving all 400,000 residents of the South Bronx. And people would wait all day hoping to be seen. Sometimes they wouldn't. And so the residents sometimes would stage sit-ins and protest, demanding improvements. And in 1969, gangs got in on the action. They started occupying whole wards of the hospital, protesting, but also just kind of hanging out all day and night, harassing the doctors and nurses and administrators. One morning in July 1970, dozens of members of the Young Lords invaded Lincoln Hospital and barricaded themselves in the old nursing building and raised the Puerto Rican flag above the roof. The Young Lords were like a, this isn't exactly right, but they're like a Puerto Rican Black Panthers kind of. And they presented a list of demands to the administration, you know, house calls in the community had come to a halt because doctors would get harassed or attacked whenever they went out into the neighborhoods. The young lords wanted those resumed. Okay, cool. Uh, they wanted a daycare center to be established for the community and a 24-hour grievance table that would be manned by members of the community. But they also wanted the hospital administration purged and replaced with people from the community and from the hospital staff who were approved by the young lords. And so the young lords held the nursing building, but they start moving out into the rest of the area, the rest of the hospital, and they're dominating the corridors of Lincoln Hospital, harassing and intimidating the staff, especially the Korean and Filipino American doctors and nurses that they wanted replaced by Puerto Rican doctors and nurses. And so the staff, they were staging walkouts in protests. Many of them resigned. Uh, and so, you know, the Manning uh, became. Uh, worse than it was before. Uh, but the ones who stayed behind, they just tried to get on with their duties while they're being literally doctors and nurses being pushed around and cursed at and threatened uh, as they're trying to do their jobs by these activists slash gang members. And this is daily life at Lincoln Hospital for months. And so in November, the young lords barged in with a few dozen drug addicts and they took over an upper floor auditorium and they demanded that the administration give them, the young lords, 
the space and the resources to open up their own drug treatment center in the hospital. The hospital already had a methadone clinic, but it was small and nowhere near what was needed to serve the needs of the South Bronx. Several more hospitals would have been needed for that. Um, but the administration didn't know what to do. And so they felt like they had no choice but to give in to the young lord's demands. So they let them keep the auditorium. They gave that to them to set up their clinic. They gave them some office space in the hospital. And they diverted $1 million in state and city funding to the project, which became known as Lincoln Detox. It's from the author Brian Burrow. Quote, From the beginning, it was like no other clinic in New York. Run by radicals who established a socialist collective to administer it, Lincoln Detox drew many of its volunteers and paid staff from the ranks of New York's militant leftists. They adorned its walls with photos of Che Guevara, Malcolm X, and, in time, Joanne Chesimard. She's better known as Asada Shakur. Its volunteers included Michael Setoweo Tabor and Afini Shakur of the Panther 21. Brian Flanagan from the Weather Underground, as well as Bernadine Dorn's sister, Jennifer, who fell for a young lord's leader, Mickey Melendez, with whom she had three children. Practically overnight, Lincoln Detox became a kind of clubhouse for New York's radical elite. When the Black Liberation Army needed medical supplies in 1971, the radicals at Lincoln turned them over by the truckload. But it was the treatment Lincoln Detox offered that was truly radical, in every sense of the word. It was an article of faith among many militants that the plague of drugs was a scheme concocted by a white government to oppress blacks. This theory had been popularized by Malcolm X, who preached that drug addiction could be cured by freeing blacks of the self-hatred indoctrinated by whites. At Lincoln, this meant augmenting methadone with a regimen of political education classes that included Marxist literature and lectures, all paid for with city funding. Every addict was given an 86-page pamphlet called The Opium Trail, heroin, and imperialism, which claimed, among other eye-opening assertions, that a commitment to armed revolution could cure heroin addiction better than methadone alone. By providing an alternative explanation and another focus for anger, its authors wrote, as well as collective support and some sense of direction, the movement can be the best form of therapy. Lincoln administrators, many of whom appeared intimidated by detox staffers, tolerated most of it only occasionally attempting to rein in the radicals, as when one acting director, new to the job, switched off the power when a group of 150 staffers and junkies commandeered the chapel to screen a documentary about a Mozambican revolutionary group. When the detox crowd refused to leave, police and security guards were called, leading to the predictable melee. Twenty-three people were arrested. An interesting side story uh, having to do with Lincoln Detox, one of the people who came to volunteer was a young black radical named Gerald Williams, who would later become a Muslim and change his name to Matulu Shakur. In the past, he had been part of a hardcore black nationalist group with designs on carving out several southern U.S. states as a black homeland. They, they even elected a provisional black government to run the new country. And it fell apart for the usual reasons, uh, infighting, pressure from law enforcement. And eventually, Shakur makes his way up to the Bronx and Lincoln Detox. He starts out as a volunteer, but he's very dedicated, very hardworking, and soon has a full-time paying gig as a drug counselor. In 1974, he hooks up with a doctor who had introduced acupuncture to the clinic as a drug treatment, and Matua Shakur takes it up with religious dedication. And then a little bit later, he's put in charge of the acupuncture program when the doctor who introduced it to Lincoln Detox and tutored him was found dead in the hospital closet with a heroin needle in his arm. 
And by this point, he had gotten married to a fellow hospital worker and Panther 21 veteran named Afini Shakur and had become stepfather to her son, Tupac. Perhaps you've heard of him. Matulu Shakur was ever only in charge of acupuncture, but he was very charismatic, very energetic, and somehow he managed to become so influential that people called him the deputy director of Lincoln Detox, and more often than not, they would go through him for any major decisions. But within a few years, he had developed a nasty cocaine habit himself, and since the salary at Lincoln was you know, not paying enough to buy a lot of cocaine, he hooked up with a bunch of other revolutionaries, including Sekou Odinga, the Black Liberation Army soldier that we talked about a bit in a previous episode, and launched a side career of armed robbery. And meanwhile, Lincoln Detox is just its falling apart and turning into, well, this is from Brian Burrow, quote, The trouble had been building for years. The city's Addiction Services Agency, ASA, which nominally ran the clinic, had cut off all funding when Detox refused to provide census data or treatment records to justify it. But the clinic still received money from a separate city agency, the Health and Hospitals Corporation. Thus, one agency, ASA, had oversight but no leverage to enforce it, and a second, HHC, handed over money with little supervision. Neither had the power to rein in the clinic's director, Luis Sarita, who found it easy to strong-arm both agencies even when impropriety surfaced. And surfaced they did. A 1973 ASA audit found that Detox was treating barely half the number of drug addicts its contract specified. Another noted that its treatments were four times more expensive than those at other city clinics. An HHC review found nearly $1 million in unsubstantiated payroll was going out the door to unknown parties, along with phenomenal absentee rates among staff members, as high as 71% in some cases. Only half of 45 paid staffers were on duty one day when HHC auditors arrived. The staff, meanwhile, charged the clinic for thousands of dollars in personal phone calls. When HHC demanded the clinic's personnel records, it simply refused, claiming the records were private. When a federal grand jury investigating kickback schemes subpoenaed records of 36 patients, one of the clinic's doctors refused and moved to quash the subpoena. As New York City sagged into the worst fiscal crisis in its history, neither its beleaguered mayor, Abe Beam, nor any of his subordinates could summon the will to do battle with the clinic's angry radicals, who increasingly operated as an independent entity unanswerable to any authority. Every year or two, ASA or HHC would make noises about evicting detox from the hospital. Time and again, the staff organized angry protests in response. In the worst, a group of detox staffers stormed HHC's downtown Manhattan offices and barricaded themselves inside while they smashed furniture and windows in the president's anteroom. After that, HHC officials appeared notably reluctant to confront the clinic. End quote. You know, just think about what I just read. The city and state are providing millions of dollars to a drug program that is essentially serving as a front for several radical groups, violent radical groups. They're using the program to radicalize and recruit the drug addicts they're supposed to be serving. Later, there would be allegations that they were using access to the methadone needed by the addicts to blackmail them into performing services for the militant groups. The agencies that have oversight over this program, they find out that drugs and supplies and over $1 million are going out the door to these organizations but when they try to do something about it, the staff invades and trashes the agency offices and the agencies back down. If anybody wonders why, you know, anybody back then would have thought it was okay for an outfit like People's Temple 
to be running drug treatment programs or retirement homes. This is your answer. They weren't linking detox. With stuff like this going on, the temples seemed pretty normal back in the 70s. Matulu Shakur and Seku Odinga, meanwhile, gather up several radical white women, primarily former members of the Weather Underground, who were starstruck by these black militants, as well as a few more soldiers from the Black Liberation Army, and they form a group that they called the Family, which was about 20% revolutionary movement and 80% interracial sex club that spent most of its time planning and doing robberies to support everyone's escalating cocaine habits. And they persisted for quite a while in the chaos of the 70s until infamously in 1981, several of them, six former BLA members and four former weathermen, got coked up and robbed a Brinks truck for $1.6 million. It was incredibly violent. There was no plan at all. They just sped up to the truck in broad daylight when it was open and the guards were outside and without warning, just opened fire on the guys with shotguns and automatic weapons killed two guards, severely wounded another. As they made their getaway in a U-Haul truck driven by Kathy Bowden, a former weather woman that we talked about in a previous episode, she was one of the two women who survived the Greenwich Village townhouse explosion. The truck gets pulled over by police. And the cops aren't sure that they've got the right truck. It just happened. And the unassuming white woman driving in the front gave them pause they were unaware of the six armed men in the back storage area, and when three of them were approaching the truck with their guns drawn, Kathy Bowden plays dumb and just acts terrified and pleads with them to put their guns away. And as soon as they put their guns away, the men burst out of the back of the truck wearing body armor and open fire on the cops with automatic weapons. One of them goes down. One of the robbers walks up and shoots several rounds into him to finish him off. Another cop is killed with a robber's M16. Another is hitting a leg. He manages to get behind a tree and return some fire. And another one, a fourth one, had remained in the squad car, but he couldn't get his door open because a dead cop's body was wedged against it. He grabs a shotgun, gets off a few rounds at the U-Haul truck, which by this point is speeding directly at his car and hits it. And now the truck isn't going anywhere, so everybody jumps out of it, and some of the robbers get into a vehicle that some of the other robbers are driving. Some of the others carjack a motorist and take off in that. Again... It, these are not exactly criminal masterminds at work, and so they're all arrested in short order and charged and sent to prison. Uh, Tupac's stepdad got 60 years. He's still in prison. In keeping with the spirit of the age, though, that tended to throw the book at the black radicals and spare or celebrate the white radicals, one of the white women involved, uh, Susan Rosenberg, she went to prison, but her sentence was commuted by Bill Clinton on his very last day in office, and she's now a celebrated radical author and activist. Kathy Bowden, she did some time as well, but she got out and now she's a professor at Columbia, which as far as I know, makes her the only current Ivy League professor to have pled guilty uh, for felony murder of, of police officers. My point in telling you all this, I guess, um, as my point has been in telling you many of the stories that are not directly related to Jim Jones or People's Temple, well, there's a couple reasons, right? I mean, one... This is just a period of history that uh, it's it just it's got a lot to do with our present condition that people really don't know a lot about. And it's interesting and it's exciting. And many of the people involved are still alive and influential. They're in the news. You know, one of Jim Jones' closest allies in California politics, which we'll talk about in a while, was Willie Brown. 
He used to be the boyfriend of current vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris and gave her her start in politics. Susan Rosenberg, the radical I just mentioned who was released from prison by Bill Clinton, she's been in the news this summer, summer 2020, because you know conservative pundits have had their hair on fire because she's on the board of one of the main organizations that raises money for Black Lives Matter, and she's she's highly involved in that. I mentioned in a previous episode that President Obama launched his political career at a fundraiser in the living room of Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, the two former leaders of the Weather Underground. This stuff is not ancient history. But the real reason that I've included it is because tracing out the course of the movement from the late 50s into the 70s and seeing how it developed, it really provides the context to understand how people at the time would have thought about and perceived Jim Jones and People's Temple. At no point along that trajectory were Jim or the Temple anywhere close to the most radical or the most bizarre thing going on. In fact, generally speaking, they always stayed a step or two or three behind the leading edge so that even as they began to tip over in the early 70s, to someone who was happening through the church on any given Sunday, yeah, the place could have seemed like a stable, relatively conventional environment compared to what they were used to. Even people who, who got involved, who were in the inner circle on the planning commission, who saw the madness that was going on behind the scenes, you know, if they'd done time in other radical groups, as many of them had, or they at least were close enough to it that they'd heard the stories, you know, the temple would have seemed like more of the same at the very worst. And it's also worth pointing out critical points in the temple's timeline and comparing it to the overall timeline of the development of the movement. Jim Jones moved the temple headquarters from rural northern California into San Francisco permanently in 1972. That's pretty late in the game. Their focus had been there for a while, and they'd been building a presence in Los Angeles as well. But you know, by 1972, the field had been cleared for Jim to move into those two cities and really try to make a claim for leadership. Remember, this is four years after the near revolution of 68, three years after the Panther 21 were arrested and, and Weather disbanded SDS, two years after Kent State. This is the year of Nixon's landslide victory, and people living in the ghettos were looking around and realizing that the movement was over and people had moved on with their lives. So that when Jim Jones rolled into their neighborhoods offering himself as a savior, he didn't have a lot of competition. People's Temple straddled the beginning and end points of the movement. As the author Shiva Naipaul observed, quote, Jim Jones built his movement on the debris of the 60s, on its frustrations, failures, and apostasies. When, with his small band of followers, he made his hijra from Indiana to California in 1965, the era was still getting into its stride. Its climactic moments lay ahead. People's Park was yet to be battled over, and Berkeley placed under martial law. San Francisco's Summer of Love was still two years away. The Black Panthers did not exist. Angela Davis had not been charged with conspiracy and gun running. The feminist onslaught had not yet begun to make its impact. The Woodstock Festival was four years away. Vietnam was only starting to fester. George Jackson was still alive. Timothy Leary and Herbert Marcuse were just becoming widely known. The Beatles had not yet composed their most famous music, the music that would one day inspire Charles Manson. Ronald Reagan was not yet governor of California. Patricia Hearst, well, unquote. 
I'll get to Patty Hearst in a minute. In 1965, he continues, the 60s were in their infancy. The world had changed substantially when, in 1972, the People's Temple moved out of its rural lair in Northern California and made San Francisco its headquarters. By then, the student revolt had all but evaporated. Vietnam would soon diminish as a source of torment with the abolition of the draft. Timothy Leary was in deep trouble with the law, and Herbert Marcuse had lost much of his influence. The Beatles had composed their most famous music, and the Manson family had committed its murders. Racism was, more or less, abandoned as an issue, its place usurped by the aggressive introversions of feminism and ecology and consciousness raising. The Black Panthers were in their death throes. Est, initiated by Werner Erhard in October 1971, was scooping up adherents. So were Synanon, the drug and alcoholic rehabilitation group that had turned itself into a religion. The Unification Church, the Hare Krishnas, the Divine Light Mission, the Children of God, the Jesus Freaks, and Apocalyptic Fundamentalism, and the elements of the Symbionese Liberation Army. End quote. So you're a single mother with a couple kids whose after-school programs have just been cut by fiscal austerity during the 73 recession, but you got to work your second job in the afternoon and evening to make ends meet, and you don't want your kids running the streets, you could have done a lot worse than finding people's temple. With all the other stuff that was out there, the stuff that by this point was normal, you know, it was a relief to wander into the temple and see people smiling and kids playing with adults watching over them and to hear Jim Jones putting out what sounded like a pretty good message. And I will run it with or without my immediate person. I will have my way because my way is a holy, just and egalitarian, socialistic way. My way is the way of fair play. My way is the way of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that says we are guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. My way is the way that says all are guaranteed life and all liberty and all happiness. Well, you cannot have life, liberty, and happiness without the guarantee of free doctors if you cannot afford them, or free hospitals if you cannot afford them, or free education if you cannot afford it, free housing if you cannot afford it. If I then I'm going to live the Constitution, which I intend to do, and guarantee life, liberty, and happiness, the only way you can have that is to guarantee that if people don't have money, they will be taken care of as they were on the day of Pentecost, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. You say, what is it, Father? You're suggesting that we uh, just let everybody have the benefits of society? Say, I worked hard to get what I have. You don't have anything. You don't have anything. The man has you. Now, I intend to do something about that. And if I don't, I will shake creation. I will cause this country to be thrown in a disarray. I will turn this country upside down. In general, Jim tended to keep the radical stuff between himself and the inner circle until 72 or 73 or so. You know, not entirely, but it leaked out rarely enough that committed members could let it pass if they didn't like it. I mean, he always preached radical politics, but he was talking to people in urban ghettos who, again, were surrounded by militant rhetoric. And at least Jim Jones wasn't calling for violence. 
There were many people in the church who were only there because it was a good environment for their kids. It was the whole reason they were there. You know, there are many people like that. There are many members who stayed in the church because they've been, you know, they, they, they'd become friends. They'd become close to other people in the church. And they didn't really care that much one way or another for Jim Jones. And that's not uncommon either. And people in churches all over America stick around because that's their friend group. It's their kid's social environment. And, you know, if the pastor came in one Sunday and announced that he was moving on and there was going to be another pastor, you know, they might be, you know, oh, that's too bad. But, you know, <laughs> it's not going to break them up. It's not going to cause them to, to leave the church or anything like that. It's not out of the ordinary is my point. Of course, Jim Jones was a preacher out of the ordinary. Many people were uncommonly attached to him. But even among those people, they were attached to him very often for different reasons. And Jim would talk to his people on subjects that he knew appealed to only a slice of the congregation, either puzzled or turned off the rest. You know, he always wanted to be all things to all people, so he would jump around, give this group over here a bit of what they needed, and then give this other group what they needed. For a little while, Scientology was catching on in the mid-70s in the Bay Area in L.A., and he knew that some of his people had been had been looking into that. And so one day... Jim just appropriates basically the whole Scientology myth for his own use as if he'd had some kind of revelation or something, even though a lot of the people listening to it thought he was either, you know, nuts or just goofing around. Meantime, I'd like to ask... She was trying to make me God, I think, uh, too publicly. Uh, meantime, I'd like to ask this. Um, uh, is there, uh, you know, like 60-fold and 30-fold? That's 30-fold or 60-fold... Uh, 60%, 30%, 100%, uh, yeah, 100% love, 100% uh, sensitivity, yeah, that's, that's me. And then everybody else falls in some line down there somewhere. Well, and that's what I'm trying to find out, where? Well, uh, you want me to pull out a percentage for you? No, not in that sense. I don't I'm, think so, and I wouldn't want to do so. No, I mean, not fair. to say that in this and the other. It'd be a class system. Your mind, the mind, you know, we have, you, or like, from what I understand, you have the mind of God, perfect mind of God. I have a perfect, uh, loving mind. Well, per mm, loving perfect, mind. loving mind. God and, is a word that I'd like to get away from because it's something that has been used so much by the church agent and represents a false concept. I'm 100% sensitive to get you to the only heaven there is, a planet out there. Now, there is nothing in this universe except, like, we have first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, high school and college, PhDs. Well, on up in the other planets, there's higher planets. They cannot intrude here. Only I. I was the greatest on that planet. Only I could get down here. They can do it. They can't make a contact or communicate to get into your body to help you. And they have no way... Uh, if they had it, they'd do it. They have no way to bring all their knowledge here. If you raise in a mental consciousness, you can raise out. You could go out and go on that plane. I could leave this body in 10 or 15 seconds. I could leave this body. Just a will, and I'd be gone. I have to fight it hard because the easiest thing... Now, you try very hard to stay awake because I'm noticing extremely closely all of you that are sleeping. You will get out of this earthbound state when you rise to the sensitivity of that next planet. You go on. How you got down here, you, I don't want to get into it. You thought you were on a good mission, I guess. 
and you came here and I came here to get you and it's too limited a thing and it's too um, it's it's a it's a form of uh, deviation it can get us away from the fundamental of socialism but it's a fact that I know that down deep intrinsically inside me I had to come down here to get you you start to see as time goes on more and more of this kind of thing mixing in with the political message you know Jim's message centering more on himself and his divinity Sometimes he would qualify it, bring it back to the message that God was not a being in the sky, but a principle and the spirit of love and brotherhood of which Jim himself was merely a vehicle and, you know, which was embodied politically by socialism. But as time wore on and his mind continued to slip and the drugs drove his megalomania higher and higher into the stratosphere, those qualifiers came with less frequency. You demand that they only speak of one God, God Jim. You let them speak of only one God, the Savior that's here talking to you. Don't let them talk about any other God. I will have no gods before me. For your salvation, for your own welfare, for you, it's because I love you. Don't let anyone else be before me because I'm the one that will marshal our resources together. I will marshal our strength. It's me that will unite us if we have our whole attention undivided upon me. But if someone is here able to sow discord amongst the brethren, it will hinder our exodus through Babylon. It will hinder us and cause us to die in the wilderness. So don't let any traitor name any other God. I am God and there is no other God before me. When you're talking like this, you know, you're going to attract all kinds, especially when you're drawing from a pool of potential members that included disproportionate numbers from society's margins. You know, people were coming in off the streets. They were coming in after getting out of prison. They came in through the temple's drug rehab programs. In the 1960s, California psychiatric hospitals started emptying out and shutting down when it became illegal to commit people against their will or hold them indefinitely. And so tens of thousands of former mental patients spilled out from the hospitals into the streets, and the temple took in as many of them as it could get. And then you just had people who had come in as joiners, you know, people who were lost or who had spent the last several years strung out and flitting from one protest group or cult to another and had finally found some kind of stability in the temple. We're going to get interesting results when you take that cross-section of humanity and throw them into an environment that encourages extreme loyalty to a charismatic leader and steeps them in radical and increasingly paranoid political messaging. Think on that. I come down here every now and then, but I evolved... And I've got to bring you up to a vibratory level. You've got, I've got to bring your electronic field up. You can't go to where I've been from until I get you up. You came down here out of your own willfulness. Now I want to get you back up. Oh, there's little truths in that Bible. But you left another planet, another heaven. You left it. And I've got to raise your vibrations to be sensitive and loving and kind and sacrificial as I am, as socialistic as I am. Then when I get your vibrations up, you will leave the earthbound state. And unless you do overcome, you'll keep going back to matter. Say, Father, if I follow you, I'll have to throw away everything I've learned. What have you got to lose? Where are you today? 
You go home and read executive order. It's now five of six. I told you I'll finish by six. Executive order 11490 and 11647. You go home and read it. Right now they're preparing to set up a dictatorship. It's already written into law that will give the president power to move people wherever he wants to, to put them in concentration camps, to take over every streetcar line, over every transportation, over every farm, over every office, over every factory. He'll put serial numbers and a mark of the beast right on you. You'll not be any more a person, you'll be a number. And every black and brown and poor white will be done away with. It's already in law. The time has come for the destruction of the black man unless he frees himself from the burden of the black book, the curse of the white man's religion. He must free himself. Peace. What will you do? I've never lied to you. Your Bible is full of lies. Your sky God makes no sense. You say, we couldn't give up what we know. What we know has brought us to this place. People telling us to think about heaven, the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell. That's why we're so careless today, so godless, so heartless. That white woman on the Miami Tower, her heart was broken, lonely, alone, afraid. She's up there wanting somebody to care. And hundreds of people, they said, white, every race, saying, jump, 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 you bitch, jump. They do it all over America. Read every news story. One in New York recently, and we're trying to get them to jump off of a 37th floor. Jump. There's no heart. There's no love. Everybody killing everybody. So what have you got to lose? Does your churches have any love? Does your preacher talking about the sky God? Will he give you a ride? Will he give you any buses? Has he given you any of those homes? Has he given you help? Does he go into the court and the jails and set you free? Does his, does his sky Jesus do you any good? No! I'm the only one that'll help you! I'm the only one that cares about you! I'm the only one that loves you! One of the more interesting characters who came through the temple uh, around this time was a black man named Donald DeFreeze. DeFreeze, little background, was born in 1943 in Cleveland, so he would have been about 30 when he uh, was supposed to have attended a few a few Sundays at the temple in 1973. Uh, his childhood was not a happy one. He was the oldest of eight kids, and his alcoholic dad uh, supposedly used him as a punching bag. He starts getting in trouble early on for stealing cars, and then he gets in trouble for stealing a gun so that he could kill his father. And so he runs away to Buffalo to live with a cousin when he's 14 years old. In Buffalo, he keeps stealing cars and getting in trouble, and he gets put up in a youth facility until he's 18 years old, at which point he's released, and then he next shows up in Newark, New Jersey, where he managed to get his act together for a little while. He gets a job painting houses, and he marries a woman five years older than him. She's 23. She's already got three kids, but... You know, she's kind of got her act together and she pushes him hard to stay on the path. But DeFreeze was sullen and lazy and they start to fight a lot. And their fights are mostly her yelling at him to do something with himself. And so Donald DeFreeze starts disappearing for days at a time. And she found out later that he had started burglarizing houses and robbing people. Now, DeFreeze wasn't just a criminal. He was a very troubled guy. When he was home and not off on one of his disappearances... He started buying guns and taking them apart and trying to modify them. In 1965, 
which would have been two years into his new life in Newark. Neighbors called the cops after a loud bang came from their apartment, and the cops came and found an unexploded bomb encased in bamboo. And so he's arrested and charged, and the landlord evicts the lot of them, and DeFreeze jumps bail and leaves the family and flees to Southern California. Three weeks later, he's arrested hitchhiking on the freeway near San Bernardino, and cops find him with a briefcase holding a sawed-off shotgun and a tear gas bomb and a sharpened butter knife. And so he's released again, and he goes back to Newark, immediately gets arrested again, this time with another homemade bomb. And so it's all very strange, because people who knew him at the time say that he wasn't political at all, as far as anybody could tell. Nobody to this day knows what he was up to. Well, by now, people in Newark knew to avoid him, and so he couldn't get any more jobs painting houses. And so he convinces his wife, who apparently is a very patient woman, to take her three kids with him to Los Angeles so they can get a fresh start. And she does. And in Los Angeles, he's painting houses again. He gets a job as a short order cook in a restaurant. But at nighttime, he starts buying up black market guns and selling them to street gangs for extra money. And this is how he starts coming into contact with the Black Panther Party, which had just recently been formed. The Freeze starts drinking a lot. And he and his wife continue to fight a lot. And he keeps up his habit of disappearing for days at a time and getting arrested under very strange circumstances. Once he's picked up for running a red light on a bicycle, and in the bike's basket, cops found a handgun and two bombs he made. He got probation for that, but then got arrested again a short time later for having an unregistered pistol, which turned out to be from among 200 weapons that had been stolen from a military supply depot. So he tells the cops that he has the rest of the guns, And he offers to show them where they're hidden in an apartment building, but he'll only show them in person. And so they bring him there, and he manages to get loose, and he jumps out of a second-story window and manages to escape, only to get picked up again four days later, after which he escorts them to the actual hiding place of the guns. And for his cooperation, he gets off once again with only probation, uh, partly with the help of a sympathetic court psychologist who said that he was emotionally confused and conflicted. So he tries again to get back on the path. He takes a course in aircraft assembly and repair, but he finds that he can't get a job in that field due to his criminal background. And by now, his wife is demanding that they get out of Los Angeles, and so he takes her and the kids back to Cleveland. But after just a few months there, he's arrested on the roof of a bank with a burglary kit, and finally his wife bails, so he goes back to L.A. alone. As soon as he gets there, he robs a woman of a $1,000 cashier's check, but the cops are called when he tries to catch, cash it, so he runs from them on foot, firing his gun wildly at them until he runs out of bullets, and then he surrenders. And so finally, Donald DeFreeze, this guy who had been spit out of an abusive home as a 14-year-old runaway and had been just a rolling disaster ever since, finally has his probation pulled and was sent up for a minimum of five years. Well, like many young black men from difficult circumstances with criminal histories back then, prison was, in a way, it was like the first time that Donald DeFreeze, like I said, just a rolling disaster from the time he was a kid. And this was like the first time he ever really had a moment to just stop and take a breath. He began to read to pass the time. He started with porn reading the articles while he recharged his batteries, then moved on to other magazines, and then books. 
he started paying attention to the prisoners talking about black power and black liberation. One of them gave him a book, Soledad Brother by George Jackson, and he read it, and that was when everything clicked into place for Donald DeFreeze. From Burrow, quote, Reading Jackson, DeFreeze was suddenly able to understand his strange jumble of a life. None of it, he discovered, was really his fault. The black man never had a chance. He never had a chance. Moreover, he wasn't really a criminal. He had been fighting for his economic freedom, for his dignity, and a repressive white government had jailed him for it. He was a political prisoner. In time, DeFreeze branched out, reading the books Jackson recommended, Mao, Lenin, Che, then Fanon and Debray and the rest. And while he never became entirely conversant in left-wing ideology, he found adventure and excitement and purpose. Marxism even explained his wife. She wasn't a striving harpy. She was just bourgeois. End quote. And so DeFreeze, he's all in. He gets, he gets into this fully. He starts attending meetings with the prison's Black Culture Association twice a week in the prison library, where they would organize classes in black history and literature and bring in guest speakers from the outside or watch films on African history and culture. And the meetings would often be led by white radicals from the outside who would come in to volunteer. Each meeting would begin with chanting in Swahili and a clenched fist salute to the flag of the BLA. And all the members of the Black Culture Association took on African-sounding names. That was a big thing back then. And so Donald DeFreeze starts going by Sinke Mtume. The inmates spent most of their meetings fantasizing about escape and planning the future revolution. One of the one of the radical white tutors who were coming in to lead some of the meetings remembered how, quote, there were inmates at Vacaville who had mapped out the revolution from beginning to end, leaving out nothing in between. They knew what time the revolution would start in the morning and what day. They knew how to form a vanguard and how it would split up into cadres from the east and the west and the north and the south. To hear them talk, you would think that they knew exactly how to do away with the system. The guards would hear their shit 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There were people who could quote long passages from Che and Mao and Marx and revolutionaries that I never heard of, end quote. The freeze becomes the model of a prison revolutionary and develops relationships with many of these white radicals who were visiting the black prisoners looking for the next Eldridge Cleaver, George Jackson. Many of the visitors were from a group of Bay Area radicals who called themselves Venceremos. And they had only started operating in 1969, but they didn't last long. Uh, they didn't start out violent, but pretty soon one of the female members of Venceremos fell in love with a black inmate that they were visiting named Ronald Beatty and convinced her comrades to help break him out of prison so that he could lead them up into the Sierra Nevada mountains where they would set up training camps and begin the revolution. It was not a complicated plan. Uh, Beatty was being transferred, and several Venceremos cadres ran up, shot two of the guards at point-blank range, killed one of them, and got away with Beatty. But he was recaptured soon afterwards, and he gave up the whole Venceremos organization. He told the cops that he had just been telling these people what they wanted to hear so they'd help get him out of jail and that he'd been playing the woman uh, for the same reason. And so that was the end of Venceremos. And that came right around the same time that Donald DeFreeze managed to break himself out of prison, this time successfully. He had been transferred to Soledad, George Jackson's old lockup, and put on a work crew as a boiler attendant. And so just after midnight, 
uh, one, one night in March 1973. He's dropped off at the fence line near some boilers he was supposed to see to, and the guard drove off, supposed to check on him every half hour, and DeFreeze just climbs over the 12-foot fence, tears his jeans on the barbed wire, but takes off, gets away. And so DeFreeze, by this point, had been out of touch with his friends from Venceremo since being transferred to Soledad. So he didn't know that the organization had come apart. And so he starts making his way up to Berkeley to round him up. He's hitchhiking up the 101. He manages to get somebody to lend him a telephone. And he gets in touch with somebody that he knows who drives down with a change of clothes and, and picks him up to, to bring him up north. And on the drive up, DeFreeze explains to him that with George Jackson gone, Jackson had been killed by now. The revolution needed a new leader, and so he that's why he, he had to break himself out of prison. He gets dropped off at a commune in Berkeley, and as crazy as DeFreeze is, <laughs> you know, he had a way about him. This is from Burrow, quote, When the door opened, DeFreeze's first words were, Look a here, you know, I'm here. Let's start the revolution. A friend of a friend allowed DeFreeze to sleep in her apartment that first night. It was on the second night that Donald DeFreeze, soon to anoint himself General Field Marshal Cinque of the Symbionese Liberation Army, found his way into the bed of his first recruit, an attractive 22-year-old pharmacist daughter named Patricia Soltisic. Her family called her Pat. She preferred Ms. Moon. She was a sometime Berkeley student, a sometime lesbian, and a self-avowed revolutionary feminist. She was also a janitor. When she wasn't mopping floors, Soltisic would become DeFreeze's partner in their revolutionary assault on America. In those early days, when no one was looking that hard for DeFreeze, the two were free to drift through the bizarre bazaar that was 1973 Berkeley, a college town deep in a post-1960s intellectual hangover, a haven for aging radicals who could still talk eagerly about the coming revolution, but no longer had the energy to do much about it. Berkeley's free speech movement had helped launch the movement in 1964, but its best and brightest had long since moved on to other causes. In their absence, the calls for revolution had fallen to the wayward souls who still flocked to Berkeley from across the country, the street preachers, the deluded, the lost. The Bay Area left remained as vital as ever, still teeming with radicals devoted to every conceivable cause. But those who clung to the idea of armed struggle and the viability of an underground now ran less to the brainy Ivy Leaguers of the weather underground than to the escaped convicts, janitors, runaways, and angry lesbians who would eventually, under DeFreeze's leadership, become the Symbionese Liberation Army. America had changed that much in three short years. In 1970, those who called for violent revolution were viewed by many as an intellectual vanguard. In 1973, they were widely dismissed as lunatics, end quote. 1973, which incidentally, if you remember from the previous episode, is the year that Jim Jones really tipped over and, and, and started to lose his marbles. Um, it's often called the real end of the 1960s. You know, I guess technically... December 31st, 1969 is that. But 73, you know, is, is really often looked at as, as the real end of that era. Nixon's blowout victory in November the year before was followed shortly after by the announcement of our withdrawal from Vietnam. And for the first time in several years, the forces of reaction seemed to have more energy than the forces of revolution and more focus. Now, the country as a whole seemed to be waking up from something. And 
you know, like many people felt like we had survived a brush with madness. People were looking back and trying to figure out what had happened. It was a theme that came through even in pop culture. One of the big movies of the year, 1973, uh, was George Lucas's Nostalgia Fest about being a kid in the 1950s, American Graffiti. You know, before the counterculture, before the movement, before the protests and the burning buildings and the war in Vietnam. Lucas was very direct about what it was he was trying to accomplish. I mean, he was a counterculture director at first. You know, part of that part, part of that new director's set with Dennis Hopper and, and Francis Ford Coppola and everything. But you can tell from this movie and from the rest that he really went in another direction. And he describes why. He's very direct. Quote, we all know, as every movie in the last 10 years has pointed out, how terrible we are, how wrong we were in Vietnam, how we've ruined the world, what schmucks we are, and how rotten everything is. It had become depressing to go to the movies. I decided it was time to make a movie where people felt better coming out of the theater than when they went in. I became really aware of the fact that the kids were really lost. The sort of heritage we built up since the war had been wiped out by the 60s, and it wasn't so groovy to act that way anymore. Now you just sort of sat there and got stoned. I wanted to preserve what a certain generation of Americans thought being a teenager was really about, from about 1945 to 1962. End quote. This is a trope now that we're all very familiar with, but this movie kind of kicked that off. It kicked off a 50s craze that lasted throughout the rest of the 70s and continued in various ways even later. That show Happy Days uh, began its run a year later, 1974. And people, you know, people people loved the 50s in the 1970s. You know, they wanted to forget the 60s, the, the bad parts and complicated parts anyway. You know, people looked back at what happened and in you know in some corners in different ways was still happening trying to figure out just 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 what it was that had that had been going on one of the emerging explanations that was becoming popular people were coming up with was that the culture had been hijacked and the youth had been brainwashed and they really meant that you know brainwashing was a big theme whether it was the drugs or the media or communist influence whatever it was some people began thinking of the recent years as a kind of collective madness. As the war wound down in the spring of 73, hundreds of POWs started coming back from Vietnam, and their repatriation was turned into a media spectacle, and it really became a, it was a, it was a big matter of public focus. The Nixon administration kind of made it that way. They wanted to use the returning POWs to try to salvage some kind of a happy narrative out of the war's end. But there were hundreds of these guys, and they came in all flavors, and some of them came back spouting anti-war rhetoric and denouncing Nixon, denouncing the U.S. military, denouncing the war. Some, some of them even said that they'd become communists. The military officers who had been put out front by the Pentagon to be the public face of the POWs, you know, these were all officers who had gone to the academy. Many of them were pilots who had been kept up at the Hanoi Hilton, you know, tortured brutally. Guys like John McCain, uh, for example, you know, they, they reacted very negatively to seeing these other POWs taking the side of the Vietnamese. And so they accused the dissidents of collaborating with the enemy and uh, echoing the aftermath of Korea. They accused them of being brainwashed by the Vietnamese. But this is a very different country in 1973 than it was in the early 50s after Korea, obviously. And so the dissidents didn't back down. They accused the gung-ho officers of having been brainwashed. They said they, they were brainwashed by the U.S. military into mindless obedience 
And they said far from being brainwashed, the Vietnamese had just had just freed them from the hate programming that they'd been subjected to in boot camp and in military training. And it just went back and forth. And these two groups, you know, the different groups of POWs kind of got taken up into the culture war that had already been going on, you know, while these people were away. I mean, you have to imagine, you know, there were POWs who had been had been captured in 1964, pilots who'd been shot down in 1964. And, you know, they got released in the spring of 1973. And you just try to imagine what they missed. I mean, goodness gracious. The, you know, the 60s hadn't really even gotten started in 64, what we think of as the 60s. And you come back in 1973 when it's basically all over. And I mean, if you, it's, it's, I can hardly think of uh, a period of time in U.S. history where if you missed that number of years, it would be harder to explain to you uh, what had what had gone on? I mean, even even the Civil War or something like that. You know, if you if you got if you went to sleep Rip Van Winkle style in you know eighteen fifty five or fifty fifty six and woke up in eighteen sixty five, you know, yeah, Civil War is a big deal. But I could explain to you what happened. You know, you know the whole slavery issue. The North and the South were arguing about the Western states and what was going to happen. Well, yep, finally came to a head. The South tried to secede. North said no. We had a fight. Now it's over. Try to explain the differences in culture. I mean, to somebody who'd been gone since '64, it was a it was a huge shock. And anyway, the whole thing got very ugly. The dispute, like everything, was ugly in the early 1970s. And that wasn't all. At the same time that this is going on, and you've got you know two groups of POWs and their supporters, each accusing the other of having been brainwashed, the country is caught up in a panic over cults. In the early 1970s, the Reverend Sung Young Moon brought his Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity, which is better known as the Unification Church, to the United States. And in 1973, he embarked on a 21-city speaking tour, filling up Yankee Stadium, Madison Square Garden, wraps up at Carnegie Hall. A couple years later, he speaks to over 300,000 people at the Washington Monument. And if you weren't a part of that, 300,000 is a lot of people, but most people obviously weren't a part of it. It's all very strange, especially considering that it is far, far, far from the only heterodox new religious movement in town. I mean, there's an explosion of cults in the early 1970s, especially on the West Coast. And with so many new religions cropping up and pulling in young people by the thousands, just as their parents were sighing with relief that the 60s political madness was coming to an end, you know, uh, an anti-cult movement got started to counter the cults. If the anti-cult movement was not as fanatical or dogmatic as the cults it opposed, it was pretty close in a lot of ways. Because it wasn't just a movement dedicated to identifying and monitoring groups that it considered cults. It came with a full package of concepts and beliefs about what cults were and how they worked. And they especially focused on the idea of brainwashing. I told you this is a theme in 1973. Um, and they took it, you know, and, and when, we, when you say brainwashing, you know, this is, you think, well, what is brainwashing? They meant it in a, in a very literal way. You know, the idea of brainwashing had emerged after the Korean War when Americans were trying to understand, try to come up with an explanation for how so many American POWs, the heroic GIs who had just defeated Hitler and Tojo and, 
you know, held such an honored place in America's collective identity in the 1950s, how so many of them could have succumbed to coercion or inducement to collaborate with the enemy because many of them made videos or signed statements, you know, denouncing the war, denouncing the American effort. And so the answer people came up with was brainwashing, sophisticated communist brainwashing techniques that bypassed the rational mind and thus rendered the patriotism and the courage of the POWs, you know, irrelevant. It seized control of them through unconscious manipulation. And people, again, took the idea very literally. The movie The Manchurian Candidate, which was released in 62, it sort of helped firm up the public's idea about brainwashing and what it was to a degree, but mostly it was just portraying the process the way people already more or less understood it. And I don't just mean unsophisticated moviegoers. At the time, the CIA was apparently engaged in experimental attempts to do the same thing under the MKUltra program. A few years later... Israeli intelligence turned a Palestinian prisoner over to a psychiatrist who claimed that he could use hypnosis and other brainwashing techniques to turn the man into a robotic killer that they would then return to the PLO to assassinate Yasser Arafat. And this is really how people thought that it worked. I mean, they tried that. They did, they did this with this guy and they released him thinking it was going to work, but he just went, it didn't work. He went back to the PLO and, and told them all about it. But this is, they really believe this is how brainwashing worked. And so they, they thought that this was real, that this could happen to an individual. And when you brought mass media into it, and people were very concerned about the effects of mass media, you remember the baby boomers, the protest generation, or the first generation to grow up with TVs in the house. It shaped the way many Americans interpreted the rise of the 60s counterculture and then these 70s cults. Like it was a form of mass brainwashing. You know, these, these, these two phenomena, which, like the Korean War POW scandal, involved people behaving in ways that mainstream normies couldn't explain in terms of rational motivations that made any kind of sense in their view of the world. One of the anti-cult movement's most famous activists was a guy named Ted Patrick. And he told an interviewer, there's an energy from the brain waves that comes down through the eyes. This is what ESP is. They're teaching this in all the universities. And this is the, this is the anti-cult movement saying this. Ted Patrick was a self-described deprogrammer who had become a legend in the anti-cult movement after his son was approached by the Children of God, which was a Southern California movement that actually had the families of Joaquin Phoenix and Rose McGowan as members at one point. Well, by 1973, Ted Patrick told Newsweek that he had conducted over 600 cult member interventions across the country. Patrick was an unassuming, very ordinary-looking black man, but his methods were not ordinary, and he got the nickname in the movement Black Lightning. The way it worked was a friend or a relative, usually a parent of a cult member, would come to Patrick for help, and he would arrange to take the member away to an isolated location, usually a home or a motel room, keeping them there for days. He would, he would force them, you know, do whatever he had to do, keep them there for days, sometimes longer, however long it took for his psychological and emotional bombardment to break them. And this is a word that he used. And they would be forced to admit the inconsistencies of their beliefs and recognize the pain that they were causing their loved ones and, you know, denounce the cult. Ted Patrick and his supporters in the anti-cult movement 
They would describe the process as deprogramming or defreaking or simply as breaking the cult member. And Patrick became famous in January 1973 when he was arrested and charged with assault and unlawful imprisonment for attempting to force a 20-year-old Yale student and cult member into a car. Some cops saw him when the, when the guy started yelling, and Patrick was arrested and charged. He decided to fight the charges, and he used the media attention on the case to feed into a growing national hysteria about cults, and it became a huge story. I mean, the whole country was paying attention to it. He told one reporter, I have reason to believe that some of these groups are subversive. They are worse than the Manson sect because he had only a small number of followers. If authorities don't do something about this, our nation is going to be controlled by a handful of people. Well, the trial turned into a referendum on the limits of religious freedom, and the prosecution accused Patrick of employing the very brainwashing techniques that he claimed to be against. And, of course, Patrick said he was not brainwashing anybody. He's freeing people from brainwashing. And the prosecution pointed out that's exactly what the so-called cults claim to be doing. Uh, but in the end, uh, Patrick was found not guilty. And so people were following this cult scare and this story, this, this Ted Patrick story in the media in 1973, with all the talk about brainwashing, at the same time that they're watching the POWs go back and forth, creating accusations of brainwashing, and they would literally see segments about both stories on the same episodes of the evening news. And then one of the best-selling books of 1973 was called Sybil, which was a supposedly true story about a woman with dissociative disorder and 16 different personalities living inside of her, each of which could take over without her consent or control, which is not exactly brainwashing, but you know, you got someone's mind being hijacked by forces that they can't control. And so you see this theme everywhere. You know, they see it on the news, they're buying best selling books about it, and they're going to the movies to watch to watch it. One of the biggest movies released in nineteen seventy three was The Exorcist, which obviously carried many of the same themes. A young girl with an absentee father and a self-involved mother becomes possessed by a demon. You know, okay, it's a, it's a pretty unsubtle horror flick, but if you go one layer deep, it's got generational rebellion, something like brainwashing, you know, even a kind of hostage taking, you know, and it, and, and, it, and it really, well, you know, young people away from their parents having their minds hijacked by demonic forces is a good summary of how many people were now beginning to think of the late 1960s. Another movie from that year that has stood the test of time is uh, Badlands by Terrence Malick. Very different from The Exorcist, but it plays on, on similar themes in, in very different ways, obviously, if you've seen the movie. You know, this one, Badlands, is sort of a takeoff on the Bonnie and Clyde theme. And it begins when the Clyde figure, played by Martin Sheen, kills Bonnie's father, burns down her family home, and the two of them run off together on a crime spree. Martin Sheen's Clyde character is consciously modeling himself after James Dean. He, he worships James Dean, you know, the original rebel without a cause. And the two sort of recapitulate the, the Bonnie and Clyde, you know, characters in this, kind of recapitulate the youth rebellion of the 60s. You know, they kill the symbolic father and burn down the house to sever ties with the past. And yet, the two lovers nevertheless save some knickknacks from the fire and spend the rest of the film trying to play house by recreating the traditional family environment that they've destroyed. But of course they can never quite do it. 
And, you know, it reminds me of a quote I saw somewhere from Santayana that the misfortune of revolutionaries is that they've been disinherited, having cut themselves off from heritage and tradition, and that the folly of the revolutionary is that they wish to be disinherited even more. What's interesting is that The Badlands and The Exorcist, which are such totally different films, they both center around a young girl who's been taken over by a dark force, and both contain the subtext that moving her father out of the picture was the prerequisite for that to happen. Once she was possessed, whether by the demon or the criminal maniac, or the implication was by the cult leaders or wannabe revolutionaries who had led so many daughters down a bad road in recent years, once that happened, daddy's little girl was capable of just about anything. 1973 was also the year of the Roe versus Wade abortion decision. And so when people went to the movies and saw The Exorcist, you know, the decision to include the scene of the demon-possessed young girl jabbing a crucifix into her vagina, that was not without ideological content. Nor was the story's conclusion that only the arrival on scene of a traditional father, a priest no less, in place of the absentee father could save the girl. And so people, you know, society wrestles with, with, with things uh, that, it's, that it's dealing with unconsciously through pop culture. I really believe that. And each of these films deals with the question of the girl's agency very differently. The Exorcist, again, is not a subtle film and leaves no room for ambiguity. The girl has been held and tortured against her will. It's her doing and saying these things. Technically, it's her body, but the film takes the position basically of the anti-cult activists with brainwashing. You know, her consciousness has been pushed aside by a superior and more sophisticated force, and she has become just a bystander to her own destruction. There's that there's that scene where, you know, the, the wound comes up on her arm that says, help me, like she's in there watching this happen to herself. Badlands is a more complex film, and throughout the story, you're left with a question's um, over the girl's complicity. You know, her lover, the Clyde character, he commits the actual murders and, and generally pulls her along, but she's also in love with him. You know, this man who murdered her father and burned down her house. And she goes along willingly. Although, of course, it's an open question how much free will a girl can exercise when she's traveling with a homicidal maniac. Malik had been making the film for some time, obviously. It takes a while to make a movie, so it was just a coincidence that in the summer of 1973, again, I told you this is a theme this year, uh, was when we got the term Stockholm Syndrome from a bank heist turned hostage situation in Sweden that ended when uh, the terrorized hostages ended up siding with their captors and refused to testify against them. And Stockholm Syndrome, again, is, you know, it's a kind of brainwashing. You're, you're sort of asking some of the same questions. And neither could Malik have known that at that very moment, the world's most famous example of Stockholm Syndrome, to this day probably, even more famous than the event that gave us the term, was about to happen. It was an event that would combine all of these questions and debates about brainwashing and about, you know your daughters and young people being let off by madmen and the question of their agency, and it would bring the whole question of the 60s and its legacy to a head. 
And it brings us back to the occasional guest of People's Temple, according to testimony later provided to police, Donald DeFreeze, a.k.a. General Field Marshal Cinque and his Symbionese Liberation Army. Now, DeFreeze and his companion, Ms. Moon, had gathered up a handful of followers from the remnants of the Berkeley underground, most of them leftovers from Vince Ramos that he had known from prison. There were four men, four women, in addition to DeFreeze and Ms. Moon. All of them were white. DeFreeze himself was the only, was the only African-American. Now, DeFreeze, uh, General Field Marshal of the Symbionese Liberation Army, obviously was possessed of some uh, delusions of grandeur and spread that mania to the rest of the group. He huddled in a hideout, spent weeks drawing up org charts and bylaws and plans for a Symbionese Federated Republic and a court of the people, came up with plans for logistics and medical and communications branches. They created a bunch of documents stating their goals. You know, they wanted to abolish prisons and the institution of marriage, as well as rent, and to wage war against racism, sexism, ageism, capitalism, fascism, individualism, possessiveness, competitiveness, and all other institutions that have made and sustained capitalism. And the group, in many ways, followed the established revolutionary playbook. They had daily calisthenics and karate lessons, mandatory Marxist study groups, time at the firing range, and, of course, endless struggle sessions. And since everybody except for DeFreeze was white... They spent time in mandatory classes practicing how to speak like the black proletariat as they envisioned it, which mostly consisted of learning to use double negatives as a habit and to inject the word pig anytime they spoke about police or the military or the government or system in general. When they began releasing demands and revolutionary communiques, the most common salutation that they would use was in all caps, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. As their symbol, they adopted the seven-headed cobra, which they said symbolized God and life and had a history going back 170,000 years. And it's not certain, but uh, possible that they were inspired by a 1973 movie called The Spook Who Sat by the Door, or the 69 book of the same name. It's about a black Korean war veteran who's hired into the CIA because of imposed racial quotas, and he uses the time to learn assassination and spycraft, and when he's got the knowledge that he needs, he quits and heads back to Chicago and uses his skills that he learned in the CIA to organize a black uprising. And he calls his organization the Cobras, and the book, which I haven't read, the movie's pretty wild, uh, somewhere uses the term symbiology, apparently. So some people think that this is where they were inspired. Um, and the story ends when uh, the uprising occurs and the President of the United States declares a state of emergency. Well, the revolutionary career of the SLA started out less spectacularly than that of the Cobras. As their first revolutionary action, DeFreeze decided that they were going to assassinate the first black superintendent of Oakland schools, guy named Marcus Foster. And so on November 6, 1973, DeFreeze and two of his female followers ambushed Foster as he was leaving work, and they murdered him and also shot up his best friend who happened to be with him. And police would later discover that the tips of the bullets had been drilled out and filled with potassium cyanide. But to the dismay of DeFreeze and the SLA, um, you know, the assassination did not have the desired effect. Rather than being inspired to rise up, the murder of Marcus Foster was universally condemned, even by Berkeley's most 
militant, you know, parts of the radical left. Um, black leaders denounced them. Nobody knew who did it, you know, right away, but they denounced the killers. Even the Black Panthers put out a statement against the brutal and senseless murder and suggested that it had been a provocation by secret fascist elements. The day after the killing, an Oakland radio station received a communique topped by a seven-headed cobra, which informed the world that Foster had died because he had initiated a fascist program to require students to carry ID cards on campus because non-students had been disrupting campus and classes during school hours. In vain, the SLA called on others to follow suit. They said, to those who would bear the hopes and future of our people, let the voice of their guns express the words of freedom. But nobody really paid any attention. The Bay Area was used to this kind of thing by now, and nobody had ever heard of the SLA. Even among the remaining revolutionaries, nobody was, surprise, surprise, nobody was actually cool with assassinating a popular black leader. Even Bernadine Dorn released a statement clarifying Weathers' position. We do not comprehend the execution of Marcus Foster and respond very soberly to the death of a black person who is not recognized as an enemy of the people. But still, uh, the Oakland School District actually buckled to the SLA's demand and suspended the student ID program. And so as far as DeFries was concerned, he was right, and the rest of the left was wrong about the SLA's tactics. He moved his group into a suburban house north of Berkeley where they exercised and took their classes and and wrote up a bunch of communiques for bombings that they planned to carry out against several multinational corporations as well as assassinations of several of their executives. They nailed the shutters down and stapled the curtains to the walls so there was no chance anyone would see inside. And in early January 1974, two of the SLA men got lost driving around the neighborhood and pulled over by police. And cops noticed a gun, and after a brief shootout and chase, the men gave up. And so the others caught wind of this, and they knew that it was only a matter of time before the police found their hideout. So DeFries ordered the whole place drenched with gasoline and gunpowder, and they lit a fuse and got out. It turned out there wasn't enough oxygen in the sealed-up house for it to blow, so there was only a fire, and it was very easily put out after the cops arrived. And so inside they found bombs and thousands and thousands of written pages detailing the SLA's plans. The cops picked through the paperwork for information on the culprits, but it was a lot to pick through, and apparently nobody paid attention to a green spiral notebook written by SLA member Nancy Perry, which later, when it was all over, the researchers going over the evidence would realize the importance of the first item of significance that she listed, that daughter of Hearst. In the evening on February 4th, 1974, Patty Hurst was cleaning her kitchen when she and her boyfriend heard a knock at the door. Her boyfriend answered, and Donald DeFries and two of his SLA comrades burst into the apartment, two of them driving the boyfriend to the ground while the third rushed Patty and tackled her. DeFries beat her boyfriend with a rifle butt and rushed Patty outside, shoving her down the stairs and firing several rounds over the heads of some neighbors that were checking on the commotion. They blinded and gagged Patty Hurst and threw her into the trunk of a stolen car whose owner was still tied up in the back seat. They sped off, stopped a little bit later, transferred Patty to another car, and left the owner of the first one tied up on the side of the road. Thirty minutes later, they were back in their own apartment with Patty Hurst, daughter of Randolph Hurst, owner of the global 
Hearst Media Empire and one of the richest and most powerful men in the world tied up in a closet. There was no mystery as to who had kidnapped her, since the SLA left a calling card, a box of cyanide-tipped bullets in her apartment. And for three days, there was no news. Nobody knew where Patty was or if she was alive. Then, a Berkeley radio station received a communique from the Simeonese Liberation Army Western Regional Adult Unit, written up officially as an order of the Court of the People. Patty was a prisoner of war, they said, a legitimate target because her father was a corporate enemy of the people. There was no request for ransom or any other demand except that the letter be reprinted in full in newspapers and announced on radio and television. Another five days go by, and the station receives another communique, this one including two audio tapes, one from Donald DeFreeze and one of Patty Hearst. And she said, These people aren't just a bunch of nuts. They've been really honest with me, but they're perfectly willing to die for what they're doing. I'm here because I'm a member of a ruling class family. DeFreeze's tape announced the SLA's first demand. The Hearst family would have one week to organize a food giveaway in Bay Area ghettos. They were to give a package of $70 worth of food to anyone who asked for it every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday for the next month. So after some wrangling, uh, Patty's father managed to put together a giveaway of $2 million worth of food, uh, but DeFreeze rejected that and quickly demanded another $4 million be given away. This is from Brian Burrow, quote, It was a colossal and chaotic undertaking. Tons of donated and purchased groceries loaded onto rented trucks at a San Francisco warehouse, then ferried to supermarkets in black neighborhoods across the Bay Area. Hundreds of people waited in lines. When trucks arrived late, crowds surrounded them. Fights broke out. In some cases, workers simply tossed bags of food out of the trucks. At a distribution center in East Oakland, several people were injured after being struck by frozen turkeys. By day's end, at which point Hearst had hoped to deliver food to 20,000 people, maybe 9,000 got some. Later distributions, eventually five in all, went more smoothly. They continued through March over the protests of California conservatives whose sentiments were symbolized by Governor Ronald Reagan's memorable quip, it's just too bad we can't have an epidemic of botulism, end quote. The Black Panthers refused to assist with the handouts. They said they couldn't support kidnappings as a tactic. The Weathermen and other white radicals were in a little bit more difficult position, though, as one weather member explained, quote, The Patty Hearst thing was great. Giving out all the food, all that was great. Of course, we all thought their rhetoric was ridiculous, and none of us paid much atten attention to the Marcus Foster killing, a horrible thing. Frankly, everybody was confused by the SLA. It was led by this black guy, so it was hard for us to be critical. It was hard to condemn it, too. End quote. So Patty Hearst is kept blindfolded and gagged in that closet for weeks. DeFreeze would visit her from time to time to lecture her about her privilege and tell her about the destruction that the SLA was going to unleash on the country. He told her that she would not be mistreated as long as she behaved, other than being bound and gagged and blindfolded in a closet for weeks, but that if she did try to escape, she would be immediately executed. And he went on about everything under the sun, the racist class system, the prisons, the evils of privileged families like hers, on and on and on. 
they interrogated her about her upbringing and her education and her family's assets. Sometimes the others would come and speak to her. They would, they would read books to her. They'd read Mao to her, talk to her about the oppression and injustice of the system. Patty had never been into politics at all. But as a survival tactic, she began to talk back, just agree with it, whatever they said. Yes, totally, uh-huh. Sometimes they would take her blindfold off and give her reading assignments in the closet. Eldridge Cleaver, George Jackson, Marx, Mao. Sometimes they would put the blindfold back on and bring her out of the closet into the living room to listen to their political discussions. One day, Donald DeFries told her that there may be no way to safely release her now that she spent so much time with them, and that she may be faced with the choice between either joining the SLA or being killed. You know, we've kind of gotten to like you, uh, he's supposed to have said to her, so we don't want to have to kill you if we don't have to. Just think about it. Something like that. And one night, after she had been confined to this closet and subjected to this treatment for almost two months, she was led out of the living room to learn about revolutionary sex. And she was told that she didn't have to participate, of course, but... It was considered comradely, and it would really go a long way to helping them trust her if she did. And so from that night on, the men of the SLA began raping Patty Hearst regularly while she lied there, in her words, like a rag doll waiting for it to be over. And this went on for some time. Uh, DeFries told Patty that the SLA had made a decision regarding her fate after a while. She could join them as a full and free member or else be released and go home. A little while later, on the sunny morning of April 15, 1974, the SLA executed a bank robbery in San Francisco that resulted in two customers being shot. They got away with just over ten grand, and that night, and for a long time after, the public stared slack-jawed at pictures and footage, surveillance footage, from the holdup, which showed the unmistakable image of Patty Hearst holding an M1 carbine and assisting with the robbery. And it is hard to even describe how shocking this was for people. I mean, other than Watergate, the Patty Hearst saga was probably like the biggest media event of the 1970s. Everybody was plugged into this. And so when this, everybody wants to know, where's Patty Hearst? What's going to happen? It's just the biggest story. And then this footage hits the news that night. You have to imagine somebody like Paris Hilton being kidnapped by a violent, radical offshoot of Black Lives Matter. And as the Hilton family is scrambling to meet their ransom demands, one day Paris shows up on TV with her kidnappers, toting a machine gun and screaming revolutionary slogans at bank tellers during a robbery. It's not a perfect comparison because Patty Hearst wasn't as famous as Paris Hilton before she was kidnapped, but she was by the time the bank robbery took place. You know, again, other than Watergate, it, it, it just, as far as public obsession and media coverage uh, went, it was the biggest story. It was just a massive story that held the attention of the entire country, and people were talking about it, debating it. Was it Stockholm Syndrome? Was she brainwashed? And again, this is in the context of everything else that same time that we've been talking about. You know, was she just another criminal revolutionary caught up in a mad cause running on the fumes of the 60s? And more than anything, it, it, it brought, I told you people had wanted, wanted to forget about the 60s, it, and this made it impossible. It brought the full attention of society onto the question of the 60s. 
and the debate over what had happened to Patty Hearst drew everyone in and expanded into a referendum on the legacy of that whole era. And given the nature of the event that kicked that debate off, the general mood of the society at the time as well, the verdict was coming in very negative. And Jim Jones was able to put himself right in the middle of all this. Again, this is right in the Bay Area. This is, this is where Jim's at. And he's getting to be a, a big deal in the community already. Since moving to San Francisco permanently, he'd been able to curry favor with you know, local political and community leaders, as well as prominent leaders on the radical left. He had relatives of Huey Newton, the founder of the Black Panthers, as members of his church, and he became personal friends with Huey over the years. He was close friends and business partners with Dr. Carlton Goodlett, who was, he owned several prominent black newspapers in the Bay Area, very respected community leader. He was also the Jones family's personal physician. Jim was a major supporter of Angela Davis when she was up on charges for her role in the Jonathan Jackson courthouse hostage murders. And Angela Davis and Jim Jones became very close allies over the years. She visited him frequently. She would often show up to speak at temple services. The temple provided financial and other support to Dennis Banks, a leader of the American Indian movement who was on the run after participating in the 1973 standoff at Wounded Knee, South Dakota. At one point later on when Jim and the temple were under scrutiny, Willie Brown, Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden, Dennis Banks, Art Agnos, the well-known radical attorney Charles Gary, several other prominent people, well-known prominent people, signed a statement expressing support for him. Quote, we applaud the People's Temple. We are familiar with the work of Reverend Jones and People's Temple and have no hesitancy in commending them for their example in setting a high standard of ethics and morality in the community and also for providing enormous material assistance to the poor, minority, and disadvantaged people in every area of human need, end quote. He was also allied up with figures in the mainstream democratic political machine in California and in the Bay Area. He was very good at playing both sides of the line, of that of, of the of the radical mainstream line, especially at a time and in a place, the Bay Area, when politics had, you know, really blurred that line and made that balance easier than it might have been elsewhere at another time. Tim Reiterman in his book Raven talks about this, although with his typical editorializing on Jim's motives, which, you know, I don't begrudge him. They did shoot him in the arm later. Quote, Winning the goodwill of elected officials like George Moscone was just the means to an end for the People's Temple, a safeguard against attack. Their first sympathies were with those who shared the revolutionary vision. These they cultivated with flattery, political support, and often a great deal of money. The endorsement of the temple by political radicals was a two-way bonding process. Figures such as the communist Angela Davis and Laura Allende, sister of the late Chilean leader, validated the temple as a social movement to those on the left, while their presence and support validated the temple to its own members. Besides Davis, the church proudly numbered among its friends actress Jane Fonda, Black Panther Huey Newton, American Indian movement leader Dennis Banks, and others whose radicalism was to Jones's liking. Jones desperately wanted their recognition, for he considered himself a lifelong revolutionary and communist. Angela Davis had been quick to emerge as one of the temple's darlings, militant, bright, black, and a woman. The temple participated in rallies on her behalf, and she made visits where she chatted privately with Jones and top aides in his apartment in the San Francisco temple. 
Angela Davis was both a sister and a celebrity of the left who could strengthen Jones's radical credentials. But other radicals, chief among them Dennis Banks, were considered more reliable friends. The Native American activist received what was probably the largest temple donation, $19,500. The church previously had bestowed large sums, mostly for humanitarian and public relations reasons, on a variety of charities and causes. For instance, $6,000 to save a senior citizen's escort program, $500 each to Cesar Chavez's United Farm Workers Union in the San Francisco Police Fishing Program, and $1,000 to a Marin County Drug Treatment Program. But the huge contribution to banks gave the church predominance in the effort by progressives to block the Indians' extradition to South Dakota for trial on weapons charges indirectly related to the 1973 Wounded Knee Uprising. The temple stepped in with nearly $20,000 bail to free Banks' wife, Kamuk, and their newborn daughter from an Oregon jail. A week ago, my wife was behind an iron door. My children were in Oklahoma. You, in your love, have moved the iron door, Banks told 2,500 persons at the San Francisco temple. AIM was only one of several groups Jones was cultivating. Though philosophically, Jones considered his neighbors in the Fillmore Western edition, the black Muslims, to be sexist and racist, he respected their, just for people who don't know, when they say black Muslims, they don't just mean a Muslim who is a black person, they're talking about the nation of Islam. To be sexist and racist, he respected their discipline and effectiveness in youth work and business enterprises. At one time, Jones feared that friction, born largely out of close proximity, might precipitate violence. He contributed to the superheated climate by speculating without cause that the Muslims were responsible for an arson fire at the San Francisco temple. Once, after temple photographer Al Mills allegedly was hassled by Muslims for taking photos of them, Jones became furious and sent out his biggest young black men, including the feared gangster Chris Lewis, to the nearby mosque to issue a warning. The temple wanted no trouble, but would take no abuse. Gradually, however, relations with the black Muslims improved. The temple bought fish from Muslim fish stores. They even exchanged visitors at some services, which must have been particularly gratifying to Jones in light of the Muslims' rebuff of him in Chicago years earlier. They even put together a joint event at the Los Angeles Convention Center, inviting political figures and billing it a spiritual jubilee and demonstration of spiritual brotherhood. Among those converging on the convention center were some of the temple's most treasured friends and political contacts, Dr. Goodlett, Angela Davis, San Francisco District Attorney Joe Friedis, Lieutenant Governor Mervyn Dimely, and Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley, end quote. Okay, Reverend Jim Jones is one of the most unique and effective religious leaders on the scene today. <laughs> important that we black, brown, and poor white people who are undergoing oppression here in the United States make our protests loud and clear. Let's face it, we have been disinherited. We in America have the unfulfilled promises of American democracy dangled in front of us, and it is becoming increasingly clear that the promises will remain unfulfilled in too many spheres. Indeed, with the announcement of the Baki decision last month, together with the many other disturbing signs which I may speak of in a few moments, it is becoming quite clear that black and brown people are being put on official notice that we are no longer wanted in the mainstream of American society. In recent years, we are seeing racism rise again 
across the land with upsurges of the Klan that almost took over the prison of New York and today brought, brought division and riot in the leading prison in Georgia. In the wake of automation and rising unemployment, new and frightening economic theories are being proposed. Even some backers such as Uncle Tom economists, I won't name them, I'm too angry to name anybody tonight. If, it, if implemented, would return blacks and even poor whites up to 40% of the population, according to the Newsweek article, to a state of servitude. This brand of economics, which is known as Cleometrics, would represent a kind of final, kind of final solution for non-white poor people. And if it's 40%, that means that a whole lot of white folk better wake up and realize that they're niggers, too. Jim was very good at cultivating people. And even as his mind starts sliding deeper into paranoid megalomania, he, he knows how to keep it together well enough to put on the kind of show that each particular audience knows to, you know, needs to see. He knows people. He could speak the language of the committed radical when he's in conversation with the radicals and that meeting and then charm the mainstream liberals and put their minds at ease as well, like right afterwards. As his circle of friends grew, the network effect was profound. Mainstream leaders saw him as a bridge to influence in the community and, and credibility in radical circles. His friendships with the respected radicals gave him street cred among his congregation and the community. And his connections to the mainstream leaders meant that the radicals saw him as a way to get their agenda in front of the people with power. Word spread of his defeat of the San Francisco Examiner back in 1972 when they tried to run that series critical of him that we described in an earlier episode. And after that, no news outlet took him on. And anybody who had a problem with him, when they tried to bring it to somebody of influence, their criticism fell on deaf ears. You know, they'd bring it to a community leader that they would think had, you know, ought to know better, and nobody wanted to mess with Jones. Through the mid-1970s, Jim's profile would grow and grow until he was becoming one of the more powerful and respected men in the Bay Area political scene. And there's no question that Tim Reiterman is correct that at least part of the reason Jim was doing all this was to build a shield around himself and his movement in case the chickens ever came home to roost. He was incredibly paranoid, and he expected that that would happen. He was put at ease somewhat by the impeachment of Nixon and the death of J. Edgar Hoover. That proved, or at least indicated, somewhat that the fascist powers pursuing him were not all-powerful. But the defection of the eight revolutionaries in 1973, which we discussed earlier in another episode, it really flipped a switch in Jim's head that never went back to the off position. He never fully trusted almost anybody in his church again. Anybody could betray him at any time, and by now, too many people knew too much, so they could do too much damage. The eight defectors themselves knew too much, and it preoccupied. I mean, he opened the newspaper every day, fearing that he'd read a story that they had leaked to the press or that there would be a knock at the door from police, either because the eight revolutionaries had gone to the cops voluntarily or that they'd been picked up and gave Jim up to save themselves. He was consumed with worry that the defectors were going to engage in some kind of act of terrorism that would bounce back on him in the temple. And this fear was amplified when it came out that Donald DeFries leader of the Symbionese Liberation Army, had attended a few temple services. Shortly after the Patty Hearst kidnapping, Jim tried to sort of head, head, head the possibility of that coming out off. He had a $2,000 check hand-delivered to Randolph Hearst Mansion 
to help as a donation with the food giveaway. One temple member was a photographer for the Associated Press, and so he made sure that news of the temple's donation went out over the wire. I'm telling you, Jim's good at this. But still, a few weeks later, the temple's contacts within the San Francisco Police Department informed them that the department had opened an investigation into the church after a woman identified only as a 51-year-old black housekeeper who was a member of the church reported that she had seen both Donald DeFries and SLA member Nancy Ling Perry at some temple meetings. She also reported to the cops seeing armed guards at the Ukiah location and told the cops that she had heard Jim Jones advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government and that one year earlier, Jim had mentioned that Randolph Hearst would be a legitimate target as a capitalist enemy. Well, within a month, the San Francisco PD's intelligence division, which was investigating Jim, begins receiving a bunch of letters from Temple lawyer Tim Stone, which must have been surprising to them because they hadn't said anything to the church about the investigation, so they probably knew they had a leak. The letters were praising the San Francisco police and insisting that Jim Jones took a strong stand against violence and in private meetings had always denounced both the SLA and the Black Liberation Army. And no, nothing concrete ever came of the investigation. It was left just with that testimony of the woman, but it actually wasn't the last brush that the temple would have with the SLA. After that infamous bank robbery involving Patty Hearst, DeFries figured that the FBI was literally going door-to-door -door searching every house in San Francisco to hunt them down. And so he ordered everyone to stay inside the apartment. But after two days, the group was out of food. And so DeFries uh, makes a decision, makes an executive decision in the midst of this unprecedented heat to go out and try to recruit new members uh, because they would be unknown to the authorities. And his great plan to do this uh, was, I mean, everybody knew who these people were by this point. They're on every TV channel, right? Everybody's looking for them. And his plan is to go out and recruit new members. And uh, the way he's going to do this is that him and another SLA member are just going to go door to door in the apartment building that they're in, introducing themselves as the leaders of the Symbionese Liberation Army and asking people to join. And so at first, the first few times they try it, they get hostile reactions. The door slammed in their face. And so DeFries realizes that doing this in the same apartment where they're all staying is probably not a good idea. And so they take their recruiting drive to the surrounding neighborhood. And amazingly, after being shut down a few more times, they happen to the door of a black Muslim woman who agrees to help them. She brings them food and finds them a new apartment. Uh, but it was in a black neighborhood in Oakland, and since all of the SLA except for DeFries were white, they had a problem since people were going to notice, you know, eight or nine white people all moving into a house at once in an all-black neighborhood. And so joined by three more Nation of Islam recruits, they all put on blackface. The, woman, the women put on Afro wigs, and before they leave the apartment, they destroy the place and dissolve all the evidence and acid in the bathtub and put anti-government graffiti all over the inside walls. DeFries tells the team that the robbery of the bank had given them the money that they needed to begin combat operations. You know, Patty Hearst was just a means to an end. That wasn't the end itself. It was time to get going. And so they were going to start driving around San Francisco looking for opportunities to kill police. They're driving around keeping their heads low for a few days, uh, but pretty soon it's announced that Patty's father 
is now offering a $50,000 reward for the return of his daughter. And so DeFries gets paranoid that their new Muslim friends might turn on them for the money. So he announces that they're picking up stakes and taking their show to Los Angeles. From Burrow, quote, They drove south in three vans the Muslim men had rented for them, arriving in Los Angeles on May 10th. The first day, they... They cruised the black neighborhoods of South Central until they spotted a house on West 84th Street with a for rent sign. By this point, Patty wrote later, she was losing her grip on her old identity. After three months of intermittent death threats, then untold hours of political indoctrination, she had grown numb and was increasingly willing to do whatever DeFreeze and the others told her to do. A cynic might deride her intellectual weakness, and many later did. A supporter might say this was a 19-year-old's way of coping. Whatever it was, by the time the SLA moved to Los Angeles, Patty came to believe that her safety depended solely on her obedience. If she ever mulled an actual escape attempt, much less insubordination, she didn't mention it later. She simply did what she was told. It took all of six days in Los Angeles for trouble to start. On May 16th, Patty and the Harrises, a couple in the SLA, went shopping at Mel's Sporting Goods in neighboring Inglewood. When the Harrises went inside, Patty remained outside in a Volkswagen van. A security guard noticed Bill Harris stuffing a pair of socks into his jacket. The couple paid for other items, but after they walked outside, the guard confronted Harris about the socks. When Harris refused to go back inside, a struggle ensued. Emily Harris jumped on the guard's back. Other employees rushed out and joined the fight. Suddenly, Patty began firing a carbine from the van, the first time she had fired a gun in anger, it appears. Bullets shattering the store's front windows. The Harrises sprinted to the van. Patty drove off in a squeal of tires, the guard leaping into his own car to give chase. They need to give that guy a raise. At a stoplight, the Harrises jumped out and ordered a young black man out of his car. We're from the SLA and we need your car, Harris shouted, and the man hastily obliged. When Harris noticed the guard a few cars back, he pointed his rifle, and the guard slammed into reverse, leaving the scene. After commandeering and switching to a second car, a station wagon, Patty and the Harrises drove off, but the dim-witted decision to identify themselves as the SLA brought the FBI into the matter. By nightfall, news of the SLA's surprising arrival in Los Angeles headlined the evening newscasts. For the next several hours, the desperate trio ricocheted throughout the city, commandeering a series of vehicles from frightened Angelinos, briefly taking two drivers hostage. Every hour, they stopped at a payphone and called the emergency numbers that they had arranged, but neither DeFreeze nor anyone else ever answered. This con they continued like this all through the night, giving up only late the next morning. It was then, unable to make contact, that they decided to take shelter in a strangely appropriate place, the fantasy capital of California, Disneyland. And you know what, I'm just going to let... Brian Burrow, take it from here. Uh, this is from his book, Days of Rage, from which I have drawn heavily for this series, and I'm not going to pretend that I could tell this part of the story better than he does. Quote, Identifying himself as a member of the SLA wasn't Bill Harris's worst blunder that frantic day in Los Angeles. When the FBI searched the Volkswagen they had abandoned, they found a parking ticket issued three days earlier outside a house on 833 West 84th Street, where at that very moment, DeFreeze and the rest of the SLA were watching news broadcasts with mounting alarm. And with good reason. By 10 o'clock that night, FBI agents and LAPD officers were creeping into the neighborhood. Staying well back, they watched the house in silence for several hours, seeing no signs of activity. 
Finally, just before dawn on May 17th, they approached a neighbor who identified photos of the Harrises as people he had seen at the house at 8.33. By 8.50 a.m., police had the house surrounded, at which point the LAPD sergeant took out a bullhorn and ordered everyone inside to come out with their hands up. When no one answered, tear gas canisters were fired inside. Minutes later, SWAT teams crashed through the front and back doors. The house was empty. DeFreeze and the others had fled. They drove around for several hours, it appears, before stopping at about 4 a.m. It was then, at a small stucco house at 1466 East 54th Street, just four miles away, that a hard-partying 35-year-old named Christine Johnson answered a soft knock on her front door. She and a group of friends had been drinking wine and listening to music all night. Theirs was the only house on the block with the lights still on. Opening the door, Johnson and her friend Minnie Lewis found a stranger, DeFreeze. I saw your lights on, sisters, he said. My name is Sinke. I need your help. The name meant nothing to the two women. DeFreeze said he and his friends needed a place to stay for a few hours. He admitted sheepishly that police were looking for them, not an unusual circumstance in this neighborhood. He pulled out a hundred dollars and promised there would be no trouble. Johnson whispered for a moment with her friend, then took the money and said that they could stay for a little while. Side note, Christine Johnson's house is a five-minute drive from the People's Temple location in Los Angeles on the corner of Alvarado and Hoover. Several of the Temple's L.A. members lived within blocks of this place. Burrow continues, quote, At that moment, there were six people in the house. Johnson and Lewis, a parking lot attendant named Freddie Freeman, 17-year-old Brenda Daniels, and two sleeping children. Freeman helped the freeze unload the vans, which took 20 minutes. There were boxes packed with documents, a footlocker, sleeping bags, and, to Freeman's dismay, 19 guns, including four 30 caliber carbines, a Browning 30-06, and seven sawed-off shotguns. There were also 4,000 bullets, some of them in bandoliers. DeFreeze and Freeman lugged it all inside and stacked it in the kitchen. They hid the vans in an alley around the corner, then went to look at an apartment house where Freeman suggested they could find a permanent home. By the time DeFreeze returned, Johnson was having second thoughts about sharing their home with these odd strangers. Not only were Sinke's friends all white, they were white people with pistols jammed in their belts. They had watched in dismay as one of the girls, apparently Nancy Perry, filled several bottles with gasoline. An hour later, after sending Lewis's two children to school, Johnson and Lewis popped several pills, swigged a few last beers, and went to sleep. People, including a stream of preschool children, filed in and out of the house all morning. DeFreeze sent Brenda Daniels for groceries. One of Daniels' girlfriends came by for what she called a wake-up beer. Freeman's supervisor arrived to pick him up for work, but Freeman waved him off, figuring to make some money off Sinke and his strange white friends. At mid-morning, DeFreeze gave Freeman $450 and told him to go buy them a car. Through it all, he and his acolytes stood at the windows and shifts, taking turns grabbing naps. At the top of every hour, DeFreeze picked up the telephone and dialed one of the designated payphones, hoping to find Bill Harris. No one answered. It was growing hot. By noon... The sky, a brilliant blue, the temperature had risen into the 80s. As before, DeFreeze made no effort to hide who they were. He seemed to genuinely believe that because they were fighting in the name of black people, black people would support them, or at least would not alert the police. When asked, he said he had come to Los Angeles to start a revolution and to kill police. 
Told that the neighborhood was dominated by a local gang, the Crips, DeFries said that he hoped to meet some, pledging to make them right-on revolutionaries. Each of the visitors scurried back outside to spread the word that the SLA was at Christine Johnson's house. Up and down the street, people shook their heads in disbelief. Others whispered in their yards. Phones rang. The news spread. A 63-year-old grandfather named James Reed stopped by the house to drop off some collard greens. Two white girls wearing pistols smiled at him and said hi. The day stretched on. When Johnson finally stirred, beers and joints were passed. Around three, Minnie Lewis's children returned from school. One, an 11-year-old named Timmy, marveled at all the guns. Who are you? he asked to freeze. We're your mama's friends. No, you're not. I know all my mama's friends. DeFreeze told the boy to sit down. Suddenly, Timmy, apparently a more avid consumer of mass media than his mother, recognized him. Are you Donald DeFreeze? he asked. No. Timmy darted out the back door and ran toward his grandmother's house. DeFreeze kept watching the street. Something wasn't right. There were too many people around, too many police cruisers driving idly by. Johnson, now awake, still drunk, assured him that the police in the neighborhood were nothing new, but DeFreeze didn't like it. There was still no word from Hearst and the Harrises. He kept glancing at the street, wondering where Freddie Freeman had gone with his $450. He ought to be back by now, he kept saying. Another police car cruised past. We gotta get out of here, DeFreeze told Miss Moon. It's getting too hot. Why, she replied. It's hot everywhere. A few minutes later, trouble arrived. But not at all the kind DeFreeze had feared. An angry grandmother, Mary Carr, came storming through the front door, ignoring DeFreeze and the armed white people for a moment, found her daughter, Minnie Lewis, passed out on a bed. Is everybody here drunk? she demanded. The teenager, Brenda Daniels, took her elbow and whispered that there were two white women in the other bedroom, making bombs. This was too much for Mary Carr. She marched into the kitchen where DeFreeze had wandered, studiously avoiding her. You get out of this place right now, she hollered. DeFreeze mumbled something about black people sticking together. Mary Carr took her two grandchildren by the collar, stalked out the front door, and went in search of a policeman. She didn't have to look far. Hundreds of men in blue were already streaming into the area. The LAPD knew that they were close. A search of the house on West 84th Street produced a trove of evidence. Gas masks, a radio, three suitcases packed with clothing, a bag of medical supplies, one SLA member's poems. Now is the time. We're all alive, one couplet read. Eat it, pig! Neighbors described the two vans. Dozens of police cruisers began crisscrossing the area. And at 12.20 p.m., a pair of Metro Squad cops spotted the vans in an alley on East 53rd. Black, plain-clothed detectives began filtering into the surrounding streets. Neighbors did the rest. At 2 o'clock, one called the FBI to say that the SLA was hiding at 1462 East 54th Street next door. A caller to the LAPD phoned in an address on South Compton, around the corner. By 3, when a meeting of senior LAPD and FBI officials convened at the Newton Street station, the noose was tightening. By 4 o'clock... When police set up a command post in a tow truck office a few blocks down East 54th, four houses had been pinpointed. At 4.20, a perimeter was established. By 5, 127 FBI agents and more than 200 police cars, uh, police officers, including two SWAT teams, had surrounded the area. When Mary Carr found her way to the command post, the last piece fell into place. 
inside the house at 1466 East 54th, the freeze sensed it. The block was slowly draining of people. Minnie Lewis disappeared. Freddie Freeman never returned. The Harrises were nowhere to be found. Christine Johnson, an epileptic, collapsed in the kitchen and DeFreeze dragged her to a couch. When Brenda Daniels went for more groceries, police took her into custody. By 5.30, besides Johnson, the only occupants of the house other than the SLA were a neighbor named Clarence Ross, taking pulls from a pint bottle of whiskey, and Minnie Lewis's eight-year-old son, Tony, who was watching cartoons. At one point, a neighbor girl, curious to see the SLA, wandered into the house and told DeFreeze police were in the area. She followed him into the kitchen, where he drank from a jug of Boone's Farm wine. The end was near, DeFreeze said. He was ready. But we're going to take a lot of motherfucking pigs with us, he promised. Everyone knew what was coming. Even news reporters had arrived on the scene. One tried to interview a next-door neighbor, Maddie Morrison, who told him to get lost. Detectives crept up the houses, up and down the block, warning residents to leave or remain inside. Most ignored them, peering from their porches, waiting. By 5.40 p.m., the SWAT teams, 18 men in all, had hustled into place. One team splayed behind cars and bungalows in front of the house, and another on the block behind. At 5.54, their leader raised his bullhorn. Occupants of 1466 East 54th Street, this is the Los Angeles Police Department speaking. Come out with your hands up. Comply immediately and you will not be harmed. The house was still. After a pause, the announcement was repeated. Down the block, television crews raised their cameras, correspondents their microphones. The evening news was just minutes away. All three networks went to the scene live. The house remained silent. Behind it, a SWAT marksman could see a refrigerator being moved to blockade the back door. People, people in the yellow frame house with the stone porch... Address 1466 East 54th Street. This is the Los Angeles Police Department. Suddenly there was movement on the front porch. The front door! One of the police walkie-talkies squawked. Somebody's coming out! It was the eight-year-old, Tony, curious what all the noise was about. He hopped down the front steps, drifted toward the sidewalk, and froze, wide-eyed. Everywhere he looked were men with guns. Come this way! Over here! A SWAT team member called. Tony was a statue. A policeman scurried up, grabbed the boy, and carried him away in his arms. Tony began screaming, Mama! Mama! A minute later, Clarence Ross stepped out onto the front porch, hands clasped behind his head. He and Tony were led around the corner where SWAT leaders fired questions at them. Ross said little, but Tony gave a good description of DeFreeze, his people, and their weapons. As he did, the SWAT team in front of the house endlessly repeated its bullhorn announcements, eventually 18 times in all. With nightfall barely two hours away, the LAPD wanted to avoid an all-night siege in a tough neighborhood. They decided to bring matters to a head. At 5.53, nine minutes after the first warning, a pair of flight right rockets streaked from across the street, shattering a front window and exploding in Christine Johnson's living room. Wisps of tear gas could be seen wafting through the windows. From inside came the SLA's reply, a burst of machine gun fire from an M1. Bullets chattered against the side of an apartment house across the street. Up and down the block, officers rose and fired their weapons into the house. The entire neighborhood seemed to explode in gunfire. For five full minutes, bullets whizzed and ricocheted everywhere, all of it broadcast on live television. You can still go watch this video, by the way. 
Policemen ran to and fro. Everywhere, residents ducked, climbed out windows, and sprinted for cover. Dozens more tear gas canisters were fired into the house, 100 in all. Clouds of gas enveloped the house and the front yard. Then, at 6.40, after almost an hour of confusing gunfire, black smoke could be seen pouring from a rear window. Police would later theorize that one of their tear gas canisters had ignited the gasoline Nancy Perry had been pouring into bottles. Then, Christine Johnson wobbled into the front yard where police whisked her away. By then, the first flames could be seen. Cease fire! A SWAT leader barked. Cease fire! Another officer lifted his bullhorn. Come on out! The house is on fire, he announced. You will not be harmed! The only reply was a sustained burst of automatic weapon fire. The police opened fire again. Then, at 6.47, came a lull in the shooting. Police would later discover that DeFreeze and his soldiers had chopped a hole in the kitchen floor and wriggled into the 18-inch crawl space beneath the house. It was then, as the firing continued, that officers behind the house saw a tiny woman in combat fatigues emerge from a hole in the crawl space. It was Nancy Ling Perry, SLA nom de guerre Fahiza. She took a step forward and, spying SWAT officers in the alley, raised a pistol and fired. Police fired back. Two bullets struck her in the back, severing her spinal cord, and she fell dead. Camilla Hall, SLA nom de guerre Gabby, emerged from the crawl space, firing a pistol. A bullet struck her flush in the forehead, killing her. Officers watched as a pair of hands grabbed her ankles and dragged her back inside. By then, the house was engulfed in flames. Even then, the SLA kept firing from the crawl space. Finally, at 6.58, the roof began to collapse. The walls caved in. All that was left was an inferno. Black smoke billowing into the early evening sky, visible for miles. Three neighboring houses caught fire as well. All around, the police, the reporters, all of Los Angeles were spellbound. For several minutes, bullets and a pipe bomb or two could be heard exploding inside. A few minutes later, the first fire engines began to move in. The deadliest single day in the short history of America's radical underground was over. Six people were dead. Not a single lawman had been hurt. Later that night, when police began sifting through the rubble, they found DeFreeze, Ms. Moon, Soltisic, and Willie Wolf in a rear corner of the crawl space, burned to cinders, crushed, gas masks melted to their faces. Another female member lay nearby. Nancy Perry had been buried beneath a falling wall. Camilla Hall's body wasn't found for two days. But that was it. The one person the LAPD and all of America most wanted to find, Patty Hearst, was nowhere to be found, end quote. Now, during the same period that the SLA is operating and everybody's fixated on this, San Francisco is also gripped by widespread panic over what's come down as the, were called the zebra killings, which were a series of brutal, targeted, racially motivated murders by four black Muslims of at least nine men and six women. This is in 73 and 74. The killers turned their murders into a game. They would earn points for each person they killed. Another 10 people were wounded in attacks, including Art Agnos, a public official who would later become the mayor of San Francisco. Some researchers believe that the zebra killers had been operating since at least 1970 and may have actually killed over 70 people. When the men were finally captured in May 1974, the same month as this shootout, that put an end to the Symbionese Liberation Army, the Nation of Islam stepped up and defended them and paid for their lawyers. In 1973, just before this, the Algerian government 
had thrown the Black Panthers out of their embassy. The Black Power leader, H. Rap Brown, was in prison. The counterculture leader, Timothy Leary, was giving testimony against the Weather Underground. Eldridge Cleaver showed up in Paris and gave an interview to a reporter, and he told him that the revolution was over and that his side had lost. Huey Newton, the co-founder of the Black Panthers, he was a coke-addled shell of his former self by now, was arrested right at this time on murder charges for allegedly shooting to death a 17-year-old prostitute for calling him Baby, which, unbeknownst to her, was a childhood nickname that he hated. Prosecutors brought a trial twice that both ended up with deadlock juries. Newton was just too popular of a public figure for the state to put together a straight jury. And so prosecutors dropped the case, but they arrested him again later after more evidence emerged. And this time, after Huey posted his $80,000 bail, he fled the country to live in Cuba, where he was put up by Fidel Castro. He was bored and lonely in Cuba, though. And so he decided to return and face trial in 1977. And in the lead-up to the trial, three Panthers tried to assassinate the star witness, a woman named Crystal Gray, but they had gone to the wrong house, and the person who lived in that house opened fire on them and killed one of the Panther assassins. The other two ran away, fled to Las Vegas with the help of a Panther named Nelson Malloy, and later that year, Malloy was found shot and paralyzed from the waist down in a shallow grave in the desert after Panther higher-ups had ordered his death because he might be a witness to the attempted murder of Crystal Gray. The attempt put the scare into Gray, though, and from then on she refused to testify against Huey Newton for the murder of the 17-year-old prostitute, and the prosecutors did their best, and they got two more deadlock juries without her testimony, but in the end couldn't secure a conviction. And this was how the Black Power Movement ended. And it really was the end of anybody wanting to talk or hear about racial issues for a generation. I mean, really. Through the through the 80s and the 90s, you know, people did not respond well uh, when the 92 L.A. riots happened. And despite the outrage over what happened to Rodney King, you compare the way people responded then to the way, you know, much more responsive way that, 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 that people uh, have related to, uh, you know, the, the urban violence in the mid and late 2010s and in 2020. It's very, very different. People did not want to hear about it. By the time the 70s ended, you know, the Black Panthers had become a T-shirt. Bobby Seal, the other co-founder of the Panthers, he was selling Panther-themed barbecue sauce called Burn Baby Burn. And a prematurely aged Huey Newton was presiding as figurehead over a Panther-founded grade school in Oakland, which was dependent for its existence on funding from the fascist government that he'd spent so many years denouncing. The school itself... Um, it's called the Oakland Community School. It's actually a real achievement. Uh, continues to serve the community well today with a free food program and medical clinic that's named after George Jackson. But when Shiva Naipaul interviewed Huey Newton there in 1979, Huey had dropped any and all talk of revolution. He was very hesitant and circumspect when discussing the 1960s and the early 70s and everything that had happened. Over one window at the school, there was a large photograph of Huey from the good old days. He's dressed in the panther beret and leather jacket, and he's sitting erect on a cane throne holding a spear and staring at the camera like a man at war. But when Naipaul interviewed him, you know, he insisted that the panther's problems had 
all been mostly the result of misunderstandings and agent provocateur. And he said that all he wanted were some basic social democratic reforms that honestly could have been lifted from the moderate left of the Democratic Party platform. The revolution had been left behind. Huey Newton was murdered in 1989 by a member of a group called the Black Guerrilla Family, uh, which was a prison gang that mixed drug dealing with revolutionary rhetoric and had been started at San Quentin years earlier by George Jackson. The SLA story would lead to even more madness before it was over. Patty and the remaining members of the group checked into a motel room just in time to turn on the TV and see footage of police officers creeping toward the house in South Central. At first, they thought it was a recording from an earlier failed attempt to capture their friends, but it soon dawned on them that this was a live feed, and they just sat there on the couch and watched in horror as their friends were shot and burned to death. After that inferno, they wandered around from town to town with duffel bags full of guns, bickering over what to do, having sex with each other, waiting for their money to run out and accomplishing nothing. One of them said that she had an old friend that she thought could be trusted to help them out, and the friend, who turned out to be a fangirl of the SLA, agreed to be their above-ground helper. And so she helped them find some cover, uh, some new cover, and the group starts uh, releasing more revolutionary communiques. And they put one out announcing that the Symbionese Liberation uh, Army lived on, but that it had been renamed the New World Liberation Front, or NWLF. And pretty soon, there were bombs being exploded all over the Bay Area in the name of the NWLF, with communiques following them. There were 37 bombings in the nine months after the NWLF was announced. It's like one a week. Finally, in September of 75, Patty and the rest of the SLA members were tracked down and arrested. In Patty's trial was a months-long media spectacle. Her lawyers argued that she couldn't be held responsible for her actions because she'd been brainwashed. But people did not want to hear that excuse anymore. Even though, I mean, God, she'd been through a lot, right? But the society had really moved, and they had turned on all of this stuff so much that they did not want to hear it. And she was convicted, and she went to prison. Bay Area police officials announced to everybody that they could rest easy now. The SLA was behind bars, and so the NWLF bombings would come to a stop. But they didn't. The bombings continued. They were left at night to explode at electric company transformers, Air Force radar sites, TV stations, government buildings. One of them blew up at the home of a board member of the Safeway Stores Corporation. And the communiques that followed them were all over the map. They, they attacked slumlords, talked about conditions in jails, you know, announced support for unions during labor disputes. And these things came so often that an FBI agent called San Francisco the Belfast of North America. Although these bombings were obviously much less deadly. The authorities had no idea what's going on or who's behind these bombings. They came to believe that there were several teams working independently with nothing to do with one another who were just using, they were just inspired by the SLA and using the name of the NWLF to do this bombing. In November of 75, the NWLF introduced a new tactic, pouring liquid steel into the locks of some 500 parking meters in San Francisco. They began delivering their communiques in person through a 37-year-old weed dealer calling himself Jacques Rogiers, 
uh, but whose name was just Jack Rogers. He would pick up the communiques and deliver them. And he was uninvolved with the bombings. He was at least one person separated from the people who were, who were doing the bombings and vandalism. And so following him didn't get the police anywhere. And this went on for several years. There were at least 70 bombings in San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley. And one of them was left in a window box at the house of Senator Diane Feinstein, who was a San Francisco city supervisor at the time. More Transformers were targeted. Bombs went off in the bathroom of a women's jail. They were placed to explode under parked cars, including one under a Volvo owned by the San Francisco district attorney, who happened to be the boss of People's Temple lawyer Tim Stone. Another bomb was thrown at the house of city supervisor, city supervisor John Barbagalata, but missed its mark and blew up his neighbor's swing set. When Jacques Ragiers was finally brought up on conspiracy charges, the judge found that he had been acting as a journalist by delivering the communiques, and he was found not guilty, and the bombings just went on. The Marin County Courthouse was hit. The San Francisco Opera House was hit. It just went on and on. It turned out that the cops were right, that there were different groups operating independently under the NWLF name, but the majority of the significant actions turned out to have been carried out by just two people. Ronald Huffman and Maureen Minton were their names. And now Ronald Huffman uh, was a mentally deranged weed dealer living at his pot farm in the hills above Santa Cruz, California. Maureen Minton was his girlfriend daughter of lumber store owners who had graduated with honors from Berkeley in 1970, but got into the commune scene after college and ended up shacking up with Huffman, helping him care for his plants and volunteering part-time at Planned Parenthood. Huffman was known as an eccentric figure around Santa Cruz. People called him Revolutionary Ron. He had a dog named Che. And he and Minton had become inspired after watching the SLA burn up in LA, and they started using their spare time to build bombs and their story. If you think the SLA story didn't end well, these guys story did not end well either. It's kind of a, I guess it's kind of a theme quote Huffman. It is clear was never the most stable soul. According to a relative interviewed by prosecutors, he was prone to violent mood swings in the wake of the final NWLF bombing. There is considerable evidence that Huffman began losing his grip on reality. Feral dogs and coyotes roamed the area where he lived in those days, and Huffman became obsessed with them, calling them demon dogs, whose incessant howling was the voice of Satan. Psychiatrists would later debate whether Huffman was schizophrenic, drug-addled, or just a weird guy, but what's unavoidable is that over time the focus of his anger became his girlfriend, Maureen Minton. The couple had a worker named Dennis Morgan, who helped tend the marijuana farm. Morgan later told prosecutors that he became increasingly frightened of Huffman. According to Morgan, Huffman developed a long list of complaints against Minton. She hadn't watered the weed enough, or she'd watered it too much. She'd neglected to give Che his heartworm medicine. She didn't respect Huffman's grandfather. Huffman's lawyer would later claim that his client believed that Minton herself was possessed by demons. Minton told an aunt that, all demons aside, Huffman was incensed that she had had an abortion against his wishes. Morgan later swore that Huffman told him she was getting rid of Minton. Uh, Huffman told him he was getting rid of Minton and finding himself a new lady, one who would bear him children. Whatever the reason, there is little doubt as to what happened on a bright Sunday morning in September. Standing in their yard, Huffman ordered Minton to kneel before him. For some reason, he slid a draftsman's knife into her mouth. Then, 
Lifting a long-handled axe, he swung it viciously down onto her skull, all but splitting her head in two. Minton died instantly. Huffman then took a two-by-four and beat her body, hoping his attorney would later claim to knock the demons out of her corpse. Apparently unsatisfied, he took a scalpel and cut out a section of her brain. His attorney would insist that Huffman believe Minton's brain matter had magical powers. A few hours later, Huffman packed a suitcase and threw it in his car, along with $32,000 in cash, 10 bags of marijuana, a book, the greatest story ever told, and a paper sack containing a portion of Minton's brain. He drove down to the Pacific Coast Highway and turned north toward San Francisco. A few miles up the road, just past, past the beach at Greyhound Rock, he picked up a German hitchhiker, driving off so quickly that he left the young man's girlfriend in the road. Huffman, who appeared, who appeared highly agitated, was talking a mile a minute, and the poor German couldn't understand what he was saying. He pleaded with Huffman to stop the car, at which point Huffman produced a knife and started slashing at him. A struggle ensued, during which the car skidded to a stop outside the shortstop market in Half Moon Bay. The hitchhiker leaped from the car and raced toward a young man named Corey Baker, who was standing in the parking lot. Huffman emerged and began yelling something unintelligible. Baker approached him, noticing a strange, whitish-gray substance on his hands. He thought it was fish guts. It wasn't. He told Huffman to calm down and go wash his hands. Huffman responded by punching him, grabbing a fountain pen, and attempting to poke out his eyes. Baker ran. Huffman drove off. An hour later, a police car managed to force him off the road near the town of Pacifica. Huffman got out of the car, swearing and spitting, his eyes rolling back in his head. When an officer pulled his gun, Huffman held up his book and the bag of brains, as if to shield himself. Officers wrestled him to the ground. Later, when they visited the cottage, they found Minton's body, and Huffman was tossed into jail. End quote. So this is how things turn out. This is how the long story that started with brave marchers in Birmingham and the Berkeley free speech movement and progressed through the near revolution of 68, through the Panthers and Weather Underground, to the Black Liberation Army and the worship of black convicts by the white radicals, to the SLA and the NWLF. This is how that story goes as the 70s drag on. And by the end the scene is just hollowed out and gone and finished. Except for Jim Jones and People's Temple. They're still there. And not just there. They're bigger and richer and more influential than ever. Sort of the last man standing on the radical left. And for the black people in the ghettos of the cities where the temple operated... The old ladies and kids and single moms and guys who were the other 99% of black people who had had nothing to do with any of the violence and craziness of the last several years and were just trying to get through the day and build a normal life, the temple became more significant than ever as everything else that had risen up claiming to stand for them over the last decade fell down around their heads. But of course, unbeknownst to the people watching Jim preach, and heel on Sundays, Jim Jones himself was speeding at 100 miles an hour toward the same cliff that the rest of the radical left had barreled over. And underneath all the idiosyncrasies of the temple and of Jim himself, he was heading toward that cliff for much the same reason. By 1973, he was seeing enemies everywhere. Increasingly, the whole world 
was becoming an enemy. Psychologists sometimes call people with paranoid disorder, they say that they have a warfare personality at war with everyone and everything. Well, after the eight revolutionaries defected from the temple in 1973, more of them followed in 1974, including a married couple, Al and Jeannie Mills, who had left the temple after temple officials beat their daughter savagely at a meeting in front of dozens, maybe a hundred people, cheering on, screaming as it went on, hitting her over 70 times for allegedly becoming too close to a girl who was supposed to have been a lesbian. When they got out, the Mills changed their name because they had given power of attorney over their daughter to the temple. But they didn't just duck and hide. After the Mills left, they got in contact with other people who had left, and they tried to get in touch with people who were still in the temple that they thought might be persuadable. Began trying to organize against people's temple and to get the authorities finally to do something about what was going on. Well, Jim didn't know which way the attack was going to come from, but he knew it was going to come one way or another, and he had to prepare. Well, Jim had money, lots of it by now, millions and millions of dollars put away by now, and he had people at his disposal who would do whatever he said, which meant that he had options. But as first a few and then a few more members began to leak out of the temple, Jim wondered when the whole thing was going to come crashing down, when it would just accelerate and the spell would break and fall apart and those options might evaporate. The eight revolutionaries had all been involved in the Temple's college program, meaning that they had been spending a lot of time around non-Temple members and with each other, but away from the rest of the Temple. Jim was paranoid about this before. It became an obsession now because he had missed their potential for treason, even as it grew like a cancer right in the guts of the movement. And so he instructed his closest, most trustworthy advisors to start taking extraordinary actions to counter attempts at subversion and sabotage, which again, he was seeing everywhere now. They were expected to spy on people, use blackmail, harassment, even assault in defense of the church, all actions, of course, Jim said, that ran counter to his you know, moral preference, but which were necessary evils in time of war. And war is how Jim and his tight circle increasingly came to see their relationship with the outside. And when they were a ragtag community group, they imagined themselves with enemies that, that, that were fit for a ragtag community group. They were beset by racist hoodlums and maybe a local politician or two, but the scope of their enemies grew with their own ambition and self-regard until eventually they are imagining that the small but growing number of defectors and former temple members were allied with the FBI, the CIA, Interpol, all the forces arrayed against the global revolution, which more and more, as the others went down, people's temple imagined themselves to be the last remaining vestige the last ones manning the barricades as the forces of fascism had knocked down the others one by one. And you might imagine that somebody who imagined himself to be locked into mortal combat with a global evil wouldn't be bothered with average, everyday members who were not insiders deciding to leave his movement. But the opposite was true. I mean, Jim could not tolerate it. 
He could not tolerate the idea of anybody abandoning him. Partly that's because this is how cults operate. Partly it's because of Jim's personality. I mean, cults create a new world for their people. If you ask what's the difference between a cult and a religion, there's probably a lot of different answers that you could give, but one of them is that cults isolate their members. They cut them off from their, their, the, the people and the world that they knew before and isolate them. And for the fanatics, you know, fear of outsiders and a rigid, emotionally charged us versus them dynamic is enough to make that happen. But for the rest of the people, the people who are something less than a fanatic, enforcement is required. Enforcement by the fanatics. You know, members should be afraid to leave. And ideally, they're afraid of the outsiders. But if they're not, then they, then they, they should be afraid of us. Partly for their own good, but partly because treason begets more treason. Treason spreads. One person leaves, and you can denounce them as a traitor or a fascist all you want. But there's going to be one or two people who knew them pretty well, who know better. And now they see you lying about the person, and their gears start to turn, and so it spreads. You imagine a a castle under siege. You and your people are inside the walls, surrounded by an enemy army. And if one of your people on the inside starts going around, telling everybody else that, that this isn't a castle, it's a prison. And the army outside's not an enemy at all. It's a group of people trying to rescue us. It might be appropriate to hang that person for treason, if you really are under siege. Well, the, under siege is, is how Jim felt from 1973 on. And it just got worse and worse and more acute. And Jim tried everything, went to extreme lengths to prevent even non-insiders, just regular members from leaving the temple. A woman named Janelle Smart, she had only ever had one foot in the temple. She'd attend every other weekend or so when Jim would preach in Los Angeles, which is, which is where she was. She would skip the others. And pretty quickly she lost interest, but the temple was a good environment for her kids and her mother and uncle attended, and the kids would go with, with their grandmother, and so she would hang around the periphery of the church. She'd be at some of the potlucks and, and some of the events, and sometimes she'd show up to pick up the kids and you know after a service, and sometimes she would go to the services. But she was smart, and she knew how to work, and so they tried to suck her in. They tried to pull her in, and they asked her to be a part of the planning commission, and she accepted gave it a shot. And when she was in there, she got a a glimpse of the temple from the inside. She saw the struggle sessions and the corporal punishments. And she thought it was strange, but, you know, she was told that we know what we're doing. Every treatment is tailored to the individual. Every treatment has a purpose. One of Jim's most trusted henchmen, Tim Carter, uh, this is a guy who used to threaten defectors at their homes uh, for Jim, it's a guy who watched his wife and child die in Jonestown and then obeyed orders to carry Jim's bags full of money out of the camp to the Soviet embassy. He justified the abuse uh, long after the fact this way, quote, at least 80% of all problems in the temple were not even brought up in public meetings. Step one, if somebody screwed up, was counseling. Step two was more counseling. Step three, you were called up on the carpet Sometimes being called up in front of everybody, that humiliation worked where counseling didn't. I remember one boy, 11 or 12, had watched his father murder his mother. 
The kid was very antisocial. In fact, he was a bully. He got one-on-one counseling in the temple for years, just everything the temple knew how to do. And he was never brought up until one day in San Francisco he got a spanking, five whacks. And after that, he changed. The discipline worked where love hadn't. The kid only responded to fear, end quote. Another one of Jim's most loyal followers, Mike Prokes, excused the abuse by pointing out that the temple had to manage a collection of people who were often mentally ill or dangerous because they didn't turn anyone away and they didn't throw anyone out. So they had felons, sex offenders, drug addicts, people who were mentally handicapped or suffered from emotional or behavioral disorders. In a previous episode, I mentioned a member who had been caught molesting a temple child, a 10 year old boy. And so temple men held him down and beat his genitals on a table with a thick rubber hose until they were swollen up like black and purple grapefruits, and he was bedridden for a while. But they didn't kick that guy out. They just told him that if we catch you doing this again, it's going to be much, much worse. Because they didn't throw people out. They would have issued a death sentence themselves on one of their members before they turned one of their own over to the fascists. It's not like they had jails, and so they had to do what they had to do, and physical punishment was it. But Janelle Smart, in these planning commission meetings, whatever excuses they gave her about the purpose of all this, was soon witnessing behavior that could not be explained away as well-intentioned discipline. There was a sadism and a cruelty and an arbitrariness about it that you just couldn't escape as time went on. At PC meetings, Jim would often recline on a couch with blankets and pillows while the rest of the group was sitting on the hard floor around him like children. At these all-night meetings, 2, 3, 4 in the morning, next to him would be a table with juices and sodas, platters of fruits, cheeses, meats, and he would munch on them as these meetings just dragged on all night and nobody else has anything. Occasionally, he would have the platters passed around, but everybody quickly learned that they better decline the offer because... Not doing that was looked upon as selfish, and it was a guaranteed way to make sure that you were going to become the target of one of these struggle sessions. Other times he would sit up at an elevated podium like a judge, instructing and lecturing and and, and sometimes berating his people, directing the catharsis sessions, sometimes by subtle words and looks, and other times by just pointing people out and directing the group against them and amplifying the ferocity of the attack. And he would always make sure that someone's friends and relatives, the people closest to them, were the least restrained in their viciousness. And everybody knew that everybody else was watching for that. You know, if your wife or husband was pointed out to be the target of one of these struggle sessions, you not only had to participate, you had better be the one going at them the absolute hardest because if you didn't, everybody, that, that was going to become a thing. And now the two of you were going to be looked at as suspicious. Like maybe, maybe you're favoring each other over the rest of the group. You know, just imagine being it's 2, 3 in the morning. And you're in a room with 100 people. All the people you know. I mean, increasingly as time went on, and by this point this is already true, people don't hang out or, 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 or be around in a social context. Anybody who's not in the temple. And so these are all the people you know. These are these, these people are your whole life. And you're in this room and it's the middle of the night and 
these people are frothing at the mouth and screaming at you and beating you, physically attacking you. And your own husband is doing it, your own wife, your parents, you know, um, your kids are being brought out to make accusations against you. It was it was it was just an incredibly shockingly you know, dangerous and 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 uh, toxic environment. And as this is going on, it would always be Jim. This is this was a right that was he reserved for himself. He was the one that would swoop in as the savior. If anybody else dared say, you know, maybe we should take it easy, that it was on. They were gonna get, they were gonna get it. But Jim would come in and he would say, peace, peace, peace. Okay, it's been far enough. You know, I think this person is loyal. I know that they, I know that he loves me or she loves me. And he'd be so thankful because he ended this abuse. At one meeting at which Smart was present, Jim was complaining about the sexual demands that his followers were placing on him. And this would just, I mean, you know, by the time you get to the middle 70s, they spent 80% of their time talking about sex and who was having sex with Jim and him complaining about having to have sex with all you people. It was just a nonstop topic. And so he orders everybody in the room that he had had to sleep with recently to stand up. And out of about 100 people, at least 30 people get to their feet. And everybody else starts shouting at them and yelling at them for being so selfish with Jim's energy and how dare they. Don't they know that Father has to save his energy to to serve the people? And everybody's looking all sheepish. And then the attention of the crowd turns to this young woman who hadn't stood up. She had not had sex with Jim. And they start accusing her of wanting to have sex with Jim. And they start attacking her for being so selfish. And so Jim orders this 23-year-old woman to stand up. And she stands up. And he orders her to tell him and everybody in the room what it is that she thinks she has to offer him sexually. And she starts stuttering. She's incredibly embarrassed, of course. And he interrupts her and says, take off all your clothes. And so she takes off all her clothes and she's standing before the crowd completely naked. He makes her keep her hands at her side. She can't cover herself. She's turning beet red. And Jim starts telling the crowd how she's been coming on to him. And they all start laughing at her and insulting her and pointing out all the deficiencies on her body, all her blemishes, talking about how ugly and, and disgusting she is, laughing at her. And she's just beet red, exposed with her arms at her sides. And Jim just is piling on, mocking her. He says, if there's a list of people that I wouldn't touch in this place, you'd be on top of that list. And the crowd laughs at her and launches again, insulting her body and her looks and her selfishness. And Jim calls for silence. And he demands that the woman admit that she wants him to die. You want me to die, don't you? And so she denies that. And he verbally abuses her some more. And then he sits back and watches over the top of his sunglasses, chuckling as the crowd carries on abusing this woman for a while. And when she's been sufficiently humiliated and broken, Jim moves on to the next order of business, but he forces her to remain standing naked in the middle of the room as uh, there, there are kids in this place. You know, a lot of times at these planning commission meetings, people's little kids would, would attend these meetings. So you've got this, this is happening to this woman in front of everybody she knows, all of her friends, family, little kids, a whole, all these people just screaming, frothing at the mouth, wide eyed, abusing this woman like this. It's just it's it's it got this sadistic. And they just spent the next several hours afterwards discussing other issues while she had to stand there naked. 
And the young woman remained loyal to People's Temple and Jim Jones. Janelle Smart was there. She was disgusted by the incident, but she stuck around. She stuck around until the day when the crowd turned on her. Her husband had been a member of the church, but had stopped attending, and so naturally was looked upon with suspicion. And at this PC meeting, somebody alleged that he, Smart's husband, had tapped Jim Jones' phone and that she, Janelle Smart, must have known about it. I, I mean, utter absurdity. These are regular people. They're not tapping Jim Jones' phone. But the crowd turns its focus on her and, and, and starts screaming and going insane. And she breaks down crying and she says, I've had enough of this. I want out. And so Jim says, well, you can go. Uh, but your mother and your uncle aren't going anywhere. Um, they're, they're still members. And so you're going to have to move at least 100 miles away so that you're not going to negatively influence them or your four children who are also going to remain in the temple uh, with your mother. And she said, I've lived in L.A. my entire life. I can't leave. I, everything's here. I, I can't leave L.A. And so Jim says, okay, I'll give you another option. You can leave if you sign over custody of your four kids to People's Temple so that we know you're not going to try to ruin these kids' lives by, by, by taking them away from, from their real family. And so Smart says that she figures in the heat of the moment. There. I mean, again, like remember, you got to remember, it's the middle of the night. She's in a room with these hundred people who she has seen beat people to a pulp, right? And this is the kind of pressure she's under. And she says she figures something like that's never going to hold up in court anyway. Her three minor children all lived with their father, uh, whom she was divorced from, and her eldest was 19. And so she said, fine, sure, whatever, bring it out. And so they draw up this document, and she signs it. And then... Jim orders somebody to bring out a gun and somebody produces a pistol and they make Janelle smart, hold this pistol. And once it's covered with her fingerprints, it's placed in a bag and taken away. And she's told that if she ever takes any action against the temple or says anything bad about Jim Jones, then that gun is going to be used in a crime in order to frame her. And so Janelle smart, left the church, but her mother and her uncle and her four kids remained active. And she knew these people were crazy by this point, but this is, I mean, it's kind of terrifying for a single person, especially when your mother and uncle are still, are still loyal to this place. You're going to take all of these people on, you know what they're capable of, you know, and it's not like the craziness really seemed to leak out into the public activities with the regular members, which is where her kids, you know, the character, her kids were a part of the, the regular part of the church on Sundays and the, in the, in the youth events and the public events. And it didn't really seem to affect any of that. And her other option, you know, pulling them out and taking the church on was having these kids run the streets of LA and, and, and be in a totally different environment. And, and so she let them stay and she didn't fight it. And all six of them, her mom, her uncle, her four kids all died at Jonestown. Other members were required to demonstrate their loyalty by signing their names to the bottoms of blank pieces of paper, which could be filled in with confessions of you know vile acts later if they ever turned against the temple. And again, that might sound like a crazy thing to do. Why would you ever agree to sign your name to something like that? But again, you're in the middle of a meeting at 2 a.m. surrounded by 100 people who would immediately turn hostile if you refused, who you've seen beat the hell out of people. And anyway, this isn't really for you. You rationalize it, right? Yeah, I'll sign it, but 
this isn't really for me. I'm one of the loyal ones. It's for those other people. You know, those are the ones you have to worry about. Those, those, those ones that we don't see. You know, we never know who it is. And, and you never know what they might do to turn on the rest of us. So this actually protects me from their treason, right? As far as I know, nobody ever refused to do it. But still, there was only one way to make sure that people would never leave. And that was to make sure that leaving was impossible. The peril of power, comparable to Adolf Hitler, is evident today in America in every phase of its life. The atmosphere here is exactly like the atmosphere of Germany in 1933. said, I expect that a government like Adolf Hitler's will happen here within the next five years. The scapegoat this time will be blacks, Mexicans, and Indians. As you know, Hitler murdered all of the Jews before he finished. Now that won't happen to us if you listen to me. We have plans that are laid. We have plans that are absolutely workable but it's going to take more cooperation than we now get. You're going to have to make this your chief commitment. So all the provisions we got up there in the valley would be wonderful, but if we have a dictatorship, the valley isn't enough protection against a dictatorship. So we've got to have little place here and little Shangri-La over there, you know, over there. Some of you don't know where over there is, but I do, and that's good enough for you if you know me. I do. I know a place where I can take you, where there'll be no more racism, where there'll be no more division, where there'll be no more class exploitation. I know just the place. Oh, yes, I do. And you won't have to, and you won't have to worry about getting angel wings if we get our own plane. And we'd have something to bring in that would be valuable to us if we resettled. So you really do think we might have to resettle? The Jews should have. And they just held on. They held on. They wouldn't let loose. They thought, oh, it can't happen to us. We're God's chosen people. Well, we niggers know we ain't God's chosen people. Jim had had the idea to escape to South America, banging around in his head since the early 60s, since he had visited Guyana and Brazil during that period. And since then, the temple had discussed building an agricultural settlement somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, as a refuge from nuclear war for some time. In 1974, with his paranoid sense of being under siege spiking, Jim decided that now was the time to put those plans into action. And they settled on Guyana, a country on the right shoulder of South America because it had a black nationalist and socialist government and because its national language was English, a legacy of its history as a British colony, and because Guyana had been open to settlers for years. 
and had been trying to develop the jungle interior, especially a disputed chunk of land up near the Venezuelan border. And the Guyanese government figured having a group of Americans up there would be a good way to prevent the Venezuelan army from rolling through. Guyana, it's in South America. I've only spent a good amount of time and gotten to know one guy who who grew up in Guyana, spent most of his life there. Uh, But it was enough to drive home the point that you get from reading about it, that even though it's in South America, in South America, you know, most Americans think Latin America, Guyana is a Caribbean country. The guy that I knew was like any island boy you've ever met. And in some ways, Guyana is like an island. Most of the population, primarily Indians brought in by, from India by the British during colonization and black descendants of slaves brought in during the same period, they live snuggled up along the Caribbean coast and the vast majority of the rest of the country is a dense, ultra-dense, triple canopy jungle cut by about a million rivers and lightly inhabited by Amerindians who don't really, who, who, you know, to be honest, I don't really know if this is true now, but in the 70s didn't really figure into the country's political culture. And so while it's not technically an island, obviously, it's got ocean on one side and a pretty much impenetrable jungle, an ocean of jungle on the other side. And most people live in the area between the two, butted up against the beach. So it's got that island feel in certain ways. But that's not where Jim Jones was looking to build his colony. This wasn't going to be a this wasn't going to be a little beach village. Jonestown was going to be situated way out in that ocean of jungle. A 24-hour boat ride from the main Guyanese population center, Georgetown, along the coast and upriver, or else you could take a plane to a nearby airstrip that was nothing but a little path of cleared jungle and then be dragged by a tractor the rest of the way through the muddy jungle to the to the location. You could not drive there. You couldn't drive there. There were no roads to Jonestown. I mean, this place was going to be very, very remote, out among the Amerindians, and that was it. Guyana and People's Temple were a match in more ways than one. Like I said, they had been open to settlers from the outside for years, and... Believe it or not, the temple was not even the most bizarre outfit that had come from America to set up shop there in recent years. The Nobel Prize winning author V.S. Naipaul and his brother Shiva Naipaul were British Indians born in Trinidad, which is maybe, I don't know, maybe 150 miles or so up and just off the coast from Guyana. V.S. Naipaul has, has several really, really necessary books on the Caribbean and South America. They're all worth reading. And Shiva... His brother uh, was also a very talented writer, only got off a few books before he had an early heart attack and and passed away. But one of them was called Journey to Nowhere. Uh, It was a book about Jonestown, and it's a really unique book about Jonestown. There's not really another one like it. Um, He wrote it shortly after the mass suicide. He he went down to, to, to Guyana to see the place and talk to people and investigate Guyana, a place that he had a lot of experience with anyway, uh, shortly after everything happened. And Naipaul believed that his country, Trinidad and Guyana, had been corrupted by influence from the American black power movement, which had radicalized the black populations of the English-speaking Caribbean and left behind an ideology of resentment and racial power long after the white oppressors had left. And the only people left to exercise that power on were the Indians. 
What did black power mean in the absence of white domination? We found out in parts of the Caribbean, in places like East Africa under Idi Amin, who was also in power and speaking the same language at this time, the same language specifically against the same people, actually. These are former British colonies in East Africa as well. Uganda was. So he's, he's, he's targeting the descendants of the Indians brought in by the British, virtually all of whom, in, in Uganda specifically, he either killed or exiled, even though they were the ones engaged in the bulk of the professional vocations that a country needs in order to continue functioning at a high level. The same thing happened in Guyana. This is from his book, um, Journey to Nowhere. Quote, It is hardly a cause for astonishment, given the history, beliefs, and practices of the People's Temple as we now know them to have been, that Jim Jones should have been drawn to Guyana. And it is equally unastonishing that the Guyana of Forbes Burnham, the black nationalist dictator of Guyana, given its history, beliefs, and, and practices, should have accepted him. Guyana, over recent years, has shown a predilection for welcoming, assisting, and sheltering strange people, a weakness springing from a peculiar sort of gangsterism that can contain within itself both corrupt cynicism of the highest order and ideological motivation. You're a stupid black man, Burnham is reported to have said to the architect who refused to inflate his estimates. That outburst reveals the complex nature of Burnhamite gangsterism. It is about being black and about being third world, as well as about being rich. It is a point of view. Within that point of view, criminality, nationalism, corruption, altruism of a kind can all coexist. What holds them together is the personality of the big black chief who operates, so to speak, by institutionalizing his manias, lusts, and fantasies. This makes him and his country, which is no more than a projection of his caprice, vulnerable to appropriate calls from the wild. When I visited in 1970, Guyana was being converted into something called a cooperative socialist republic. At the time, no one could say for certain what that was supposed to be, nor can anyone today. The only concrete effect seems to have been in the field of letter writing. Ministers and civil servants signed their communications, yours cooperatively. Burnham, whose moderation and coolie-baiting politics had so appealed to his American and British sponsors, now began to discard his moderation, but not his racism, and pose as a third-world militant. Photographs started to appear of the comrade leader, as he now liked to be called, dressed in Chinese-influenced tunics and African dashikis. At some point, he had himself created a general, necessitating a further addition to his growing wardrobe. I noted that he attended a conference on non-aligned states in Lusaka, Zambia, offered Guyana as a home away from home for the African freedom fighters, and handed over a check of $50,000 to assist in the liberation struggle. And that was not all. In 1971, a dope dealer from Bermuda came to Guyana to drum up support for a so-called Black People's Congress. The government obliged with a handout. However, years later, the Black People's Congress is yet to take place. Then there was the man who claimed to be an Angolan freedom fighter. He was honored with Guyanese citizenship. It turned out that he was an American in flight from the police. Like the Bermudan, he was also involved in the dope trade. These were not isolated pieces of bad luck. The Bermudan and the pseudo-Angolan belonged to a common pattern of vaguely ideological misadventures. Consider a man named Michael de Freitas, otherwise known as Abdul Malik, otherwise known as Michael X. In London, he peddled dope and worked as a strong-arm man for a slum landlord. 
he became a convert to Islam and black power. Eventually, his rabble-rousing led to trouble with the English police. He fled home to Trinidad. In Trinidad, subsidized by his rich English patrons, he started an agricultural commune. It climaxed in murder. He was sentenced to death. Sitting in jail, Michael X was suckered by Tom Wicker of the New York Times, the New Statesman, and other foreign friends of the oppressed. According to the Angela Davis Defense Committee, Malik's only crime was his commitment to the world movement for peace and justice. It was absolutely necessary, they went on, that he be allowed to continue his work for peace, justice, and progress on behalf of all oppressed people in the world. Too often, those who ought to know better nourish our crazy dreams of resurrection and redemption. Those safely beyond the borders of our madness underwrite our lunacies. After he had committed murder on his Trinidad commune, it was to Guyana that Michael X had fled. There, he was met at the airport by a minister of government and given the red carpet treatment. The state-owned Chronicle published a photograph of the minister and his guest, gazing deeply into each other's eyes. Beneath the photograph was the caption, When Two Revolutionaries Meet. Less controversial, perhaps, but equally revealing of the mood of Guyanese hospitality was the visit of the American black power activist and theorist Stokely Carmichael. He had originally been invited to Guyana by a dissident group of academics and students, but they quickly dissociated themselves from him when they heard the sort of things he was saying. All the talk was of bloodshed and fighting, a member of the group said to me. He said black power meant African power. He said we had to learn how to kill. It was the wrong message for a place like Guyana. We had had enough of racial killing by then. Carmichael was not left either embarrassed or marooned by their hasty desertion. He was quickly picked up by the People's National Congress and, like Michael X, given the red carpet treatment by the Guyanese government. The New York Times, reporting from Georgetown, stated that there were at least four Americans wanted back at home for an assortment of crimes, rape, murder, armed robbery, blackmail, who were living in Guyana under government protection. One of these had been made a senior training official in one of the security services. But the most notorious of Prime Minister Burnham's criminal courtiers is a black preacher from Tennessee calling himself Rabbi Washington. Back home, where he is known as David Hill, he is wanted by police on charges of blackmail and violence. But in Guyana, where he surfaced in 1972, he is a figure of consequence. He has created around himself a religious sect, the House of Israel, which espouses a messianic doctrine of black redemption. His Guyanese followers adorned themselves in the colors of the ruling party, which also happened to be the national colors. They arrived by the busload to take part in government-sponsored rallies and parades. They helped to break up opposition meetings. In a sugar strike called by a union unfriendly to the government, they played the part of scab labor. The rabbi lives in considerable style. His benefactors have, in addition, provided his organization with two farms. The House of Israel calls itself Burnham's Church. It has even included him in its theology. The comrade leader is Moses. The rabbi is Aaron. There was nothing extraordinary, therefore, in the warm welcome extended by the Guyanese government to Jim Jones and to his people. Agricultural communes staffed by the disciples of various largely black American sects and cults were springing up all over the Guyanese interior. The People's Temple was not even the only agricultural commune in the Northwest. There was a similar agricultural project getting underway in 1974, not far from the nascent Jonestown. This other project, also staffed by Americans, was called Shalom. It was having financial problems and had made little progress in clearing and cultivating its tract. 
Shalom's residents seemed to be composed mainly of remnants from the hippie movement of the 1960s and were rumored to have been primarily engaged in cultivating marijuana. End quote. And so now, as, as Naipaul said, although Forbes Burnham had come to power in Guyana with the assistance of the CIA and British intelligence, who, in the context of the Cold War, thought that you know, this vaguely socialist black supremacist guy was preferable to his predecessor, an Indian and avowed Marxist named Chetty Yagan. By the early 1970s, Burnham had fully embraced this new revolutionary identity and totally consolidated power himself. And Guyana, in the meantime, declined precipitously under his rule. As a result of the corruption and mismanagement of his government, the country had gone in a very short time from a relatively prosperous and easygoing colony to a racially stratified economic basket case. When Shiva Naipaul arrived there as a journalist shortly after the end of the Jonestown story, as he's on his way there, on the airplane on the way there, he's told by a fellow traveler that he had better have brought plenty of his own cigarettes because he wasn't going to find any of them for sale in George, Georgetown, the capital. He also learned that sugar was in short supply all over the country, despite the whole country being everywhere planted with sugar cane because what sugar was produced was used to make rum or else exported for cash to pay for the government's internal security services. And what cash was left over from that went into the overseas bank accounts of the prime minister and his friends. Street crime and begging were general in Georgetown. Hospitals were always short of drugs, basic drugs and basic supplies. Fields went fallow because there were no parts to repair broken down tractors. And these opulent colonial mansions had been stripped of their expensive doorknobs and faucets and other fixtures. And the peeling paint and the sweltering heat contributed to this overall feeling of oppressive decay. Naipaul writes, quote, Despite the warnings of guards, I decided that I would walk back to my hotel alone. It was the middle of the afternoon, and it was hot. Georgetown and its inhabitants looked derelict. The shuttered shops were uninviting, starved of goods. Sullen black faces stared out of the doorways of rum shops and cafes. Others, gathered in small groups and patches of shade, watched me without friendliness. There was little traffic about. I was, rather foolishly, wearing a jacket and carrying a briefcase, two items that clearly marked me out for attention. That, as well as the heat and the humidity of the afternoon, made me regret my decision to walk, but there was not a taxi in sight. Racks of refuse floated in stagnant gutters. Smells of decay hung in the still air. Solitary beggars slept in the shadows of peeling buildings. I began to feel that the city itself was rotting away slowly in the suffocating heat. Walls were covered with faded referendum posters and scrawled in graffiti. Vote yes. End exploitation now. Burnham is king. We have Burnham fever. Away from the center of the city, I came to quieter, cleaner streets. Elegant, white-painted, wooden houses stood silent in bushy gardens. These colonial houses are the glory of Georgetown. Looking at them, I could see why it was once reputed a beautiful city. But now their elegance was faded, and many had been converted into offices of one kind or another, and their beauty was sad and elegiac, serving only to emphasize the sense of disintegration. 
The air freshened as I approached the sea. Families and courting couples strolled along the esplanade or sat on benches embedded in the concrete, facing into the salty wind and gazing into mud-laden breakers. Soon I was having my first glimpse of the Georgetown suburbs. For mile upon mile, the seawall was daubed with referendum slogans. Indeed, slogans and posters seemed to cover every available surface. Even, I noticed, cowsheds and the tops of water towers. One stood out. We will die for Burnham. That, I gathered, was the handiwork of dissident students who, in the dead of night, had been dragged out of their dormitories at gunpoint and brought to the seawall. The entire countryside had been defaced and disfigured. It defied comprehension. Each splash of blood-red paint seemed designed to obliterate a little more reason, a little more intelligence. Day and night, for weeks on end, some savage instinct had been at work. This vandalized landscape was its monument. I stared at flooded, wasted fields, at ragged boys tending ragged cattle, at broken-down houses and huts. To my left, the brown ocean, held at bay by the seawall, glinted and gleamed. End quote. Naipaul writes that as a result of this degradation, emigration from Guyana had become a stampede for the exits. This had happened in many of these post-colonial areas up in that area, in Suriname, for example. There's an old joke, possibly apocryphal, that he reports uh, that people would tell in Suriname uh, that there was a sign at the airport that said, the last one to leave, please shut off the lights. In just the last few recent years before he was writing this, over 50,000 people had left Guyana, but that's out of a total population of just 800,000. So it's a big chunk of the population. And the people who were leaving were typically the most educated and capable people. These were the people who could afford to you know, put their families on a plane and emigrate to another country. Workers went on strikes, but they were beaten, jailed, and sometimes worse by the prime minister's government thugs or often by his allies with the House of Israel. Rule of law was virtually non-existent, and people's only protection came from their status or connections to the government. Any last traces of political freedom had been wiped away by a fraudulent constitutional referendum pushed through by Burnham in the middle of the decade, which reduced the government to a mere organ of his party, and the party was itself a mere organ of his own will. Naipaul writes, quote, An old friend from school days was dejected and defeated. I've gone into internal exile, he said. We were sitting in a cafe that tried to do things nicely. It was furnished with bent wood chairs and decorated with Aubrey Beardsley posters. Across the way was the Queen's Park Savannah, a dark, unkempt presence. I think we're all a little mad now, he said. He wanted to go away, put his thoughts together, maybe write something, but he didn't have the money. He had reached a dead end and he was afraid for himself. During the last few years, he had been politically active. His party intellectual to a fault and moderate in its message, had had marginal impact. He had been left stranded with his idealism. I think of another friend, now approaching middle age. What is the world, he asked. He answered his own question. It is a mental construction. The world we perceive with our senses is not the only one there is, or even the most important one. It is an illusion. I listened as he talked about the many levels of being. 
I've experienced Krishna consciousness, he said. I know what it is to be dead. Death, too, is an illusion. His soft, mulatto eyes were clear and steady. Once, we used to have long discussions about Marxism, about the revolution that would transform the Caribbean. One day, he said, I was sitting in my garden when something like a nuclear explosion seemed to occur inside my head. There was light everywhere. No one could approach him. It was as if a magnetic force fenced him in, keeping people away. He stood for hours in his garden, bathed in light. Now, his wife gone, he lives alone. His house is gradually falling into ruin. Weeds sprout in the garden. Walls crake, flake, and crack. His books collect mold and dust. I am at peace, he said. And so at a certain point, as Naipaul's walking around, he picks up a local walking companion who offers to show him around and invites to take, uh, offers to take him to a golf tournament. And Naipaul's there as a journalist, so he's not going to turn down a local guide, and so the two men are walking together. I did not care for my companion. I was a little wary of the attentions he had been paying me during the last few days, offering to take me everywhere, obsequiously placing himself at my disposal. What he wanted in return was not yet clear. I had grown to dislike his narrow, shiny face, his pinched lips, his spiky, yellowing teeth. He was a businessman of some sort, entangled in a number of small-scale ventures, all of which I suspected were shady. His voice was simultaneously rasping and wheedling. Publicly, he was a vocal supporter of the government. Privately, he railed at it. Man, he said to me the first time we met, you have to have the ability to get on with all kinds. You scratch my back and I scratch yours. That's the only way. You understand me? You understand me? He jabbed me in the ribs. We all got to get our hands dirty, eh? You can't be a saint and get on in this Guyana of ours. We continued our walk to the golf course. You're paying the hotel in foreign currency, not so? He inquired. I looked at the narrow, bony face, at the spiky teeth bared in an obsequious half-smile. Why give all that good money to the gov government of Guyana, eh? It doesn't make sense. He jabbed me in the ribs. I should have thought of it before, but it's only this morning it hit me. I thought, poor bastard, how they must be ripping him off at the hotel. You understand me? You understand me? I understand. He glanced at me out, the, out of the corner of his eye, a caricature of petty crookedness. Reaching into his jacket pocket, he took out a fat roll of Guyanese dollar bills tied with a rubber band. He tossed it into my lap. I returned the money to him. I had to sign a currency declaration form when I came in. Sure, sure, but you didn't tell them the whole amount, I bet. He winked at me. I did. That won't make problems for you. If they try anything, just grease their palms a little, he laughed. How calmly he treated the prospect of my getting into difficulties. He tried again to give me the roll of bills. Again, I gave it back. Think about it. No. He replaced the money in his pocket, setting his face away from me. What upset me was not that he wanted my foreign currency. That was natural enough in a country like Guyana. It was the completeness of his corruption, his degeneracy. He was an exhalation of the moral decay that I could sense all around me. The society had robbed him of his humanity. It allowed virtually no one to be fully human. I remembered the passengers on the aircraft who had plundered the toilets. The man mirrored his country. We left the coast road, turning inland, Soon we were surrounded by sugarcane fields. Irrigation canals reflected the sky. The asphalt was crumbling and potholed. After about a mile or so, 
The paved road turned into an uneven dirt track. This was an Indian area and therefore even more neglected. In Guyana, lines of relatively neat brick houses and properly paved roads invariably signal a colony of government supporters. Half-naked children played in muddy ditches. Many of them would attend school irregularly, economic assets too valuable to squander. Old men reclined in hammocks slung under the houses. Women squatted in the muddy yards, scrubbing pots and pans. We moved slowly, gingerly negotiating the road's treacheries. Mangy dogs yapped in our wake. The golf course, a relic of the displaced planter regime, was set amidst the cane fields. Before the sugar estates were nationalized, the road leading to it had been well maintained. Since then, nature had been given a free hand. Mr. Burnham does not play golf, and its deterioration had been swift. Golf and those who played it had no place in a society that was moving inexorably toward socialism, went the party line. It seemed to be only a matter of time before the golf course, marooned in what had become a rural slum, followed the Georgetown Turf Club into extinction. The clubhouse was a modest wooden pavilion. Gathered here with their aging cars and their children, nearly all the children were infants, most of the older ones were safely abroad, were the remnants of the Guyanese middle class. Ruined people, in a ruined setting, seeking after pleasures which could no longer be found, pretending to enjoy themselves. End quote. It was an appropriate place for people's temple to go to die. The government was corrupt. Virtually anyone could be compromised. The prime minister was trying to carve out an identity as a revolutionary opposing the power of the United States, and since all power flowed from his person, all you had to do was keep that one guy happy. And since most of Jim's followers were black and he knew how to speak the language of the aspiring black revolutionaries running Guyana, he was confident that he could do that. Guyana in the 1970s resembled the crash landing site of the whole Third World Revolution. After it moved on from its demands for inclusion in the developed world in favor of a racial narcissism that recreated different versions of the caste systems that they'd escaped, and a racial entitlement that used paranoia and resentment to justify every variety of corruption and failure. This was the failed revolution after the storms of violence and white-hot emotions had faded, with people in charge who had ridden that emotional wave to power, who knew how to give a speech and thrust a fist in the air, but had no idea how to run a government, and, and no real intention of trying to learn. Naipaul and his brother who, again, were of Indian descent from people who were brought to the Caribbean to be a service class to the British colonizers, had watched the region change in a matter of a few years, and the change was often inspired by the United States. As black power ideology caught fire in the U.S., it spread to the English-speaking Caribbean, but in those countries there was no vast white power structure to raise your fist against. In Guyana, the population was about 40% black, and the rest were descendants of Indians, like the Naipauls, and then a handful of indigenous Amerindians, who, again, weren't, weren't really politically involved at the time. And so black power meant something very different over there than it meant in the United States, where you had white mobs blocking off voting booths in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama. And in these places, what it ended up meaning was black domination of the Indian population, and it often got very, very ugly, very violent. 
More often than not, the racial oppression taking place in these countries got financial and media support from places like the United States, where where you had people with a Pavlovian, you know, I mean, we're very, we're, we're, we're uh, we tend to be kind of solipsistic in the West and in the United States for sure, right? And these people, these these good liberals in the United States would have a Pavlovian positive reaction when they see a black leader shouting black power and denouncing colonialism, even though the colonizers had left and black power had come to mean oppression of the Indians. And it wasn't actually, it wasn't just the liberals in America. Like I said, Burnham came to power with the help of the CIA because a little country divided by racial strife was preferable to one united by a Marxist government. Well, given the poverty and corruption endemic to the country, no drawn-out explanation is needed to understand why the government of Guyana jumped at the chance to invite this flashy American promising to spend $2 million in initial investment to develop a contested region of their country. But even still, that's not the whole story. It was more than the big pocketbook Jim was waving around that helped get him legitimacy with the Guyanese government. He had, he had backup. He had help. California's lieutenant governor, Mervyn Dimely, an immigrant to the U.S. from Trinidad himself, went with Jim on a trip to Guyana, personally delivering a message that back in the United States, you know, this guy, Reverend Jones, very, very big deal, very important man. This endorsement from the lieutenant governor of a U.S. state with a GDP more than 400 times that of Guyana and a population more than 20 times that of Guyana, it carried weight. The fact that the lieutenant governor of California was willing to do something like that, get on a plane and go do that on behalf of Jim Jones, a demonstration of how much Jim's influence had grown. Since moving to San Francisco in 72, Jim had been uncharacteristically cautious as he felt his way into the Bay Area political scene. But by 1975, he was feeling confident enough to begin making plays. So when it became clear that Ronald Reagan, who was governor at the time, planned to move on from the governorship to national politics, he was getting ready to run for the Republican presidential nomination in, in 1976, Willie Brown, who was the governor of, or rather the mayor of San Francisco at the time, and a friend of Jim Jones, was the prohibitive favorite to replace Reagan as governor. And so the Bay Area's other rising Democratic stars, George Moscone and Dianne Feinstein, prepared to run for mayor of San Francisco. George Moscone won the primary, and in December, he had, December of 75, he had a runoff election coming up against the Republican candidate, and the race was expected to be very close. San Francisco is a very different city in 1975 than it is now. So it was expected to be close, and you know, local politics is a low turnout affair anyway. Even, even big city races are often decided by a few hundred or a few thousand votes. And you got this guy, Jim Jones, who's realizing that he commands an army of thousands of people who will show up to rallies, who will serve as campaign volunteers, and who will vote exactly as he tells them to do. And so a deal was cut, and the temple turned out hundreds of volunteers in the lead-up to the election. They were enthusiastic and photogenic at rallies. They would show up in buses on short notice. You got something coming up? You got an event? Or there's an, there's an event now, and, and not enough people showed up, and it doesn't look good for the cameras? Just give Jim a call. They would pour in on buses wherever and whenever 
their assigned slate of candidates needed them. And they would, and, and they looked good on TV and on, and on camera. It was because it was a deliberate mix of white, black, young, old, male, female, and they're all well-dressed and enthusiastic and carrying prepared signs. You had legions of temple members who were assigned to spend day and night writing thousands of letters a day by hand to registered voters to encourage them to vote for Moscone and other Democrats. In the days before the election, hundreds of temple volunteers we're going through black neighborhoods, putting flyers everywhere, knocking on doors and talking to people, taking down the names of anybody who might need help getting to a polling station. And on election day, the temple building was used as a staging area for Moscone campaign workers. And the temple's big fleet of Greyhound buses was rolled out to pick people up and drive them to the polls and then drop them back off at home when they'd done their civic duty. Moscone and Jim actually had one meeting where they went through voter information to find people who lived outside of San Francisco, even as far as Los Angeles, but who were still eligible for one reason or another to vote in San Francisco. And Jim sent several buses down to bring them up north to vote and then return them back to whatever city they lived in. I mean, if you're talking, when you're talking about local politics, you know, this isn't going to make a big, a, a big difference in a presidential election, but I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate uh, how 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 powerful this made somebody like Jim in city politics. This is from Jeff Gwynn. Quote, On December 11th, Moscone nipped the Republican by 51 to 49 percent, winning by the razor-thin margin of about 4,400 votes out of 198,741. That total almost matched the 207,647 total from the original election on May 4th, meaning that Barbara Galata, the Republican, had picked up a far greater share of votes from the other original candidates than did Moscone. Jones and the People's Temple tilted the balance in favor of Moscone. Both the mayor-elect and his defeated opponent knew it. Barbara Galata demanded a recount, which only gained him a few, more, a few dozen more votes. Afterward, Barbara Galata charged that members of the People's Temple, among other unregistered voters, had cast fraudulent ballots for Moscone and called for a thorough investigation. But Jones and the Temple had not only worked on behalf of Moscone, but for the successful election of Joseph Friedis as district attorney, too. Friedis and his staff, which soon included as a new hire, Temple, temple lawyer Tim Stone, duly investigated and reported no wrongdoing, but Stone, in his memoir, later said that there actually was no investigation. End quote. A San Francisco city attorney at the time named Ken Harrington, he was a guy who liked George Moscone. He was a supporter. Um, he described him as down-to-earth and the only mayor who would roll up his sleeves and just bullshit about a ball game, he said. So he liked him, but he's very direct about what happened. He says they stole the election. He agrees that the temple helped in legitimate ways, providing election day volunteers and so forth. But he said, the general thinking was that they got a bunch of people to vote who weren't proper electors in the city. That was the general consensus. And years later, former members admitted that the temple had fraudulently registered out-of-town members at addresses scattered throughout the city and then bust them in to vote for Moscone and the rest of the slate. Although Tim Stone denies that that happened. Um, but, you know. Uh, who knows? I mean, it would open him up to uh, to, to legal action uh, if, if it had happened. So uh, hard to say. In any case, Jim was feeling his oats now. 
as far as he was concerned, he, he had gotten the mayor of San Francisco elected as far as a lot of people were concerned. And so Jim expected appointments to positions in the city government, not only for himself, but for members of his church. And he felt jilted when those calls didn't come right away. Gray Stone remembered, we put 500 people on the street within an hour, leafleting for Moscone. We had money, we had numbers. And when Moscone won, we were in a planning commission meeting and Jim was livid because he hadn't gotten a call from him with a job. And it was like 2.30 in the morning. He says, get that guy on the phone right now. I say, but it's 2. I don't care if it's 2.30 in the morning. You get that guy on the phone. And so a short time later, they, and they did it. And a short time later, call, calling the new mayor of San Francisco at 2.30 in the morning to, to badger him about why he hasn't gotten a call about a job. But a short time later, he's appointed to San Francisco's Human Rights Commission. And when that didn't satisfy him, the mayor gave him a position on the board of the San Francisco Housing Authority. And that suited Jones just fine. The Housing Authority was the agency that oversaw all public housing projects in the city, which meant that Jim would be overseeing and exercising power over the temple's ripest recruiting grounds in the whole city. And the San Francisco political scene was not ready for Jim Jones. This is from Tim Reiterman. Quote, Before Jones's arrival, housing authority meetings had been dull, poorly attended affairs. After Jones, the meetings became spirited public rallies. Jones bust in his own cheering section. They applauded him wildly, no matter what he said. Whether it was a call to end corruption, a promise to improve the living conditions of the inner city poor, a vow to tighten the expense accounts of the agency staff. The meetings became so jammed by Jones' entourage that the sessions were moved across town to larger quarters. Though the agency had its own police, temple guards patrolled watching doorways roving through meetings. They even barred anyone from using the bathroom while Jones occupied it. Commissioner Jones worked with the same dedication he displayed in temple endeavors and soon became chairman of the body thanks to lobbying by Moscone's office. He came to his first meeting as chairman equipped with the Parliamentary Procedure Reference Book. The agenda and his own remarks were outlined with the meticulousness of a Tim Stone. Jones became a public voice for the rights of minorities and of the poor. He also built political and personal alliances from the highest levels of administration to a tenants organization. End quote. One of Jim's very closest political allies was Harvey Milk who was a rising star in Bay Area politics at the time. The two men became very close. Harvey Milk had once been a closeted gay Republican teaching high school math, but really came into his own. He was transformed by a long-term relationship that he had had with a teenage drug dealer and male prostitute named Joe Campbell, and in many ways found a kindred spirit in Jim Jones. Both men were not afraid to take aggressive stands on controversial issues and yet that tendency, that fearlessness that both of them had, part of it was because both men liked to fight, and both men had their demons. Milk is a revered figure, obviously, in LGBT politics for taking strong public stands at a time when that was not as easy to do as it is today, uh, but he led a very tumultuous personal life. When Milk was 33 years old, he began a live-in relationship with a 16-year-old runaway to whom he doubled as a sex partner and a sort of father figure. And it was, a sort of, it was sort of a pattern with him. The two were together for 
a very rocky five or six year relationship during which the boy abused drugs and alcohol and tried to commit suicide at least three times. One of the times Milk came home and found him and had to cut the rope that he had found the kid hanged with. The famous Broadway director of the the plays Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar, Tom O'Horgan, knew both of them. And he remembered their relationship. He said, Jack Galen McKinley, the kid's name, was like most of those little boys Harvey found. They were very dependent, looking for some kind of parent, and believed it could last forever. There was a pattern Harvey had of finding little waifs. He said that the kid's suicide attempts and emotional disturbances were also part of a pattern in Milk's relationships. He remembered one time that the boy tried to kill himself by jumping off of a wharf, and after he had been fished out of the water, Harvey Milk took him home and tied him up and threw him in a closet wet and muddy and just left him locked in there. After another suicide attempt, Harvey Milk brought the kid to the hospital where his previous lover, Joe Campbell, was still recuperating from his own suicide attempt. The author, Daniel Flynn, spoke to one gay man who knew Harvey Milk in San Francisco during this time. Quote, Harvey Milk was a total stud, remembers one gay man who left the periphery of Milk's social circle because of what he witnessed. It was his personality. He liked young boys. He liked to abuse young boys. He goes on, Harvey Milk was tenacious, says Bill Stevens, a contemporary and sometimes customer of Milk. He became an animal among young gay men. Running in social circles that overlapped with Milk's, Stevens had opportunities to witness Milk's behavior. Prior to Milk's first run for office, Stevens, Milk, and a group of friends descended on the Castro for a night of fun in the bustling gay bars. But Milk's companion, a delicate brunette boy that Stevens pegs at around 17 years of age, was refused service in the watering holes. The group split up. Harvey and his young friend went their way, and Stevens and the others went theirs. Early the following morning, Stevens glimpsed the boy balled up in Harvey Milk's doorway. Rough marks vandalized his soft face. I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, Stevens explains, but I can tell you exactly what happened that morning. He approached and comforted the teen. He was just crying like a baby, Stevens said. Around the face, maybe around the ear, he had some cuts. He was basically real shook up and crying like a baby. In my worst nightmare, I couldn't imagine anyone doing this to a sweet young thing like this. Intending to pick up coffee for himself, Stevens instead treated the boy to breakfast. He was a sweet kid, he remembers, a really sweet little kid. He was a small kid. As I recall, Harvey was six foot one, six foot two. He was older. Harvey was a very strong person. At breakfast, the youth composed himself enough to describe what had transpired. He was pretty upset, Stevens remembers. He said, I got beat up. He said he beat me up and he raped me. I didn't examine him or even say he should go to a doctor. I heard it. It was enough for me. End quote. And the author, Flynn, is careful to point out that Stevens never confronted Milk about this and didn't go to the police. And he says, in fairness, Stevens only got the boy's side of the story and didn't witness the encounter himself. Uh, but Stevens' story has remained the same over many tellings and many years. And it's been independently verified that he knew Milk and that people who knew Milk knew Stevens and they were running in the same circles. And Stevens himself... He has no doubt about what happened. He said it was certainly sexual in nature. 
Over and above that, you didn't need to be a male gynecologist to recognize that that wasn't the only thing it was about. He was assaulted on his face and his body. In August 1978, a little while later, two months before the Jonestown mass suicide, another one of Harvey Milk's lovers attempted suicide. This time successfully, Harvey Milk came back to the apartment that they shared late from a photo op and found the apartment strewn with empty cans of Coors beer, which was meant as a mockery because Milk had previously announced a boycott of Coors. And notes were scattered around mocking and accusing Milk of various things. This is what I think of your voter registration and you're a lousy lover, Harvey. You've always loved the circus, Harvey. What do you think of my last act? This dude is hanging in the apartment and you come home and you find that. I mean, this is a... You know, it's a, it's a it's a pretty traumatic and difficult thing. Other notes were hidden in places so that Harvey Milk would find them long after he cut down his lover's body from where it was hanging. Some were even found after Milk had moved out of the apartment. And Harvey Milk called two friends over to help him clean up the scene before the police were called in, burning and flushing the notes that they could find. And within days of the funeral, Harvey Milk was already in a relationship with somebody new. And within a few weeks, he moved that guy into the apartment where his previous boyfriend had just killed himself. And so Harvey Milk had demons. And Jim Jones knew very well how to communicate with demon-possessed people. The two became very close. Uh, They formed a political alliance when Milk was running to be the first openly gay elected official in San Francisco. And... The fact that you know his orientation was just a non-issue to Jim Jones, at a time when, you know, that perspective was was pretty rare. Their relationship went deeper than politics, though. You know, you know if if some people have speculated that Milk was a follower of Jim Jones, and that probably takes things a little bit too far, but uh, it seems like he was the next best thing. I mean, after attending one of the many temple services that he attended in 1976, Harvey Milk, who was Jewish by background and not a religious guy by any sense. Uh, he writes a letter to Jim Jones. The words are not good enough, but lacking the words themselves, I can only say in the fullest, deepest, and warmest meaning of the often overused expression, thank you. Thanks to you and each and every person who poured forth their warmth today. It may take me many a day to come back down from the high that I reached today. I was sorry that I had to leave after four short hours, but I had people waiting and I was so full of warmth that I did not feel bad in leaving before the sun had set. The life of a politician is not one that gives you a chance to stay in a situation that you enjoy for you must push on to other events, but I found something dear today. I found a sense of being that makes up for all the hours and energy placed in a fight. I found what you wanted me to find, and I shall be back, for I can never leave." And later that same year, he wrote Jim again. Our paths have crossed. They will stay crossed. It is a fight that I will walk with you into. Whenever I seem to get a little low, I get a. Co- whenever I seem to get a little low, I seem to get a copy of the People's Forum, the Temple newspaper. It gives me the strength to wake up and realize that one cannot get tired. There is no time for that. I shall not get tired. The first time I heard you, you made a statement. Take one of us and you must take all of us. Please add my name. And so Jim Jones called 1976 
his year of ascension. He was really, I mean, you know, the, the Los Angeles Times awarded him its Martin Luther King Jr. Humanitarian of the Year Award. I'm sure they'd like to take that one back. The prominent black community leader and very close ally of Jim, Dr. Carlton Goodlett, the two of them started up an import-export business together and kicked in to save the third oldest black newspaper in the country, the Norfolk Journal and Guide. The Temple purchased hundreds of memberships in the local branch of the NAACP and used them to elect Jim and one of his close followers to its board of directors. Once on an earlier trip out to Washington, D.C., after buses full of Temple members were finished viewing the Capitol building, they spread out and began cleaning up trash around the area. And, you know, Jim is savvy. One member posing as a local resident, calls up the Washington Post to report, hey, look, to report the scene. And so the paper sends a reporter down to record the incident and writes it up in the Washington Post. The hands-down winners of anybody's Tourists of the Year Award have got to be the 660 wonderful members of the People's Temple. The spirited group of travelers fanned out from their 13 buses and spent about an hour cleaning up the Capitol grounds. Another time, uh, the U.S. Representative George Brown entered praise for the temple and for Jim Jones personally into the congressional record after Jim donated several thousand dollars to a few California newspapers in the name of supporting freedom of the press. Tim Carter, uh, one of the former members, remembered that, quote, when Walter Mondale, uh, he was the politician, he would end up running for president against Reagan in 1984, when Walter Mondale came to San Francisco to campaign, Jim Jones rode with him in the limo from the airport to the rally downtown. When Rosalind Carter, wife of President Jimmy Carter, came, they were supposed to have this rally for her, and there were not very many people. And so they called up the temple and said, can you please get some people down here? We took four buses, two or three hundred people, and packed the place. That rally made national news for the warm and enthusiastic reception she received. That was pretty heady stuff for me, a kid from Burlingame who had ideas of changing the world. And Jim was a major draw at political rallies and events across the Bay Area and across California as well. And it's one of the things that makes this story so fascinating. When we remember cult disasters like the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, or the mass suicide of the Heaven's Gate cult in the 1990s, virtually nobody had ever heard of those people before they showed up on the news because they'd met their end. People knew who Jim Jones was. He was a big deal. This is a guy who could call mayors of big cities and celebrities and state politicians and get them on the phone and get meetings that day. He was owed favors by very important people. Tim Reiterman writes, quote, Jones had created a moving target, which with each stride added political armor. The vigorous activity in the 1975 election established the church as a factor in local politics, as a force within the black community, and as a potential ally for those with compatible political goals or the pragmatism not to care. With that momentum, Jones transformed potential enemies into a second line of defense, his image of respectability and power. Even those politicians disturbed by Jones' personality problems, militarism, or militantism, or manipulation did nothing. First, who would want to risk opposing a church doing such worthwhile work in the community? Second, who would want to offend a machine-like political organization with friends in such high places? 
Third, how could anyone speak against such a secretive organization with any certainty? Uncertainty, the psychological factor that kept some temple members from defecting, inhibited political figures too. Those with misgivings about the church kept them to themselves. Looking around, they saw only forces of the right speaking against the newfound political power of community groups such as People's Temple. With his constant chatter about the government, rightists, Nazis, fascists, and others being after him, Jones implied that anyone who challenged him would be in bad company. Most bases in San Francisco were, were covered neatly by 1976, Jones's self-proclaimed year of ascendancy. A favorable rapport was established with virtually all important public figures. Where could opponents, skeptics, or even victims turn if Jones had friends or admirers in the state legislature and the U.S. Congress, the offices of the governor, the mayor, the police chief, the sheriff, the district attorney, as well as on leading black newspapers and the largest daily city newspapers? End quote. This is one of the things that makes this story so fascinating and so different. When we remember cult disasters like the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, or the mass suicide of the Heaven's Gate cult in the 1990s, virtually nobody had ever heard of those people before they hit the news because they were meeting their end. People knew who Jim Jones was. He was a big deal. This guy could call mayors of major cities, state officials, celebrities, and get meetings that day. He was owed favored favors by very important people. And so it's hard to overstate the scope of Jim's ambitions in this brief period before everything fell apart. During his amphetamine-fueled fantasies, Jim would see himself, he thought of himself as a leader, a recognized leader of the world revolution. Everybody thinking of, you know, Lenin, Marx, Che Guevara, Jim Jones, thinking of himself being honored with state visits in the Soviet Union and, and in China. He saw himself as the quiet power behind the governor of California or maybe the president of the United States. You know, methamphetamine's a hell of a drug, but he had some reason to think that this might be possible. But all those fantasies were about to come to an end very abruptly. He managed to cow any hostile press since the San Francisco Examiner tried to do their hit job on him in 1972, but he had made himself an irresistible target by jumping out of the shadows into the cutthroat arena of big city politics. In that arena, you know, they wouldn't even have to be his enemies. People would gladly take his head off just to have some of the blood splash on people who supported him that they didn't like. This is a whole different ballgame. Jim was so used to getting away with everything he tried of gambling and hitting, gambling and hitting, just always finding a way to come out clean from every scrape with danger or controversy that it had warped his sense of, of what he could get away with, of his own importance to other people. And once you're in this game, the game of politics, it doesn't matter who you are. There's going to be somebody looking to take you out. That's why a little paranoia is appropriate in politics. But if you've already got a pathological penchant for paranoia, you are a disaster waiting to happen. Because when it inevitably comes, somebody does come after you, you're not going to be able to interpret that and respond like a rational person. 
couple years after this time I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, shortly after the Jonestown suicide, both Harvey Milk and George Moscone would both be murdered, assassinated in their offices by a city supervisor, a San Francisco city supervisor that the two of them had betrayed, a guy named Dan White. And I mean, you know, their betrayal wasn't anything, you know, particularly over the top in context. It was just bare knuckle politics. But Dan White was mentally and emotionally unstable. And he just, he, he was, just didn't realize the nature of the game he was in until it was too late. And he had already been slandered and had his name dragged through the mud by two colleagues with whom he thought he had a decent working relationship. And, and he lost it. Well, it's just a, I've been under an awful lot of pressure lately, financial pressure because of my job situation, uh, family pressure because of um, not being able to have the time of my family. <laughs> Can you relate these pressures to Dan at this time? 
Can you explain to this referee that's my fault? No, it's just that... Some of these people just charge me with taking money from big corporations and not recording it. I never did that. I never took money from anybody. But the papers believe it. My, my constituents believe it. They, they ask me about it. These people are, are irresponsible and bring these charges. Two months later, the district attorney says they're unfounded. But no one hears about it, that the charges are false. But my family suffers, and I suffer for phone calls we get. I could see the game that was being played, that were going to use me as a scapegoat. And whether I was a good supervisor or not, it's not the point. That this was a political opportunity, and they were going to denigrate me and my family. And the job that I tried to do, it more or less hanged me out to dry. And I saw more and more evidence of this during the week when papers reported that uh, someone else is going to be reappointed. I couldn't get through the mayor. The mayor never called me. He told me he was going to call me before he made any decision. He never did that. It was only on my my own initiative when I went down today to speak with him. I was troubled. But the pressure of my family again, my, my son's out to a babysitter. My wife's got to work. Long hours, 50 and 60 hours. Never seen my family. Can, can you tell Inspector reminds myself, what was your plan this morning? What did you have in mind? I didn't have any, any device plan or anything. It's, I was leaving the house to talk to see the mayor, and I went downstairs to, to make a phone call. And I had my gun down there. Is your police service involved in you? It gun I had when I was policeman. in my room. And I, I don't know, it, I just put it on. I, I don't know why I put it on, it's just... And then, and then I, I, I went to the, to the mayor's office. You know, I just was going to the mayor just to see if he was going to reappoint me. And if not, the reasons why. And I went in to see him. And he, and he told me he wasn't going to reappoint me. And he, and he wasn't going to intend to, to tell me about it. He had some, told me he had a press conference scheduled, and he was going to announce at the press conference. Didn't have even the courtesy to call me or tell me that I wasn't going to be reappointed. Then uh, I got kind of fuzzy and, and the, just my head didn't feel right. My, nothing was getting through to me. It was just like a blowing in my ears. And, and then it, it just it came to me, you know. And, you couldn't hear what he was saying. Yeah. Just, small talk that, you know, it just wasn't registered and what I was going to do now and, you know, and how this would affect my family and, you know, and, and just, just all the time knowing he's going to go out and, and lie to the press and, and tell him, you know, that, that I wasn't a good supervisor and, and that people didn't want me and, and then that was it. Then I, I just shot him.
politics was no place for a guy like that. And it was no place for a guy like Jim Jones. You know, his entire operation, his whole life depended on maintaining secrecy and making sure that the only face anybody ever saw was the one that he spent time in the mirror practicing. On some level, he knew this. You know, Reiterman writes that he was careful with reporters once he became the head of the housing authority. But again, years and years of meth abuse and cult worship will make you lose your perspective and understanding of how you look to other people. You would think that as an ambitious guy with a lot to hide, he should have known better than to turn his housing authority meetings into these big public spectacles, rolling into routine bureaucratic affairs with an armed entourage and packing the house with his cheering fans. But again, Jim kind of had good reason to believe that he could get away with anything. A San Francisco Chronicle reporter named Julie Smith remembers being assigned to check out Jim Jones around this time. Quote, I was sitting at my desk at the Chronicle and the assignment editor says, Miss Smith, we have a new housing commissioner and it looks as if he can heal the sick and possibly even raise the dead. Would you be interested? And I went, wow, that's just my kind of thing. How very San Francisco. I didn't know how I was going to write this, but I knew that I wanted to write about faith healing on the part of a city official. And so unbeknownst to Miss Smith, the temple had contacts at the Chronicle, and she soon found herself being spied on and followed around by temple staff. So she continues. So I make a phone call and say, can I interview you? Jones says, I want to get back to you. And the next day, floods of letters begin pouring into the newsroom before I ever even got another phone call. And I said to Steve Gavin, the city editor, something's funny. And Steve said, well, let's just see what you can get. Call around and see. So I called Bob Mendelson, Supervisor Robert Mendelson. I said, what's the deal, Bob? Every time I make a move, 10 people call the Chronicle and say how great Jones is. What's this all about? What's his significance to city politics? And Bob says, listen, Julie, Jones can mobilize 5,000 people out on the streets for any cause, any candidate. If you're a politician, this is a powerful thing. And if he's against something, he can do something about that, too. Everybody loves Jim Jones. This is a guy who gets things done. Five minutes later, after I hung up, you know, no time at all elapses, Bob Mendelson calls me back and says, you know, Julie, maybe you shouldn't quote me on that. So I asked him, well, why not? He says, I don't know. It may not be a good thing. And that kind of thing happened a lot. It was like everybody you called. Somehow, in ten minutes, you were getting a call from the church about it. And so what finally happened was, well, I was into, I was heavy into indoor plants at the time. At home, I had an awful lot of plants and I'd be in mud up to my elbows and the phone would ring and it would be Jones. His timing was impeccable because they were spying on me. And he would say, Julie, I'm so worried. I'm afraid you're going to say something terrible about us. And it's so important to our people. We do so much for them and there could be a backlash for them. Now, Smith says at the time she didn't know what he was talking about because she hadn't gotten any dirt on him or the organization, so she thought his paranoia was just strange. But she goes on. I finally got to go to the church, but before the service, they were showing me around, and I was taken to a tiny little room with no windows in it, and it was just full of hanging plants. Well, why would you have a little room like that filled with plants with no windows? It didn't make any sense. 
There was nothing in the room but a massage table. And all of a sudden, all the other people that were there melted away, and I was in the tiny room with Jones by myself. And he says to me, you know, my wife has back trouble, and I can't really have sex with her. What is going on here? I don't know if he was so insane that he was trying to imagine that I would suddenly say, whoa, Jim, baby, come to me right now, or what? But I got out of there. Nothing happened. There was a minor faith healing service that day, and I wrote the story. And Gavin would turn it back to me and say, well, can't we make this a little more objective? And I would say, what do you mean a little more objective? Well, he sent it back to me six or seven times, and Jones was calling me every five minutes saying, well, I've heard that you had to do another rewrite. I heard that you wrote a hatchet job. And so she finishes the story, finally, gets it past her direct editor, and she felt it was entirely too soft with all the meat cut out of it, but she took some solace in the fact that she had at least been able to explore a bit about the question of Jim's significance in city politics and had at least gotten in a few lines describing the faith healing. And so the article goes to press that night, and she wakes up the next morning and opens the paper and sees that even those two parts have been removed from her story after she'd sent it up past her editor. And she was never able to figure out which of the higher-ups had scrubbed the article or how it was that Jim Jones had enough juice with the editors of the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, this is a big paper to make something like that happen. And finally, she says uh, about the whole thing, kind of summarizing it. She says, quote, We underestimated Jones. He didn't really think like an adult. I mean, he called the mayor at 2 a.m. Where was everybody's judgment? I think a lot of people just thought he was a well-intentioned bozo. But for the record, I never for an instant thought he was well-intentioned. Bozo, yes, but from the first moment, he scared the hell out of me. And then she remembers something that, that she hadn't mentioned before to the interviewer. When Jones finally agreed to meet me, he had been sitting on a throne surrounded by about ten of his followers. And when he stood, the rest of them all stood in unison as if at a prearranged signal. And I swear to God, the hair on the back of my neck prickled, something that usually only happens when I see a spider. And that's the point at which I thought, something really wrong is going on here. It was just an amazing, scary thing to see. And she had put that in the story, but that part was cut out as well. And so Jim kind of had good reason to think he could just keep dodging these bullets forever. He was paranoid as hell. You know, he believed that the most powerful forces in the world were after him. But he thought that he was smart enough and lucky enough and maybe blessed enough to keep things on track. But that all started to change on July 4th, 1976, the Bicentennial, when Grace Stone fled People's Temple. And I haven't really done a decent enough job keeping you up on this, so I, I should provide a little refresher very quickly on where things stand with Jim and his personal life at this time. His family's grown since the last time I mentioned it. He's still married to Marceline, but their relationship is, I don't know, something like a king and queen married for political reasons. You know, they sit next to one another on the throne, and when there's a ceremony or anything, they do it together, and she wears the crown. But if the king has needs that he wants fulfilled, he has mistresses for that. He and Marceline have their one natural-born son, Stephen, who's now about 16 or 17 years old. 
and they have an adopted black son, Jim Jones Jr., who's about the same age. They have two other adopted kids, the Korean War orphans that they adopted in the late 50s, and another adopted daughter, a white girl named Agnes, who was a troubled girl and kind of out of the picture, mostly kept off to the side. And then there was another black boy named Johnny, who they now called their son but never officially adopted. Jim's primary mistress was still Carolyn, formerly Carolyn Layton, and the two of them also had a son, a boy named Kimo. For outward appearances, Carolyn got married to a church member named Mike Prokes, and officially the boy's name was Kimo Prokes, but everybody understood the situation, that it was Jim's son. In the mid-1970s, Jim took on another serious mistress that would be with him to the end, a a young girl named Maria Katsaris. Uh, as well as Carolyn's sister, Annie, although she had a slightly different role. And outside of those three, he slept with dozens and dozens of others, you know, whenever it struck his fancy, but didn't develop anything that persisted with them. And finally, there was Grace Stone, whose story we told in in an earlier episode. She had come into the temple with her boyfriend, then-husband, Tim Stone, when she was 18 years old. She didn't like it at first. She didn't like Jim at first. But she found some purpose in the temple, and eventually Jim grew on her enough that the two apparently became sex partners as well. When she got pregnant in the early 1970s, everybody believed that the baby boy was Jim Jones' son and Grace's husband, Tim, who had been estranged from her for some time by this point, signed an affidavit testifying that he had asked Jim Jones to sleep with and impregnate his wife, and that the boy, officially John Victor Stone, was the son of Jim Jones. Grace herself's always been reluctant to discuss the issue, but uh, there's no doubt that whatever the truth of the matter, Jim Jones for sure believed that the boy was his son and treated him like his son. And so Jim lost his mind when Grace left. One temple member who remained loyal to the movement even after the mass death, uh, she later said, I will never forget the night Grace Stone left the church as long as I live. Jim looked like the life and breath had been stolen from him. Grace was the woman that Jim had chosen to administer and be in charge of the San Francisco Temple headquarters. And she knew everything. And she was as deep inside the church as anyone. And she was the mother of his child, and she had fled without warning. I mean, it caught him completely off guard. But she had fled without the boy who had spent the last several years being raised collectively by the church. An emergency meeting of the planning commission was called, and Jim ranted and raved like a madman. Reiterman describes him behaving like a wounded animal. The people are all nodding along in sympathy with their leader and and in hatred for Greystone. But she was only 18 years old when she'd left the, uh, rather joined the church six years prior. And so her whole adult life really had been spent in there. And she was still too wrapped up to just make a clean break. So a few days after leaving, she called Jim from Nevada, wanting to explain to him why she had left and get some kind of closure and understanding. And Jim f- starts using that as an opportunity to manipulate her, plays the aggrieved party. He acts hurt. And since he still controls Grace's husband, Tim, who is loyal to Jim Jones like a dog, he also controlled Grace's access to her son, and he used that as well. He used it to extract some concessions from her. He got her to record a message, for example, claiming 
that she was only gone on a on a mission that he had assigned her just to give him time to think of how to handle this. But Jim's closest advisors knew the truth, and eventually everybody would. She was allowed, after a while, to speak to her son on the phone, but she couldn't get more than one-word answers from him and soon realized that he was being watched over and coached about what to say. After a while, she was allowed a few supervised short visits with him, and when she saw him, she realized that he was being turned against her. When she showed up for her first visit, the other children who were there all started crying and screaming. And her husband, Tim, was hostile to her for leaving. And one day, without her knowledge, but with her husband, Tim's permission, Grace's son, John Victor, was put on a plane and sent down to join the small but growing number of settlers in the Guyana jungle at Jonestown. Since coming to an agreement with the government of Guyana, the church had assigned a few dozen hard-working young men to go down there and clear the jungle and get ready to start building a settlement, and they'd been living down there. And they were making some progress, um, although just clearing the jungle is a very long process. And at this point, Jonestown is little more than a camp. But as it became a place where a few people could live, occasionally the church would send others down to help, especially young men, teenagers, who they wanted to get out of California for one reason or another. You know, if a teenager was getting into trouble, they would send him down to Jonestown to work with the men. But now they sent John Victor, who's four years old at this time. Tim Reiterman wrote that in an early November 1976 phone conversation with Tim, Grace learned that her son was in the promised land. He had been spirited off in October. Grace was numb with shock, stricken. Her voice became nearly inaudible. It made her sick, she said. She thought that she would die. But Grace was a fighter. You gotta give her that. She was not gonna go quietly into the night, as so many other people had. She was determined to have her son back, and the fight that she would take to Jim Jones, if you had to point to one thing, was probably the single proximate cause that brought People's Temple to its destruction. And Jim, for, for his part, was consumed by Grace's departure. He had people tracing her phone calls to her general location in Carson City and then going up there and driving around the city looking for her, calling dozens of businesses to see if she'd taken a job doing clerical work somewhere. I don't know what he would have done if he'd have found her. I mean, I, they may have kidnapped I have no idea. He tried everything to get her back. But at the same time, he's still, he's still Jim Jones. He's got other duties to the church and with the San Francisco Housing Authority. And as he's doing these things, these other duties, the emotional wear and tear and the stress is showing on him. After one housing authority meeting, Jim approached a San Francisco Chronicle reporter who was typically assigned to the, to the housing authority meetings, and he confronted the reporter and, and told him that he had heard that he didn't like Jim Jones. He thought he was eccentric, and he was trying to butter the guy up, but it was just making him suspicious. And this reporter, Marshall Kilduff, had been watching Jim for a while. I mean, how do you not? <laughs> You're assigned to this boring housing authority beat for the San Francisco Chronicle, and all of a sudden, this guy takes over. I mean, he'd been watching him, and he was interested. And so, and plus, he, he remembered the temple shutting down the San Francisco Examiner's 1972 story, and he didn't like that. And he knew Julie Smith personally, so he knew that story and how the temple had been able to control her reporting at his own paper, and he didn't like that. 
So Kildeff tells Jim that, you know, he doesn't know how Jim would know that he didn't like him or where he would have heard that. But in any case, if he did believe that, he wouldn't say those things publicly. And they kind of keep talking and Jim tells him, I feel like you don't trust me and kind of trying to intimidate him a little bit. But that's the opposite of what happened. Rather than intimidating Kildeff, Jim's attempt to do so really just convinced him for sure that I'm going to do a story on this guy. On a Sunday morning in January of 1977, Kilduff is given a tour of the San Francisco Temple with about 10 other people, and he soon realizes that all of the other people are temple plants, and all of them are asking leading questions just to give the tour guide an opportunity to praise the, the temple and talk about all their good work. He was the only actual person on the tour. Everybody else was there for his benefit. And this was on a Sunday morning before a service was scheduled, and they were the, the service was being held up, he realized. There were some 2,000 people waiting in the auditorium for this to finish. And he was brought out uh, you know, very ostentatiously in front of a bunch of people who knew that they had been kept waiting for this one guy. And as he's brought out, they point out to him that his own boss, the San, Fran San Francisco Chronicle City Editor, was seated among the congregation. So these people knew how to put on a show. When he asked the city editor the next day about doing a story on the temple, the guy gave him resistance. But by this point, Marshall Kildup was not going to back down. He was too curious about this preacher who seemed to hold half of San Francisco in thrall. And so he was resolved. He said, you know, later he was ready to do a, a story for a freelance magazine to publish it himself, whatever he had to do if his own paper wouldn't run it. And so he begins to investigate and he finds many people with strong negative opinions about the temple, but he can't get anybody to go on record. At housing authority meetings, the temple knows by this point that he's looking into him. And so temple spies are following him everywhere, placed around him at the meetings, making no pretension of what they're doing. They're, they're looking right over his shoulder and, and leaning over, staring at his notes and then copying them down openly. It became a running joke among the other reporters. They were going through his garbage at home. They were following him around after hours. The next issue of the People's Forum, the Temple Newsletter, warned of an approaching attempt to smear the Temple in the media, and subsequent issues began to prepare the information space to defend the Temple from whatever Kildiff was planning. Meanwhile, things were about to get much worse for Jim Jones, immeasurably worse. More members of the church were realizing that Grace Stone had fled for good, and other people were beginning to follow her out the door. There were rumors that some of the defectors, many of whom still had family members in the temple, were communicating with each other now, and that there were discussions of forming an organized group, a group with legal status, to lobby the government to take action against Jim and the temple. Jim and the others on temple staff began to suspect the loyalty of Grace's husband. They were estranged, but, but still, Tim Stone had grown sullen since Grace had fled, and Grace had become more aggressive in the budding fight over the custody of her son, and Jim believed that Tim Stone might be a weak link in that fight. And so he told Tim that since the courts are likely to favor the mother in a custody case, even one as unfit and horrible and blah 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 as Grace, 
Tim, the legal father of the child, might be faced with a court order to return the boy, and so the best way to head that off was to take Tim out of the picture altogether for a while. And so Tim was ordered to take a leave of absence from the district attorney's office and move to Guyana until otherwise directed, where he would oversee operations at the Jonestown camp and be a liaison to the Guyanese government. So Tim follows instructions, but the temple was right to suspect his loyalty. Before he left, Tim Stone had obtained a new passport, and he had asked his father to set up new private bank accounts for him out of state. Jim's spies intercepted a letter from Stone's father shortly after he left for Guyana talking about all this. And so down in Guyana, others were ordered to watch over Tim Stone, make sure he doesn't go anywhere. And Jim gets most of his close aides and flies down to Guyana to meet Tim face to face. And they stay down there for a few weeks. While they're there, Jim starts suffering from heart attacks nearly every night, you know, quote unquote heart attacks. And his aides are pleading with Tim Stone, look at all the stress you're causing him, you know, after everything he's done for you, look what you're doing to him. And they're, they're begging him, please recommit yourself to the cause. You don't kill Jim Jones. And Tim tells Jim that he's tired of the temple's rules. He's tired of the asceticism. He misses women and good music. And so Jim offers to buy the Holiday Inn on the island of Grenada and let Tim run that place as a socialist convention center. Whatever you want, just stay, stick around, don't go anywhere. And so Tim agrees. He bows out of pressure, I mean, out of weakness, really, rather than sincerity. But regardless of any doubts that Jim may have had about Tim, he had to be handled with kid gloves. I mean, he just knew too much, more than anyone, more than Jim even, about the temple's operations. And moreover, he's just irreplaceable as an administrator. The temple, uh, I mean, you just they couldn't live without him. One day, with all of his chief lieutenants in one place, Jim orders his staff to a meeting at the temple's new headquarters in the Guyanese capital. It's a house that they had uh, that they had rented to be their headquarters there. And Tim Reiterman writes, quote, In recent weeks, Jones said, he had decided to move the church yet again. The pressure in the United States was too much for him, or rather the prospect of what might be revealed was. One day about this time, he paced the house, obsessed with the Kilduff article, certain that it would be negative and destructive. Suddenly, he stopped his railing and turned to one of his Jonestown, Jonestown construction foremen. What do you think about moving a lot of people down here quickly? It's impossible, replied the foreman. We don't have the wood for housing. Pacing again, obviously irritated, Jones persisted. How many people could we accommodate now? About 150 to 200 people at the maximum, he explained, that the Jonestown crews had been hampered by the financial bureaucracy in the rainy season. Although to date only one permanent structure had been built, a dormitory, Jones pressed ahead with his plans to bring a 1,000 Americans to the jungle. From April 27th through May 1st, 1977, Jones and his top aides met for 16 to 20 hours a day in the master bedroom of the George Count headquarters. The other church leaders echoed the worries of their leader. They had agonized over the problem so much that they were becoming self-fulfilling prophecies. The only handwriting on the wall in May 1977 was their own. Marshall Kilduff had yet to locate a single damaging informant and had not even found a publication to print his story. That did not matter to Jones. He was a prophet. He had foreseen it all. Of course, no one suspected that the apparent machinations of the church's enemies were really plotted or at least invited 
by Jim Jones himself. In fact, the exodus to Guyana would follow in almost every detail an organizational blueprint drawn up four years earlier, prior even to acquisition of the Caribbean sanctuary. Jones's contagious paranoia, not enemies, was driving them out of the United States. The threats could have been survived, but through tactical blunders and overkill, temple leadership would aggravate their existing problems and create new ones. Though they fretted about government investigations, government agencies in reality were uninterested in them. The FBI, still smarting over disclosures of its anti-leftist campaigns in the 1960s, was not involved and would not be until it was too late. The Federal Communications Commission was monitoring Temple amateur radio transmissions, but only for minor infractions of amateur radio rules that could have easily been stopped. The IRS was only questioning whether the Temple's political activity exceeded its standards for tax-exempt organizations, and only after the Church wrote them repeatedly asking whether it was un under investigation. Fear of the unknown played upon Jones's fixations. He returned to San Francisco in a morose mood. The future looked grim. Of course, no one on the outside knew of the plans for an exodus, but by coincidence, the temple was asked a short time later to participate in a Golden Gate Bridge demonstration opposing suicide. The organizers called the rally to dramatize their objective, the installation of suicide barriers along the span to prevent people from climbing the low railing and jumping off. On Memorial Day, 1977, Jones and some 600 followers showed up at the Golden Gate, each wearing an armband bearing the name of one of the bridge's victims. With local news media and wire services looking on, Jones delivered a generalized appeal of concern for suicide victims. Then, abruptly, his tenor changed. Suddenly, he was the one being driven to the brink. Suicide is a symptom of an uncaring society, he said. The suicide is the victim of conditions which we cannot tolerate and, and, he paused, realizing that he had misspoken. I guess that was Freudian because I meant to say which he cannot tolerate, which overwhelm him, for which there is no recourse. Jones then became even more direct. I've been in a suicidal mood myself today for perhaps the first time in my life, so I have personal empathy for what we're doing here today. And then he ended with an abrupt, thank you, end quote. Very shortly after this, Tim Stone made his escape from People's Temple. And shortly after that, Marshall Kilduff's story ran in a San Francisco magazine. And the story itself was watered down and weak. There's nothing in it that could have really plausibly threatened Jim Jones or the Temple, but again, the Temple was its own worst enemy. As soon as it ran, they called in debts everywhere they could, and Rupert Murdoch, the owner of the magazine, begins receiving calls from prominent politicians and, and prominent citizens demanding that this article be taken down. Advertisers come under pressure to boycott the publication over it. The editorial offices are getting 50 phone calls, 70 letters a day complaining about it, and this article, which would have faded away almost certainly if they had just let it ride, now, word's starting to get around about the Temple's pressure campaign, and others are starting to pay attention. The San Francisco Examiner becomes interested in this story. Kilduff and another writer are assigned to look deeper into it, and with the increased profile about the pressure campaign, more and more people know about it, and now those two writers start to get phone calls themselves 
but this time from temple defectors who want to talk to them. Among the people they talked to were Al and Jeannie Mills, the couple who had left after their daughter was publicly beaten. And they also got calls from some of the eight revolutionaries who left in 73. And finally, they got a phone call from Gray Stone. On July 17th, 1977, that magazine reported that there was a break-in at its offices. And that actually turned out to be a misunderstanding. There was no break-in, but them reporting it and Jim seeing that and knowing that they hadn't done it, it convinced him that they're planning to slander him and that they will do anything possible to destroy the temple. And once he knew that the former members were working with them, people he considered traitors and enemies, the walls just started to close in on his mind. The night before the next story by Kilduff and his and his co-writer was scheduled to go to press, they called Jim Jones to discuss it and to read it to him, to see that uh, any any final input that he might have before it went to press. Jim's staff was gathered in his office as he was read the final product in full over the telephone, and they saw his face blank but draining of blood. As he realized that there was nothing he could do to stop this article from being published, he covered the mouthpiece of the phone with his hand and mouthed to his staff, Get ready. We are leaving. Now, if it seems like things escalated quickly here, it's not just my storytelling. They did. It's like Hemingway said about bankruptcy happening slowly at first and then all at once. You know, bankruptcy, when you're not talking about one individual who loses his job, but a company or or organization, often when it finally comes, people look back through the numbers and wonder, how did nobody see this coming? It was so obvious. How are things today so different from the way things were yesterday that now the whole house of cards suddenly collapses? There wasn't any big event that brought it about. But in the temple, everything depended on nobody taking a closer look at what was going on. And once Jim made the move into the political world, it was just a matter of time. I guess I I should catch you up on what's been happening at Jonestown. I haven't said much about it because up until this point, not a whole lot has been happening. That's a big part of why things went to hell so quickly after Jim Jones moved down there with everybody. From the time work had begun on the settlement in late 1974, early 75, the population of the place had been limited to a few dozen young pioneers guys who were cut out for the hard work of carving a future life out of this jungle. It was hard work. You know, they they were putting in 18-hour days, creating the outlines of this little village. But it was nice. It was hard work, but but, but it was nice. It was a happy place. Instead of rooster crows, monkey calls woke them up in the morning. And they talk about songbirds changing the mood as the sun went down. You know, they were deep in the jungle, again, obviously just way out there. And then they felt that, that isolation, but they liked it. You know, they were getting to know the Amerindians who lived along the river and in the jungle around the place. Sometimes they would bring them into the settlement, show them movies, and the Indians would make this alcoholic beverage they called jungle juice, and they would share that with them. You know, building this place was very hard work in a very difficult environment. Uh, But there was a great sense of camaraderie among the pioneers. And best of all, they got to work without supervision. 
you know, without the planning commission and the staff micromanaging everything that they were doing. After years of being in the temple and having that being the case, that was everyone's favorite part. After a day's work, they would hang out and sing songs, watch movies again. It would have been forbidden by the temple back home. There was at least one small child there, John Victor, uh, but they liked that too. He'd become kind of a little mascot to the pioneers. Every so often, there would be a few new arrivals, again, mostly teenage boys who were having trouble back in California and were sent down there to get off the streets and work with the men. Uh, but that was fine, too. The, 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 it, it, that experience almost always had a positive effect, and they got worked into the group you know, very, very easily. The whole mood changed very quickly around May 1977 when Jim was breaking down under the stress of the defections of Tim and Grace and the prospect of negative media attention was coming down the pipe. Suddenly, new settlers began arriving by the dozen, unannounced. The Jonestown construction crew would be ready to meet a boat on the Kaituma River to pick up supplies. You know, supplies could only be brought in by boat or plane. And surprise, there would be 10 or 12 new people who'd been sent to Jonestown. The builders hadn't been told or expecting it, so they hadn't been focusing on building more cottages for people to live in. They'd been putting their energy into infrastructure and common areas, so immediately housing the people became a problem. Now those projects, the infrastructure, had to be put on hold so that the builders could scramble to put up enough housing to hold the new arrivals, but every time they were about to catch up, another boat would come in with another batch of settlers. And worse, the new settlers weren't restricted to healthy men and teenage boys who could help with the work. Many of them were very old people who not only couldn't handle the work, but were having trouble handling the environment. And again, this is right on the equator in a, in a rainforest in the summer. <laughs> Many of them were very young children who not only couldn't work, but required constant supervision. And so it was becoming much more stressful very quickly uh, but the people did their best, you know, because the people who were coming were coming because they wanted to be there. They kept their spirits up and they had a good attitude. They did their best to pitch in. And so while things were somewhat more stressful, Jonestown uh, still was a pretty happy place. And then Jim and his staff arrived. And once that happened, Jonestown had seen its last happy day. The pioneers had expected to have a couple years to build up Jonestown. You know, we're not talking about setting up a town on the central coast of California. This is a rainforest, a real legit triple canopy rainforest with zero existing infrastructure, no nothing. I mean, just to create room to build anything, the men were using slash and burn just to, just to create space. It was expected to take several growing seasons, several planting seasons, just to test various crops in this jungle soil. Because these people aren't farmers. Just to test various crops to figure out what worked and what didn't and what was worth putting more energy into and in what ratios. And they were in the very early stages of that. The Guyanese government itself had expected that preliminary process to take at least five years. Everyone did their best, but, but, but they were not prepared for this influx. Children were often sent first because... That helped ensure that their parents would not back out, that they would follow. If there were couples who were going to be sent, they would usually not be sent on the same trip. Often they'd be sent months apart. 
often the women would be sent first for the same reason. It would, it would make sure that the other part of the couple didn't back out. And they were told that this was a tactic to avoid attracting attention from enemies. You know, the temple buses would be filled up with people and sent around the country, dropping them off at different airports so that they wouldn't tip anybody off with some mass exodus from California to Guyana as if anybody was watching. If anybody thought that this was strange, they went along with it. But, you know, that's the thing. Most people no longer found it strange. Most people believed Jim and the staff, basically, when they said that the government was after them. You know, I mean, that's easy enough to understand. Why wouldn't they believe that? They had seen, these are people who had seen assassinations. They had seen organizations that they that they believed in and approved of, like the Panthers, infiltrated and taken down. And by now, everybody knew about COINTELPRO and the Pentagon Papers. And so why wouldn't the government be dead set on taking down one of the last remaining serious civil rights organizations? Plus, people were excited to go. You know, they heard they were going to paradise. They're free for, for a while. They'd been shown these videos when Jim would go down there. You know, they would do things like uh, go to the markets in Georgetown and buy a whole bunch of fresh produce and then bring it to Jonestown and put it out all over tables and tell people that look at what we've grown in Jonestown. Meanwhile, almost nothing had been planted. People thought they were going to paradise. The people who had gone before them were sending back letters telling everybody how wonderful it was. And so you had old ladies who had never been on an airplane putting on their best clothes for the first and last airplane ride they would ever take to go down to Guyana. And it was a hell of a trip. Like I said, Guyana's a small country, very, very small country. But once you flew over there, it took another 24 hours to get to the settlement after the plane landed in Georgetown. After the flight, you boarded a boat, took a bumpy ride along the coast of the Kaituma River, and then up the river to a docking place near Jonestown. And it was a real transition. You know, you're talking about people who've never been out of the United States taking this trip. And as they're on the trip up this river, these these people who uh, had, had never been anywhere like this are staring out into this dense jungle, and they see, you know, naked Amerindians peeking out from the trees back at them. They see and hear animals that, you know, sounds that they've never heard. When you, when you, this trip over there really kind of gave them a sense of the isolation, you know, that they would be living in. When they arrived at the port on the river, a tractor waited for them at the dock and they loaded into a trailer and it hauled them through the jungle toward the settlement where the Jonestown Children's Choir was waiting to welcome them with a song that they all knew. And it was great. Everybody described this moment as great. Family and friends were there if they'd already shown up. And they rushed forward with smiles and hugs and welcome. We're so great to see you. Other people took their luggage off to their assigned living quarters for them. And after a 24-hour long, empty, hot boat ride, the people are exhausted. But they went along when the greeters insisted on an immediate tour of Jonestown. And when they finally got back to their bunk rooms to change clothes and get some rest, they found that their luggage had been searched and their passports had been taken. If they asked why, they were told that the passports were being stored in a central location to keep them dry for safekeeping, and that sounded reasonable enough. 
And anyway, most of the people who went to Jonestown, as far as they were concerned, they, they planned to stay there. This was their new life. And so what difference did it make? And they trusted their leaders. When Jim arrived, he asked again, how many people can we plausibly accommodate here if we absolutely had to immediately? And his people gave him the same answer, 150, 200 people max. And they meant 150 to 200 people who could work. But within just a couple months of Jim's flight from California, there would be about a thousand settlers in Jonestown, at least two thirds of them elderly people or children. Now, Jim had no experience with farming or with any of the skills or knowledge necessary to make something like Jonestown work, but he was sure that it was nothing that couldn't be overcome with discipline and hard work. And so when he and his staff arrived, they took control of everything. All freedom in Jonestown evaporated that day. Again, the pioneers had been used to working hard but freely, and now Jim and his inner circle were micromanaging not only every aspect of the work, but of daily life. They believed the temple was under attack in the United States, and the settlers had only a limited time to prepare Jonestown to be a defensible safe haven before the siege inevitably came to the jungle. From Jeff Gwynn, quote, No task was assigned, no crop planted, no tool purchased without Jones's approval. Those wanting to begin romantic relationships had to apply for permission first, and even if they received it, had to endure a probationary period before officially becoming a couple. Breakups had to be approved as well. All of the incoming mail was opened and read before being passed on to the intended recipient. Outgoing mail was censored. Jones insisted that letters from Jonestown contain only glowing descriptions of bucolic life. Unacceptable letters were returned to their writers with scribbled margin notes instructing them about what changes must be made. Jones's inner circle did the censoring, with Carolyn Layton and Maria Katsaris form forming a two-woman buffer between even these subordinates and Jones. Carolyn and Maria were Jones's only real intimates, carrying out his orders and guessing what he would want done on those occasions when he was indisposed. There were plenty of drugs ordered in Jonestown by camp physician Larry Schacht, and a fair amount of those found their way into Jones's possession as well. For everyone else in Jonestown, privacy was virtually non-existent. Cottages were overcrowded, with as many as eight, then ten, then a dozen or more occupants as newcomers kept coming in. Even with 16 holes each, the outhouses were constantly crowded. Real toilet paper was a rare extravagance. Scrap paper was most often used, and then leaves after paper became so scarce in Jonestown that every bit was needed for record-keeping and letters. There was limited water available in primitive showers. Workers, filthy from a day in the fields, had only two minutes to rinse off, and they were warned to keep their mouths closed while washing since the water was polluted. Jones had much nicer quarters and facilities. He lived with Carolyn, Maria, John Victor, and Chemo in a private cabin, with soft beds, a private latrine, and a generator that powered a refrigerator filled with drugs and soft drinks, as well as a floor fan. Jones's quarters were connected to a camp radio room. He didn't have to leave to make calls or broadcasts to the United States, and, if he chose, could even make camp announcements from the comfort of his home. End quote. One black man named Eugene Smith was one of the people who arrived to Jonestown months after his wife was already there. Eugene Smith had joined as a teenager with his mother, but he had become a man in the temple, and now he was married. And in a year before... 
the mass exodus, Eugene Smith was becoming alarmed by the, cra- the, the increasing craziness, the escalating brutality of the temple's physical punishments that he was seeing on people who broke rules. He remembers that people had always gotten punished for things, he says, but the discipline was beginning to go to what I considered overboard. Before, it might have been a little physical, been little physical punches or whatnot, but now people were being bloodied up and it was escalating. I'm not scared, but I'm getting really, really cautious. My wife, Ollie, is roughly three months pregnant, and I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do if they come after her? All of a sudden, they say, okay, Ollie, time for you to go to Jonestown. And I'm saying, hold it. No, 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 no. One of the counselors tells me, well, Eugene, you have to be strong. You don't want your child born over here in a capitalistic society, do you? Where they won't get a fair shake? And I'm thinking, well, no, I don't. But I don't want Ollie over there in the jungle without me. But see, they knew how to control me. If you have Ollie, you're controlling me. I don't care if it's fire right there. If Ollie's on the other side, I'll go through fire. That's just the way it was. I was her protector. Ollie was sent down there first. She was in Jonestown, and I was back in the States. I'm talking to Ollie, you know, via shortwave radio, and I want to see her so bad. I had to wait until the powers that be said that it was time for me to go. Eventually, it was time, and I was in one of the groups that drove the buses all the way across country and left from Florida to go to Guyana. And I brought this duffel bag full of cassettes. I knew I wasn't coming back to the States, so I taped classical, jazz, rhythm and blues, pop, any kind of music I could think of. I recorded everything, so I had hundreds of tapes. Now, the day I arrived in Jonestown, it was raining. It was monsoon season, and it was just raining its ass off. Ollie was nine months pregnant, about to have our baby, and I can't wait to get there. We come to the main gate, we're going down the main road, and I could hear the people a good mile away. I could hear him singing, right? And I'm getting amped. I was like, oh man, this is going to be so cool. As we come around the curve, I can see the pavilion 30 or 40 yards off. First thing that happens, they take the duffel bag with all my music and say, we're confiscating this. You might get them back after we see what's on them. Well, before I could respond, I see Ollie and I run up to her and I'm saying, oh, you're so big. You're so beautiful, you know. And I'm looking around, trying to take everything in. I see my mother. She's lost a lot of weight, but she looks really good. And Jones is up there in his seat. And I'm listening. And the music gets lower and lower. And the beat slows down. It's almost quiet. And the next thing I hear, we actually know exactly what he heard. Well, perhaps one of the most important announcements you have ever heard. I'm giving I'm you the free night that I just, I just authorized, authorized, spoken over this medium. medium. I urge, I however, however, that you do that not, you wander, not wander in any way, any way out of the out central, central area, area of the community, of the community. and keep a keep strict, a strict curfew, curfew after the after entertainment. entertainment. We have, we no, have question no question now, now that our ex-members are being funded funded. and our CIA connected. connected. But if you were to make the mistake mistake to assume assume that you you could go up to one of these people, people, they might might kill you. you. Do not not think that they would interpret you as a friend no matter what you said. said. 
They are highly paranoid, extremely vicious, filled with a raging hate because that's what comes from guilt. But do not make the mistake. There may be even hired mercenaries coming in also. So amongst those that you might think are former members that might take you in, any move would be sudden death if you move towards them. Eugene Smith remembers the feeling. My heart dropped. What is this? I'm holding on to Ollie really tight. And Jones says, the enemy's out there. They're out there just outside your eyesight. They want to take our children. They want to torture our children. They want to take our seniors. They're there to take us down. They're doing it because we slapped America in the face and we said we're going to create another America the way it should be. You're 200 miles into the dark jungle. My mind is spinning going, I'm so glad I'm here with Ollie. But at the same time, it's like, we got to get out of here. Now, Jonestown wouldn't have been a proper communist utopia without one major thing, unless its leaders blamed everything that went wrong on enemy infiltrators. Famines and production failures under Mao and Stalin were always attributed to bourgeois infiltrators and saboteurs who wanted to see the experiment fail out of greed or spite. It's a universal characteristic. In the name of the people, the wreckers have to be rooted out. But who are the wreckers? Who are the saboteurs? The wreckers are among the people. You know, this is, it's a recipe for permanently accelerating paranoia when you have a system that is faulty at its inception because its inborn flaws mean that there will always be failures and the people in charge can only interpret those failures as the result of attacks by enemies or infiltrators. As the failures cascade and pile up and the system comes closer and closer to total failure, the enemies thought to be responsible for all this, they grow into monsters of gigantic proportion. Jonestown was going to fail the moment Jim Jones moved a thousand people onto a piece of land that would only have sustainably supported a few hundred at most. And again, that assuming, assuming an experienced and healthy workforce with time to lay the groundwork for that kind of community to survive. Not maybe 250 or so working people trying to support another seven or 800. For example, Jim had hoped Jonestown could bring in income by selling excess crops at market in Jonestown or on contract to the Guyanese government. But the place was nowhere close to even being able to provide enough food for its own settlers themselves and never would be. Rather than having excess crops to raise money, the temple was spending money to import food just to keep people minimally fed. Monthly expenses for the 900-plus settlers ran about $600,000 a month. That's monthly expenses. The temple was collecting Social Security checks from the elderly people there, but that only offset about 40000 a month. With the bad press back home and Jim Jones away indefinitely, attendance at the San Francisco temple had collapsed to no more than 300. Jim's wife, Marceline, was there conducting the services and trying to hold things together, but weekly donations had all but dried up. The Los Angeles temple collapsed entirely, and the building was soon put up for sale, as was the property up in Redwood Valley in the north. The temple still had some income, 
from the state for its nursing homes and rehab centers, but this was drying up as well, and in any case, came nowhere close to closing the gap. Soon, the settlers were required to surrender all of their jewelry and all their extra clothing and any other valuables or saleable items that they had brought with them. The records don't give us much about anybody resisting this. You know, they all wanted to prove that they were good socialists and there was a lot of peer pressure. And anyway, what good were those things in the jungle? And now when new people showed up, it wasn't just their passports that were confiscated. Now surrendering any valuables they brought with them, that was part of the check-in process. And all of it was taken into Georgetown and sold in stalls or consignment shops. When some people failed to give up everything that they had brought with them and were discovered, they'd be called up in front of the group and grilled as potential bourgeois infiltrators. It is amazing how rapidly this transformation happens in societies like this, just regardless of scale, whether you're talking about the Soviet Union or Jonestown, in no time flat, from each according to their ability, donate to help the community to an old lady showing up to Jonestown, having her luggage searched and being patted down to make sure she wasn't concealing an old wedding ring that was the only thing she had to connect her to her dead husband. Some people were assigned to go door-to-door in Georgetown to beg for money, but before long, they had covered all the middle-class neighborhoods with little to show for it. The kids and the old folks were put to work manufacturing toys like cars and trains carved out of wood and these little dolls, and these were taken to Georgetown to be sold to tourists, and that raised a little bit of money, but as you can imagine, not much. Jonestown residents owned nothing more than the clothes on their backs and maybe one or two changes, but clothes deteriorated very quickly in the jungle especially on people doing hard labor. And so new clothes, especially socks and underwear, became another unexpected monthly expense. But food was always the biggest problem. From the time they got there to the time it all ended, from Jeff Gwynn, quote, Feeding a few dozen pioneers was relatively inexpensive. Providing over 900 settlers with three nourishing meals a day was prohibitive. Everyone wanted meat. Jones calculated that serving chicken or pork at a single Jonestown dinner cost $2,000. The old communal fallbacks of peanut butter sandwiches and oatmeal that worked back in the States weren't sufficient in the jungle, where so many adults and teens performed hard physical labor all day long. They needed lots of calories, protein in particular. Faced with crushing food costs, rice, which also had to be purchased rather than grown but was at least inexpensive, became the primary Jonestown staple. Soaked in watery gravy, dotted sparingly with specks of meat, it was included in most meals. Cassava flour, raised in the fields and ground in Jonestown's own mill, was prepared in various ways. There were chicken coops and a piggery, but it was hard to keep the chickens alive long enough to produce eggs. Beverages were limited too, usually water or a sweet powdered drink called Flavor Aid, which was cheaper than the better known Kool Aid. Desserts were virtually unknown during weekday meals. Once each weekend, though, Jones made a point of rewarding each follower with a single cookie, dramatically handed out by him as settlers filed past. End quote. Everyone was always hungry, and everyone was always tired. There was a PA system installed throughout the camp, and everyone was awakened at 6 a.m. every morning. And they were quickly pushed through a breakfast line and then sent off to work by 6.30 a.m. Most people worked out in the fields, 
or did other hard physical labor. Most of them were in the fields. Most of them were given a sack lunch so that they wouldn't have to waste work time returning for the noon meal. And they worked out in the sun for 12 hours until they got the call over the PA at 6 or 6.30 in the evening. And then from there, it was straight to a communal dinner in the central pavilion of rice and gravy, followed by a people's rally or a group meeting also in the pavilion. During these meetings, Jim would sit up on stage on a throne under a sign slightly misquoting Santayana, those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Jim and his close staff, who were always hopped up on amphetamine injections, they keep these meetings going for hours and hours and hours into the night. Lights Out was supposed to be at 11 p.m., but as weeks turned into months, the meetings almost always ran past that, although sometimes the kids and the old folks would be allowed to go to bed. They would just go on and on. And they resembled the planning commission meetings and struggle sessions often back in California, only now they involved hundreds more people who had never seen this side of the temple before. After the mass meeting was over, the group would break up into various committees for more meetings, and this would go on until 1, 2, 3 in the morning, every night. And then people were up with the loudspeaker at 6 a.m. the next morning to do it all over again. Sometimes during the day, the loudspeaker would play music as the people worked, but often it was taken over by Jim for rants and political lectures and other announcements. He would make recordings of himself to play over the PA when he had other things to do, recordings of him reading communist literature or reading and commenting on newspapers or magazine articles, ranting against their enemies, and it got to the point where you would wake up exhausted after three or four hours of sleep and eat breakfast hearing his voice. By now. For example, uh, and you'd walk out to your job hearing his voice. Is undoubtedly familiar. You'd work all day hearing his voice. Without revolutionary theory. He was there when you took your bathroom breaks. He was there when you ate your lunch and walked like a zombie back to the pavilion for dinner. And then finally, the PA system would be turned off so that you could hear him rant for six more hours into the night at the meeting. Back in California, Jim was, for most people, a distant, kind of mysterious figure. Most people saw him up in the pulpit, you know, to music and admiration, making a grand entrance, performing miracles and being feted by politicians and famous radicals. In Jonestown, he was everywhere, all the time, and in a much more candid state. When that happens, the mystique begins to drop off pretty quickly. Jim's son, Jim Jones Jr., who was 18 or 19 by this time, he was engaged to marry his girlfriend, Yvette. And around this time, Jim declared that Jim Jr. was going to go to Georgetown to be his liaison to the Guyanese government. And Jim was cool with that because he was going to get out of the jungle at least. Um, but then he wasn't so cool with it when he found out his fiance wasn't going to come with him. And he says, that began turning me against my dad. Then what really got me was, once after I went to Georgetown, I had to come back with somebody from the Guyanese government who wanted to do an inspection and also talk to Jim. We get there and no Jim. I go to his cottage and he's lying there, passed out from drugs. So here I am, 
dragging my father into the shower and standing in there with him, trying to get him in shape to go out and talk to this guest. This is from Jeff Gwynn, quote, In California, Jones was able to indulge himself without the knowledge of most followers. In Jonestown, it wasn't possible. Jones had more privacy than anyone else, but the confines of the camp made it impossible for settlers not to observe at least some of his carryings-on. The man who'd led them to believe he was a powerful god dripped with sweat, swelled from gluttony. Temple staff in San Francisco had to send new, larger shirts for Jones to disguise his bloated belly, and whined constantly about aches and pains. Now the great healer apparently couldn't even heal himself or anyone else. One elderly follower was diagnosed with inoperable cancer soon after arriving in Guyana. For decades, Jones had showily removed tumors from the apparently afflicted. In Jonestown, the cancer-stricken woman was simply made as comfortable as possible while she awaited death. Those still most believed in Jones as a leader, and as their spokesman against the racism, capitalism, and elitism that they all deplored, there was no longer, for most, any element of worship. In Jonestown, after a while, Jim Jones lost his divinity, Laura Johnston Cole says. Everyone saw too much. Often, they heard too much. Jones's cabin was connected by phone to the camp radio and loudspeaker system. When lying on his bed, not completely blacked out in a drug stupor, he would harangue the settlement and workers in the fields with incoherent barks and mumbling. One day, overwhelmed by hours of gibberish, radio operators in the communication shack switched off Jones's phone, and everyone basked in the blessed silence. Hello? Attention. Attention. Excuse the fact, please, that I've been up several nights and days fighting this horrible conspiracy with our wonderful attorney, Charles Gary. It's staggering to the imagination. Also, we're having some PA problems, but they'll be able to refine those out so you can hear the news in the library. I'm very sorry also that I have a laryngitic voice that makes for unpleasant listening. Anyway, the socialist revolution in all countries and under all countries, revolution in the countries and under the countries of all the countries and under the countries and under the, the very struggles and number of circumstances has the same political purpose has the same political purpose no matter what method they use anyway Guyana is standing back in the United States Tim and Gray Stone had found their way to the group of former members who were organizing against the temple and once they got there they got two things one they, they, they found a cause a wedge issue with Greystone's custody issue. And now they had a, just a, a real super weapon in Tim Stone. 
you know, all the energy and organizational ability that Tim Stone had used for Jim and for the temple for years were now turned against him. And Jim knew this was bad news. He knew what his former lawyer was capable of. Tim Stone was a very smart guy, very capable guy. And Jim was afraid of him. The defectors started an organization they called the Concerned Relatives. But for many of these people, the fight was much more personal. You know, People who come out of something like People's Temple, and this is true of other cults too, you see it as a pattern. And this isn't universally true of all the concerned relatives, but it's, but, but, but it's a pattern you see with many of them, and it holds, again, with, with other organizations. They're often looking for ways to rationalize and explain how they could have been sucked into something like this, how they could have put up with and done so many terrible things for so long. And you come out of a, a group like this, and you go back to your family, maybe people you've done terrible things to. These people very often were stealing money from their families. They were telling them they'd never speak to them again. And if the families tried to tried to pull them out of the church, they'd make accusations against them. You had people, you know, making uh, accusing their parents of child molestation just to force their parents to to back off. People who had been doing doing a, a lot of bad things and things that they now regret to a, to, a, to a great supreme degree, and now they're going back to that world and asking those people to take them back and to understand where they, where they were coming from. And they also have to salvage you know, some self-respect of their own. And one of the things that you see, and again, this isn't universally true, but it's mostly true of, of the people who came out of the temple, one of the things that really stands out when you listen to those who left the temple before the last day is that virtually none of them take any responsibility at all for their role in the disaster. The people who left were almost all part of the educated white inner circle, the people who had built the church and made all this possible. They were the ones with the families to go back to or money stashed away or a college education so that you know, they could get themselves a job again after being out of the market for a long time. And so they had a reason and a means to leave when things started getting difficult. For the old black people whose lives had been, you know, they came out of the Jim Crow South and ended up, you know, alone in an Oakland ghetto in their later years. Or or you were one of the people who, you know, an old lady who donated her house to the temple to take up in one of the temple communes. Or a single mother who was in the church because it was a decent environment for her kids. You know, the temple might not have been the paradise it was advertised to be, but in many ways it represented an improvement in their circumstances, or at least the hope for an improvement. And for them, very often leaving meant going back to some project apartment or going to live out their last years in a decrepit state hospital alone. If any of them had any property or assets, they donated it to the church on the promise that the temple was going to take care of them. So they had nothing. These people had no reason and no means to leave. And for the most part, they didn't. One way to summarize the story of People's Temple, and this is maybe too harsh, but it's a bunch of well-educated, middle-class, political radicals who lured a bunch of desperate black people into their movement by lying, cheating, and stealing 
and then set that movement on the course for an iceberg, and then many of them hopped into lifeboats and bailed before it hit. And when you see these people, and again, this is a, you know, look, maybe I'm being too judgmental here, and I have really tried hard throughout telling this story to, to keep away from, from this, from the feelings that crop up when I, when I, when I think about this part of the story. But when you see these people interviewed and read their books, they all play the victim. Like they weren't in those struggle sessions beating on people. Like they weren't rummaging through an old black lady's trash to find her medication bottle so that Jim could trick her into thinking he could perform miracles, which gave him the credibility needed so that when he said, follow me out into the jungle, she thought that was a good idea. Almost to a person. It's, oh, it was all Jim Jones. We were all just brainwashed. We were tricked. In fact, our problem is that we were too idealistic. That was our problem. We were just so invested in social justice that he was able to use that to manipulate us. As if that somehow explains lying to old women or beating children or screaming insults at a young woman when she's being stripped and humiliated in, in one of your meetings. You, you, you don't get a hint from most of these people of, you know, like, my God, what did we do here? What did we contribute to? And look, I get it. It would be hard. You know, it's much easier to convince yourself that an evil bad man took advantage of your good intentions. And once you've settled on that story, it's natural to get angry and want revenge. And that's the vibe you get from many of the people calling themselves the concerned relatives. And some of them did have relatives, and they were certainly concerned about them. And obviously, they were right about the nature of the temple, as they knew better than anyone. But they went hard. I mean, that's really the point of why I'm telling you this, is when they organized up and went at the temple, they went hard. The group hired lawyers and began lobbying politicians to take action against the temple. They engaged a private investigator to go down to Guyana and look into Jonestown. They began a coordinated media campaign to plant negative stories about the temple in the press. They sent their accusations of abuse to law enforcement and in some cases seemed to have embellished their accounts, which, you know, again, is understandable from one, one perspective. If you know the temple is dangerous and you can't get anybody to take action, maybe you say whatever you got to say to get someone to pay attention. They lobbied the IRS to take away the temple's religious tax exemption. They contacted the American Medical Association about decertifying the Jonestown physician who had gotten his medical degree from a Mexican university. They went to the Social Security Administration with accusations of fraud to get them to stop sending checks to the old people in Jonestown. They were even at times monitoring the temple's use of shortwave radio for any technical use violations that they could forward to the FCC. The assault was heavy. The San Francisco temple was on the radio every week with news of a new letter from the government or a court summons or a lawsuit. Jim was convinced that these former members had entered into league with the right-wing forces in the government to destroy the temple. And then in September 1977, the Jonestown radio room received word that Greystone had gotten a judge to order Jim Jones to return their son to her. And that Jim was not prepared to do. And Jim's crazy response to that order 
let the concerned relatives know that they had found an issue that they could use as an anvil to hammer the temple out of existence. Again, Jim Jones believed that this was his son. He did believe that, apparently. He was not going to compromise on this issue, and he believed that as long as the government of Guyana took his side, or at least didn't intervene, that the boy would be safe with him in Jonestown. The custody lawyer that had been retained by the Stones flew to Georgetown and appeared in a Guyanese courtroom, and a local judge in Georgetown issued an order for Jim to appear and make his case for why the boy shouldn't be sent back to the United States. And so Jim had several members of his inner circle write affidavits accusing Grace of being an unfit mother. I mean, everything you can think of, of, ab- of, a, of molesting her son, any, any crime you can think of. Several of those blank pieces of paper with the signatures of concerned relatives were filled in with heinous confessions and, and, and circulated. And Jim needed the total support of his people for this fight. And he told them that the seizure of John Victor, his boy, was just a trial balloon. And that once the precedent was established that children could be taken out of Jonestown on account of accusations against the leader, him, that all of their children would be vulnerable. At meetings, he read the phony confessions to the crowd to show them the nature of the people uh, that he was dealing with. His favorite line was always that the people who had left were so eaten up with guilt at having betrayed socialism and betrayed him personally that the only way they could cope with it was to transform that guilt into hate. And they needed to destroy Jonestown just so that it wasn't out there as a constant reminder of their betrayal. That was his favorite line. I think he believed that, actually. He used it so often. He told the people that their enemies were hiring mercenaries to kidnap their children and to assassinate him. Jim had his teenage son, Jim Jones Jr., stage an assassination attack on him. Jimmy hid in the jungle, and when Jim came out of his cottage one time, his son fired a few rifle shots in the air, and he had to hit the deck because his dad's bodyguards who didn't know what was going on started firing their shotguns in his direction. He would do this many times. And, you know, I know you think people should catch on. I know a lot of it sounds hokey and ridiculous from far away, but realize that to the people who are absorbed in the story, this is their daily reality. You know, they're not looking at it with any objectivity. They're in it. These are people who believed in him enough to follow him out there, and they're out in this remote jungle camp and he's telling you that there are enemies that want to destroy us and want him dead and from time to time there are gunshots coming from out in the jungle towards Jonestown and everybody in charge, the whole leadership's on the same page, they all seem alarmed by this they're all saying it came from enemies out there, You know, a real siege mentality developed in possession of the order from the Guyanese court, the Stone's lawyer flew out to Port Kaituma and made his way to the Jonestown gate to present Jim Jones with the order to appear. The guards wouldn't let him in, and they refused to accept the paperwork. And so Jim, radio, as this is going on, Jim radios Georgetown and tells his people there to contact the deputy prime minister, who so far had been very friendly to the temple, but they were told that he was away on business in the United States. And now... This is just you know an example of how out of control Jim's paranoia is, and the parano- the paranoid mind works the way conspiracy theories work. You know, take every piece of information and stitch it together into a story that always ends up at the worst possible outcome, justifying your fears. 
Jim believed that the only possible explanation for the appearance of the Stone's lawyer and the adverse ruling in the Georgetown court at the same time that the deputy prime minister was in the United States, well, it could only mean that the concerned relatives were now working with the CIA and other government agencies who were leaning on the Guyanese government to bring him down. And so on September 7th, one day before the Guyanese judge had ordered him to produce the boy in court, word goes around Jonestown that everybody's to drop their work immediately and come to the pavilion. Now, it's only 4.30 in the afternoon or so. It's two hours before the end of a typical workday, so people aren't asking any questions. They're just happy about that. But as they walked with the tools back to the center of the village, they begin to hear shouts and screams and see other people running back toward the center of camp, and pretty soon everybody's running. The people working out in the fields were the furthest ones away, and so when they finally got there, they got to the pavilion to find the old people and the kids who had already been in the village lined up in a loose formation, and they're all holding machetes and shovels and clubs and hatchets and butcher knives. And Jim's on the PA system screaming that the settlement's about to be attacked at any moment and everyone has to arm themselves immediately and prepare for, for an immediate fight. About two dozen of the young men are armed with rifles and pistols and crossbows and they're patrolling the lines, barking orders like drill sergeants. Jim orders one of his sons and another boy to take a duffel bag with gold bars in it out into the jungle and if the camp is overrun and all hope is lost and everybody's killed, they're to make their way to the Soviet embassy to donate that gold to the Russians as a final gesture to show the temple's commitment to the cause. They're given rifles and told to shoot anybody who tries to stop them. Jim comes out and addresses all his civilian soldiers. He tells them that well-armed mercenaries hired by the concerned relatives and assisted by the Guyanese military were surrounding Jonestown right at that moment as he spoke. And they were there to kidnap John Victor and other children, and they had orders to exterminate everyone in Jonestown if there was any resistance. So the people are deployed in squads out along the tree line. And, I mean, you got you got 70-year-old ladies out here holding shovels and hatchets, I mean, this is what we're, this is what's going on. And they're out there told to prepare for a hand to hand fight to the death with whatever comes. And so they get out in position and everybody just waits. And hours go by and the sun is going down. And after a full day's work, the people are exhausted. I mean, they were exhausted before. They're always exhausted. But Jim and his staff stay on them because the enemy's just out of sight, just waiting for an opportunity. Food and water passed around, and eventually the people have been out there as night falls for so long that some of the old people and children begin to fall out involuntarily. And so the community's broken up into shifts, and some people tried to get some rest while the others remained on watch. Jim and his staff didn't rest. Occasionally they would go back to his cottage radio room for injections of amphetamines and to talk with San Francisco or to try to get a hold of the Guyanese government in Georgetown. But hardly anybody was really able to rest. They believed Jim when he said an attack was imminent. They thought their camp was being surrounded by mercenaries who were coming to kidnap their children and kill them all. And if anybody didn't believe Jim, they believed others. Angela Davis, the famous radical hero to all Temple members, She called Jonestown during this episode by telephone 
and was patched in over the PA system so that everybody could hear what she said. Quote, This is Angela Davis. I would like to say to my friend Jim Jones and to all my sisters and brothers from People's Temple who are in Guyana there, know that there are people here, not only in the Bay Area, but across the country who are supporting you, who are with you. I can personally speak for the National Alliance Against Racism and Political Oppression in cities throughout the country. I know you are in a very difficult situation right now, and there is a conspiracy, a very profound conspiracy designed to destroy the contributions which you have made to our struggle. And this is why I must tell you that we feel we are under attack as well. When you are attacked, it is because of your progressive stand, and we feel that it is directly an attack against us as well. We will do everything in our power to ensure your ability to keep on struggling. We know that you are going to win, and in the final analysis, that we are all going to win. End quote. They got more calls from people like Black Panther founder Huey Newton, as well as from Eldridge Cleaver and others, all of them giving the same message, confirming Jim's paranoid claims. And again, if the people doubted Jim or his staff, these these calls were from people that they worshipped. These were, these were heroes to these people. They did not doubt the words of these famous radicals. And from that moment on, they knew for a fact that they were under threat from a vast international conspiracy willing to do anything to destroy them. Carolyn wrote a memo that read, To whom it may concern... Pragmatically, the issue of John Victor Stone is not an isolated custody case to us. We know that if John Stone were taken from the collective, it would be number one of a series of similar attempts. It was very much for the good of the collective that we decided as a group to make a stand on the John Stone issue. We will defend even to the death the, the John Stone issue. At a press conference called by Temple lawyer Charles Geary, the temple spoke by radio to reporters assembled in that lawyer's San Francisco office. My name is Harriet Trock. I have a law degree and I'm currently teaching at the Jonestown Community School. I have a statement to make on behalf of People's Temple in response to the grossly false and malicious statements that continue to be made about our community here in Guyana. Do you copy? Individuals participating in a self-styled group of concerned relatives have now publicly threatened to hire mercenaries to illegally enter Guyana and use whatever means necessary, including arms attack and kidnap, to capture members of the People's Temple community. Armed agents have already been sent in illegally and have tried to assassinate Jim Jones and others, as well as kidnap people. We are tired of seeing people and organizations that are trying to develop constructive alternatives to build cooperative lifestyles being harassed unmercifully, lied about, falsely accused of crimes, and in many cases brought down. In recent months alone, there have been several examples of this in the Bay Area. Do you still copy? Here in Guyana, we would like to address ourselves to a point that has been raised, it seems, about some statement supposedly issued officially by People's Temple, but whose authorship we here are unaware of, to the effect that we prefer to resist harassment and persecution even if it means death. Those 
who are lying and slandering our work here, it appears, are trying to use this statement against us. We are not surprised. Do you copy? However, it would seem that any person with any integrity or courage would have no trouble understanding such a position. Since it is clear that the persons who are actively plotting to destroy our organization have neither integrity nor courage, we are not at all surprised that they would find it offensive. Do you copy? Dr. Martin Luther King reaffirmed the validity of ultimate commitment when he told his Freedom Riders, quote, we must develop the quiet courage of dying for a cause, close quote. And then he later said, quote, though I hope no one will have to die as a result of our struggle, if anyone has to, let it be me. Do you copy? And we, likewise, affirm that before we will submit quietly to the interminable plotting and persecution of this politically motivated conspiracy, we will resist actively putting our lives on the line if it comes to that. Do you copy? They will very, very shortly. They will hear the statements from the people very shortly. I am almost finished. This has been the unanimous vote of the collective community here in Guyana. We choose as our model not those who march submissively into gas ovens, but the valiant heroes who resisted in the Warsaw Ghetto. Patrick Henry captured it when he said simply, give me liberty or give me death. If people cannot appreciate that willingness to die if necessary, rather than to compromise the right to exist, free from harassment, and the kind of indignities we have been subjected to, then they will never understand the integrity, the honesty, and the bravery of People's Temple, nor the depth of commitment of Jim Jones to the principles... The siege would drag on for six days. At night, armed squads patrolled the perimeter and people gathered in the pavilion for all-night meetings. Jim ranted and raved for hours at a time. He hadn't slept in days. and He was irrational, screaming about his enemies one minute, then breaking down in tears the next moment. And throughout most of this, he's holding a loaded handgun. He's waving it wildly over the heads of the assembled crowd, pointing it at people who are nodding off from lack of sleep, wondering aloud how many traitors are out there in the crowd, threatening to shoot them. Just remember, nothing worse than putting somebody in the corner when they've tried over and over and over to do righteousness and no one receives it. And you get them in a the corner... They're extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous, aren't they? And I think you can sense the hands of these people, that we are non-violent people, but we are extremely dangerous. Because we've been fed up with anarchy and fed up with rebellion and fed up with selfishness. Just remember, you don't have anything on me that I care about. Because everything that you have on me, I've let it all hang right out for everybody to see. Now you get to worry about yourself. I don't mind losing my life. What about you? I don't mind losing my reputation. What about you? I don't mind. I don't mind being tortured. 
what about you? I'm just no longer afraid and I've lost interest in this old world of capitalist sin and racism I've lost interest in it so if somebody wants to make me stay in it by compromising with filthy minded people that cannot even have respect for somebody that would die for even his enemies and they want to cause anarchy in our midst I would just as soon bring it all to a gallant of glorious screaming in Bring it to a screeching stop in a one glorious moment of triumph. So you think about it. You know what I'm talking about. Shift. Shift. But I'm glad. I'm awfully glad, for one thing, that we are not cursed with immortality. Now that would be one goddamn miserable thing if you uh, had to be assured that you could never die when they took you in prison. I don't care for myself, but for you, my babies, my darlings, you're all my children. I love with my soul and my mind, my heart, to the fullest capacity. More pure than anybody will ever love, probably in your time. I'm so glad that there's a point where you die. If they torture you, you go unconscious. That's a form of death. They can put you in shit up and, and drown you in it, but at some point you go unconscious into sleep and you don't feel it. They can electrocute you or they can do what they did to that man last night on that movie that was a real life movie and everybody should study it someplace if we live through this white night, which we likely will. That's why every nurse should report anybody that makes a big fuss about taking a shot or having something. When the doctor has to look in somebody's ac uh, asshole and they make a big fuss or in their vagina or he has to push on something and it hurts and they scream, that person ought to be reported because that person is a potential traitor. Now stand up if you can. Now listen, folks. You have to. God damn it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. I want people to stay alert during a war situation. It is our the democracy and everybody has to participate in what the hell's going on. You've got to think. You have a privilege to have land to fight for. You've got a privilege to have a cause to live for. You've got a privilege, even if it's necessary, to die for it. But by God, you ought to be re required to stay alert and alive on these nights. Now, I want people to circulate more. There's one woman here in the third row just sleeps all the time. Now, I want it stopped. Jim told the people over and over that if the settlement were penetrated, the adults would simply be exterminated and probably tortured to death, along with the older children, while the younger children would be taken back to the United States to be brainwashed. The people took turns announcing their willingness to fight to the death and sacrifice their children rather than see them raised as capitalist zombies. Coming in clean glasses. Vincent had something for me, which he got in in time. Jerry, the question would be, if the fascists were coming up the road right now and we were going to lay down our lives and fight for it, you say you would give your life for your child, but would you leave it for the fascists to have? What would you do in that case? Came to that, I would have to take her life. Fine. You understand that? You understand that? Will you... But she's, she's too old, she'd fight. 
How old is your child? Eleven. When she passed the age, we fight at eleven. It's under that that we consider that. She would take up a cutlass and fight till she was dead. Unless it came to an overwhelming invasion, then we would gently put them to, to sleep, which we have, where they never know what hit them. We are already prepared for that. A people who are really loving and a father who's genuinely compassionate is prepared for all such emergencies. So night fades into day and back into night until the people lose track. And one day, Jim announces that their situation has become impossible. They can no longer hold the camp and orders everybody transported to Port Kaituma so that they can all cram somehow aboard the Jonestown boat and make their way to Cuba to request asylum. And so people start loading onto the trailer to be dragged to the port, elderly and children first, and when one of the first batches arrives, an old lady fell on the boat and broke her hip, and so Jim orders everybody back to the camp and aborts that plan. Nothing more is said about Cuba. Then Jim's on the radio to his wife, Marceline, who's back in San Francisco, and she is freaking out. She's trying to talk them down and, and, and get them to relax. Says nobody's coming to kidnap the Jonestown children, but she cannot get this guy to calm down. And she realizes soon that part of the reason that that's the case is the rest of his staff is going just as crazy as he is, and they're all reinforcing this with each other. And so in a panic, Marceline somehow manages to locate the Guyanese deputy prime minister in the United States, who happened to be in Indiana at the time. I don't know how she found him. She talks to him, and of course he doesn't know what to make of what she's saying. She says, of course, there's no imminent plan to attack Jonestown. But she takes down his statement word for word, and she reads it to Jim and the staff over the radio. And that official got a hold of the courts, you know, the, the judiciary in Georgetown got that judge to reschedule a new court hearing for November. And then the Jonestown communities called together so that Jim could read the statement to them and tell them that they had won. He said their show of force had demonstrated to the enemy that Jonestown would not go down with a fight and they'd back down. The people had to remain vigilant, but they were allowed to return to their usual schedules after six days, and so ended the first of what became known as Jonestown's White Nights. Jim reveled in the victory, but he warned that the enemy was not going to stop coming. But I would like to tell you you have a chance of victory in communism that you never had. So you tell me any place else where they take a black woman and two men. And I said, you're not taking them. You tell him that I quit talking to him. I said, piss on him. I went on above him. And I said, now I'm going to tell you, you better release those people, drop those papers. Don't you come and look for them because we're not going to be alive out here. If you do, we're going to raise hell. We're not going to eat. And then we're going to do some other things. I didn't tell him what. And by God, it wasn't about what we won that one about seven hours later. They said, well, they got a hold of us real quick. They always come on tough. There's only one thing you can do in life, not though against the movement, for Christ's sakes. Don't be a crazy nigger just for your own right to act nasty and mean, but be a crazy nigger when you're dealing with the class enemy. You've got to be that all the time. And I'm not crazy. That's the difference between some of you. You play, honey. When I started, shit, ain't no play in it, baby. I mean business. I said, let me tell you one thing. You had better let those people loose. You had better not touch one of them. I had better hear no more of this or we're finished. I want to hear you. Now you tell me where in the hell you're going to get that kind of protection. And he was nasty as hell, that police commissioner. By God, seven hours later, he was calling our people in, apologizing, wanting me on to get a message to me. Everything's all right. It'll be, it's all taken care of. Now that's what you get 
in a communist society. That kind of protection with a communist leader that's pure. A structure. You've got a thousand people that will defend you when they come for you. If they'd have broken through the line and I hadn't been able to convince them with the will of my voice, they'd have broken through that line and there'd have been a thousand before they get any one of you. There's a thousand people guaranteeing that you eat tonight. There's a thousand people guaranteeing tonight that you will have the best medicine. Some of us will sell our bodies. I still had some opportunities. Hell, the last time I was in Georgetown, I didn't find some of those old floozies. We'll make a way. We're not going to starve over here, honey. The only way you can do it is by some internal combustion. We can only be hurt from within. Going out and doing something, lying like the Williamses, that kind of stuff, doing a lot of devious work like that. We can ride over a lot of that too, so don't get too cocky. And believe me, the next person does that shit ain't, ain't going to get by. And I don't think we'll kill you. I think we'll kidnap you and bring you over here for a trial. You understand? Sift yourself. We'll bring you over here for a trial. You say we can't do it. You don't know. If Tim Stone knew how many people were watching him right now, he would have a baby through his asshole. He hasn't made a move in the United States that had been somebody on his bottom side. Just waiting. If he knew how much people were watching him. I know Tim Stone. He'd turn whiter than he is. They're just waiting. All I need is just one signal. Go thou send me. That's not the word. Now, obviously, I'm talking in the Proverbs of those that would understand. All they need to hear is to say, it's it. It's a white night. It's it. Get our enemies, and there'll be two, three hundred people on those sons of bitches faster than honey. Yeah, the flies on a honey. You bet your life. They'll be on them. They'll get them. They won't get away. And I don't know why you think you'd get away. Why should you? It's immoral to destroy an organization like this. It's immoral to try to kill a movement where a leader cares so infinitely as he cares and tries to build a structure of caring. It's immoral. It's criminal. And you should get it, goddamn you. If there's any doubt about the state of Jim Jones and the Temple staff's collective mental health by this time, they ought to be put to rest by a letter that they wrote to President Jimmy Carter as well as to the State Department and to every member of U.S. Congress. It's page after page after page of unhinged ranting about the conspiracies against the temple and pleas for intervention by the U.S. president on their behalf. It's a, it's a letter that sane people do not write to the president of the United States. Quote, for the past year, we have been subject to disruption so persistent and extreme it would try the patience of Job. A black mayor speaking in our church was subjected to electronic surveillance by members of the armed forces. Our crates were broken into by U.S. Customs, who refused to explain why. An Indian leader was threatened with blackmail if you refused to join those people lying on Jim Jones. The media was whipped into a frenzy against People's Temple by hostile ex-members, which attack we later proved was coordinated by a man with a 75-page criminal record and also connected with Interpol. The ex-members themselves have a long, verified history of advocating terrorism and every kind of immoral, devious act. These are only the highlights. The instigator of this most recent wave of harassments is Timothy O. Stone, 
He is trying to wrest Reverend Jones' six-year-old son, John, away from him through his own false claim to paternity and will stop at nothing to achieve that end. We are appalled to see a small child used as a pawn in these efforts and the custody case grotesquely manipulated to damage not only the individuals involved, but the project, ours and Guyana's national policies, the integrity of members of Congress, and your own administration's efforts to improve our relations in that area of the hemisphere. We have already been pushed far enough. Now, as Tim Stone threatened to instigate, the IRS is looking into the church's fiscal affairs. This is the last straw. I believe you will understand through the course of this letter why we felt we were left no option but to bring our distress of the immediate concern to the immediate concern of our president, members of Congress, and the State Department, and why it will be of utmost concern to our nation's leaders. Tim Stone is not the father of John Victor. He personally witnessed the child's abandonment by his natural mother, Grace Stone, and the child's subsequent trauma some two years back when she ran off with another man and thousands of dollars Jim Jones had set aside for his son's future education. When she returned months later and demanded to see John, she flung the child back into Jim's arms, saying, Take him! He's yours! in the presence of several witnesses. Jim suffered days of physical symptoms so severe in the wake of the incident, many around him feared he could die of heart failure from the shock of witnessing such gross cruelty against his son. Mr. President, this would seem to make no rational sense, but there are other undisclosed pressures being brought to bear on the situation. Tim Stone wasn't just a passing member of People's Temple. He was its legal counsel and prided himself on being a model member for ten years. As recently as August 1977, he was quoted as saying, I have always made known my esteem for Jim Jones. His sudden, unaccountable 180-degree turn now, with no further contact with Jim Jones, People's Temple, or its members, is absolutely suspect. Yet we do know, during that time, he was threatened by certain individuals with prosecution, which was already underway for some, for some law he allegedly violated. Since his sudden turn, that prosecution has been withheld. End quote. That's such a bit of it. The letter goes on for 12 pages describing every petty grievance the concerned relatives and various temple members have with each other and all the attacks against the temple and claiming that it's all the result of an international conspiracy involving Interpol and agencies of the U.S. government as well as private interests. And it says that the president has to intervene, if not out of humanitarian concern, than in the interest of the government because members of Congress were being unwittingly dragged into helping a vicious and evil criminal conspiracy, which would be a huge embarrassment to them once it's all exposed. There's no reason to believe that this letter ever made it to Carter's desk, but you got to imagine the state of mind of the people who you know, believed it was a good idea to send this, who thought that, that, that if it did make it to Carter, that would change everything and, and, and they'd be saved. As if the Secretary of State's going to rush into Carter's bedroom at 2 a.m., waving it over his head like, Sir, we have a situation, you know, <laughs> and Carter's going to call an emergency session of Congress and give a speech from the Oval Office like, My fellow Americans, I've been made aware of a dangerous conspiracy against People's Temple and their wonderful pastor, Reverend Jim Jones. You know, it appears his former members have allied with dark international forces and treasonous agents within our own government to bring down People's Temple by falsely claiming that Reverend Jones' son is not really his own. You know, but they're, yeah, 
cut off from the outside world in their own heads and reinforcing every crazy idea each one of them has. You know, they're spending their nights fantasizing about all the plots against them. He's telling the people that back in the United States, the fascists had finally made their move. And every black person in the United States is being rounded up and thrown into concentration camps. And neo-Nazis and the KKK are working with the government to achieve this. And Jim told the people that the whole world is watching to see how things go in Jonestown because they were all that remained of the world revolution. And again, with all the other leaders backing him up, famous radicals like Angela Davis and Huey Newton seeming to back him up with a famous radical attorney like Charles Gary, you know, the guy who represented Huey Newton had, had represented many other famous radicals trying to help them. The people believed all this. I've got a very, very severe headache, terribly severe, terribly agonizing, severe headache. If you want the goddamn truth, you might, say, well, the death of the movement would be good, because then I won't be alive. Then I can do my thing. But why do you take that right? I wish I could take that right, but I can't morally take that right. I could die tonight, then I'd be out of my misery. But the death of the movement. All of the United States are in the one into the other. There's a conversation about people's temple going on. They made it, those people made it. Thousand socialists over there in Guyana. The ambassador told us yesterday, the talk of Congress, we're the talk of Congress. Okay, we're the talk of Congress. You can know we're the talk of the left. They're watching us. The Soviet Union fascinated by us. They come by the Cubans every day in the Soviet Union. Totally fascinated. In fact, a little threatened by our goodness and our lack of elitism. But they're going to come and study it, and they said that we could be a model. The Soviet ambassador stood uh, earth spell, uh, just, that's not the word I want, but I'm under too much pressure. Spellbound. He was spellbound by the fact he said, Jim Jones took the church and used the church to bring people to atheism and the communist study. Not even communist practice. He'll be overwhelmed with the communist practice, even though some of you don't know why you're practicing communism. He said, you mean you... He got the church and got them out of atheism. He said, we haven't been able to do that with the Soviet Union's churches in 50 years. And he said, we got control over them. We got the funding over them. We have to give them the money so that the religion won't become a vulture on the people and make private collections. We maintain the church and let them have their religion as much as they need it. But he said, we cannot get them out of their religion. Well, the fact is, to be humble, some of us are not out of it. But, and then you got that paranormal factor that does kind of confuse things. It confuses me when I can raise somebody up like Rose and stop our young comrade Williams from being crippled, paralyzed. I don't mean crippled, paralyzed. Hey, that troubles me. And why three people die in three years, like I mentioned in parliamentary procedure, and each die on March 10th, three members of parliament in one small country. Very weird, but that doesn't make me believe there's any loving God. No, there's a long jump from my power to heal to believe there's something loving up there. Because if there's been something loving up there, they'd have left us alone and never made us take the trip in the first place. 
One of the most remarkable things that happened in Jonestown had to do with race and the division of labor. It's not a surprise when you know the history of communist experiments, but it's always something to see it happen again and again. The Russian Revolution was led and carried out by intellectuals on behalf of the working class, right? But the Soviet Union that resulted from the revolution was just a new caste system with intellectuals and bureaucrats instead of aristocrats lording over the same workers as before. And any workers who pointed that out were labeled enemies of the people and dealt with accordingly. In People's Temple, the inner circle had always been made up pretty much pretty much completely of educated white people and the bulk of the membership was was African American. Back in San Francisco that just meant that, you know, the white people were in the strategy meetings while the rest of the people only showed up on Sundays. But in Jonestown everybody had to work. And most of the people doing hard were doing hard labor in the fields. Well the inner circle of educated white people you know, they were too important for that. Somebody had to write the curriculum for the mandatory socialism classes. Somebody had to write up the daily work schedules and manage that. Somebody had to manage the supply orders, right? And everybody should do what they're best at. And so you couldn't very well have the high school dropout from the ghetto managing the Jonestown communications with the Guyanese government, right? What kind of sense would that make? And so you ended up with what you ended up with in Jonestown was a virtually all-white elite managing the place, doing paperwork, writing schedules, and overseeing a virtually all-black labor force working out in the fields. I don't know what you call it when you have a bunch of white overseers managing a bunch of black field laborers who don't get paid and aren't allowed to leave and are punished, often physically punished, for not working hard enough, but I know what they called that in Mississippi until the Emancipation Proclamation. And some of the people noticed this and they complained about it. And the response to that tells you all you need to know about where the temple was at. Jim warned everybody that the CIA had sent infiltrators into Jonestown and that anybody could be a spy and that they were going to try to sow discontent among the people. And to counter this, he said that he was sending out spies of his own to go among the people to complain about conditions in Jonestown or to speak negatively about him or to talk about leaving. And these spies of his would be keeping track of everybody who heard them saying these things. And if, ever, and if anybody heard and didn't immediately report it, he would know that they were traitors. It was very effective. Everybody suspected everyone else of being an informer. And if you were unhappy with anything, you couldn't share it with even your family or closest friends because they would worry that you were just testing them. And if they didn't report you, you'd report them. The message that the leadership gave to the community was that even the people who weren't spies had to understand that their negativity was contagious. Complaining about Jonestown was an attack on community morale. And in many ways, it was more dangerous than attacking the community with weapons. For the good of the community, it couldn't be allowed to spread, and so the punishments began to get more severe. Young children who misbehaved or complained would sometimes be lowered down a dark well. 
In this well, there was a Jonestown myth for the small children that monsters lived down there, and they'd be lowered down and dunked into the water, and there would be adults hiding down there who would beat them. A box was built, about the size of a coffin, a little bigger, and people would be buried alive in it, with a pipe reaching up to the surface for air, and they would sometimes be left there for days. Then the doctors and the nurses put aside a section of their facility called the extended care unit. And chronic complainers would be forcibly given Thorazine, an antipsychotic and heavily dosed with sedatives, and kept in the extended care unit for long periods of time, sometimes weeks. And after weeks of that, when they were released, they knew the consequences of opening their mouths again. And as Jonestown gets into its later stages, some people were held there the majority of their time, for months. Once, Jim took a shine to a young black girl, 19-year-old girl named Shonda James, and he let her know that it was her lucky day. You know, she got to enjoy the good fortune of joining him in his cottage. But the shine had come off Jim Jones by now, and she told him that she was flattered, very honored by his attention, but she was already involved with somebody else her own age. And so Jim told his security staff that she was a security risk and had her seized and drugged and confined to the extended care unit. And occasionally, his security staff would take this groggy girl, half-carry her to his cottage where he would have sex with her body, and then they would escort her back to the extended care unit. And this went on for some time. His son, Stephen, actually found out about this. Stephen's 18, 19 by now and confronted him, screamed at him. They actually had a fight over it. Stephen jumped on him. It was broken up very quickly. Um, But nobody intervened. Nobody went in there and carried that young girl out of that place. Physical beatings became general in the camp. And Jim Jones didn't need to order them or even be present. If someone broke a rule, other people would just rush them and start beating them. People were punished for small infractions, for failing to memorize newspaper stories he had read to them, or not making sufficient progress in their Russian language classes, which Jim now made mandatory. One follower, a young girl about 17 who made it out on the last day, Juanita Bogue, said that at the time she believed, and some other people believed, that people were being killed for disobeying rules. It wasn't true, but she says, quote, you either worked the day shift or the night shift. They kept rotating everything, so you couldn't keep up with anything. We were turning into zombies. We were starving to death. Everybody was just so sickly, losing so much weight, eaten up with all kinds of rashes and everything. You more or less started doing whatever you were told. He would do this ritual thing every night where he would, like, read a newspaper or something and then make you memorize it and then give everybody tests. And if you couldn't pass the test, then it was back to the work crew, the chain gang. I don't know how anybody could retain anything because of the way he kept it up. Everybody in Jonestown was really nice, sweet people. They were really beautiful people, and they don't know how they ended up in that. I went through a big head trip about it because loving everybody so much, right? To see how we were so badly abused, you didn't even realize you were being abused while it was happening to you. Or, I should say, while we all participated in it, because we all did, 
I took turns going up there and beating people up too. People took turns beating me up. It wasn't anything personal. We all participated in it, every last one of us. That's why none of us are any more guilty than anybody else. And a lot of that is hard to live with, but you just got to accept it, end quote. I was going to play the audio of, of this for you, but I think you kind of get the picture by now. Uh, you know, the two boys were brought up in front of the whole community, screamed on, abused, beaten down, physically beaten for like an hour. It just went on and on. You're talking about eight, 700, 800, 900 people assembled just beating down these two teenagers, screaming on them. Afterward, the two of them were putting leg irons attached to heavy weights, like a ball and chain kind of thing, which they had to drag around or carry around the camp for weeks while they served out a sentence of hard labor. One time, an old black man, you, you, I, don't, I, I don't know the guy's age specifically, but you can just hear it in the audio. I mean, this is an old man. Sounds like he's in his 70s or 80s. He hadn't heard from any of his relatives back in the United States for a long time. And so he asked a woman who was being sent back to the United States on an assignment from Jim to bring his people a message. Just, you know, asking maybe why he hadn't heard from him. Send me a letter. I'm doing fine. Well, they were at a nightly meeting and she ratted him out publicly. And it was the same deal. I mean, this is, like I said, this is an old man. And they are just, just going off on this guy and he's kind of stuttering his way through it trying to explain that he didn't mean anything by it he just wanted them to know that he was doing all right he just missed his family and the community is just abusing this guy into submission and not just jim i mean people are just taking turns on this guy and it goes on for a long time the audio quality you know for this for this clip isn't great and i'm not so good at cleaning it up and anyway like i said I think you just get the picture by now, so I'm not going to play it, but the thing to really know about it is that it was not unique. I mean, this is the kind of thing that was going on every night all the time now. Now, I mentioned that Jim's wife, Marceline, had been in San Francisco managing the temple headquarters there and trying to defend her husband in court and to the press to the extent possible as she was fielding increasingly hysterical calls from the radio in Jonestown, and she held up as well as she could as reporters were peppering her with questions about Jim's affairs with dozens of men and women, and she played the good soldier defending Jim's rights over a son that had resulted from his adultery with another woman. Jim had one of his mistresses back in San Francisco watching Marceline and providing regular reports, and one of them, she said, Marcy is okay except between 8 to 10 in the morning, and then it is tears and all the old tunes that you've heard before about how she has to take a backseat in your life. Only a wife in name for 12 years now, and how she's had to sacrifice all for the cause. She took estrogen today, so hopefully her moods will improve. Around this time, Marceline returns to Jonestown. And she gets there to find Jim living with his two mistresses, Carolyn and Maria, along with Chemo, his son by Carolyn, and John Victor, who's now under the care of Maria, and told that Grace, his birth mother, is dead. Marceline's given a separate cottage. Jim stays with those two women, so she just eats that humiliation. Even Carolyn, by this point, Jim was so broken down that she had become more of a caretaker than a lover. And she also took on 
more and more of the day-to-day responsibilities of running Jonestown as Jim was falling apart from drug abuse and psychosis. Maria had become his primary mistress, but like the others before her, she had to endure watching Jim take others randomly into his bed whenever he felt the urge and had the energy. Secretly, Marceline began moving money into foreign bank accounts in the names of her sons so that they might have something set aside if the walls ever closed in completely. Marceline knew Jim better than anybody else, and she saw when she got there how completely his mind had fallen apart. At some point, evidence of what she was doing was discovered and brought to Jim, but he didn't do anything. Marceline still carried a lot of weight, and that weight, you know, especially with the original Indiana members, and those original members themselves carried a lot of weight in Jonestown, and it was a fight Jim didn't need, but he, he didn't trust her. He didn't trust anybody completely anymore except for Carolyn and Maria and his mother, who I haven't talked about really, but she's been here the whole time. In all the biographies, she's always a very, very background character, but she's a very important person in Jim's life. She has been there the entire time. She's been in Jonestown the entire time. Until December 9th, 1977, when she died of a heart attack and with Marceline alienated, uh, Jim really lost, with the death of his mother, the last firm connection he had back to the days before he was God. His mother was buried near the settlement, and Jim retreated to his cottage and disappeared for days, in and out of a drug-induced stupor. The people may have been happy for the break from the all-night meetings, and having to listen to him all day on the on the camp PA system. But members of his staff were fretting, and they tended to him. People were wondering what's going to happen. And so people started writing him letters. Some of those letters were filled with suggestions about what they should do if their situation became dire. And one of those was from a close member of the inner circle named Phyllis Chaikin, and it went like this, quote, Dad, last night I wrestled with views presented at the meeting. I keep coming back to the idea that revolutionary suicide is the only solution we have. If the young men in the GDF, Guyanese Defense Force, fight because they are told or believe we are a threat to their nation's economic and political survival, their suppliers will give them unlimited directions and supplies because they are fascists. I don't see we will survive continuous skirmishes with the continually dwindling force and arsenal. I see bravado behind many that are for fighting and that if we carried on hard enough, we could protect you and the integrity of the group. I disagree. Either choice, the leader, the group, would not survive. Our enemy's power and resources are astronomical. Our powers are limited. The thing that disturbs me most about fighting a war is lack of control of the consequences. The very people who resist revolutionary suicide because they want to save their asses would make excellent captives for the enemy saying anything they need to under the illusion that they would be protected. Many of us would have to be tortured, but I worry we would break down. We are not familiar with the life of physical suffering as the brave peasants of China, Vietnam, and Russia. Ultimately, I only trust you. The enemy is clever, and that which would be fetched from our mouths would be calculated to harm the worldwide struggle of brave people. We, in a fighting war, would not have control of which of us and how many of us would be taken in as captives. 
Though the strongest might kill themselves before being taken, the weakest, no matter what they might say in public meetings, would not kill themselves and would be the first to talk. Then there is the problem of paralyzed and maimed survivors. If we don't have a solution to being sure we are not leaving half-alive children when the enemy is not breathing on our back, we surely run more of a risk when the enemy is. My proposal is the following. As it appears we will have to take the ultimate step, we prepare the people by reading the words of strong, assertive revolutionaries of the past who took this choice over the PA systems. One aspect of the resistance is its unfamiliarity, particularly with leaders who people look up to. There should also be discussion of this tactic in the school and socialist classes. When the time comes that all of our alternatives have been used up, we will meet as a group in the pavilion surrounded with highly trusted security with guns. Names will be called off randomly. People will be escorted to a place of dying by a strong personality. Joyce Touchette, Jan Woolsey, Sharon Amos, Carolyn Layton, Maria Katsaris, Paula Adams come to my mind, who are loving, supportive, but not sympathetic. They, the victim-slash-escort, are accompanied by two strong security men with guns. I don't trust people to, to arrange their own death any more than I trust someone to put himself on learning crew for two weeks, but both can be arranged by outside pressure and no alternatives left open. At the place of dying, they are shot in the head, and if Larry Shock does not believe they are definitely dead, their throat is slit with a scalpel. I would be willing to help here if it's necessary. The bodies would be thrown in a ditch. It might be advisable to blindfold the people before going to the death place in that the blood and bodies remaining on the ground might increase their agitation. The idea sickens me. When I've been on the line in the past and thought I would be fighting, I felt exhilarated. Though I am nothing great with a cutlass, I knew I could do something to divert the enemy or add some jobs or give medical help to a fellow fighter, actively hit the enemy one way or another. There is nothing exhilarating about this plan. It is horrible, but it is safe. Phyllis. End quote. When Jim finally emerged one evening, he had one thing on his mind, and he called the people to the place of assembly. I don't know how you plan your life, but everybody, even though they know that uh, will and determination can win many a victory, how many plan your death ever? There's no great bumble. How many, how many plan your death in different ways? How many plan your death? You never plan your death? There's a number of you that do not lift your hand and say you plan your death. You don't ever plan your death? You're going to die. Don't you think you should plan about such an important event? Hmm? You've been brainwashed. You've been brainwashed. Capitalists have, capitalists have made you robots. They made you robots. They teach you, don't, death, death is the enemy, death is the enemy, so that you will work your ass off. Three score and ten years, you work just like a goddamn little old slave. You work three score and ten years, and you'll never, 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 never die, because it's death is the enemy. Getting up, you dying every day. Getting up and working all day and coming home and falling in your goddamn bed and Drag your ass out every day and couldn't pay for your house and barely could pay for your food and couldn't afford it. If you had a major operation, you'd have had to die because you couldn't afford it. You were dying all the time. Them fuckers telling you, death is your last enemy. Christian preachers saying, death, death, shun death. 
got to overcome death. We got to have victory over death. The final enemy, death. You're going to die someday, honey. You old bitch, you're going to die. And the, the enemy was birth. Rejoice when you die and cry when you're born. Then Jim said he had an important announcement to make. He said that moves had been made and pieces were being put in place to relocate the entire settlement to the Soviet Union. He said that Guyana was such a small country that over time it was unlikely that they were going to be able to stand up to the overwhelming power of the conspiracy against them in the U.S. and that they would have to use what time they had to prepare an escape. And then suddenly he collapsed on stage, one of his old tricks, sliding out of his chair, apparently unconscious. You know, he's done this so many times in front of these people. I don't know how it continued to have its desired effect, but it did. And the people gasp and they're weeping in the crowd and screaming as the doctor, Larry Shocked, rushes up to his side. And then suddenly he sits up in dramatic fashion and gets to his feet and just picks up speaking again where he was. He says that he suffers from bleeding on the brain, uh, which I don't know what that is, but he says it's an extremely painful condition caused by low blood sugar, which was a direct result from the tremendous burdens he's bearing on behalf of the community. And then he gets back on the subject of Russia. He says that everybody's mandatory lessons in Russian language and history were going to be stepped up because they had to prepare for this trip now. And when the time came to prove that they were committed and ready to this, to the Russians, to the Russian embassy, they had to be able to show that. And he warned that the inevitable attack on Jonestown, which was, which was always coming, it might come before they were prepared. And if that happened, then it was unfortunate, but some people were going to have to stay behind and fight while the others made their escape. Just a few months after moving to the promised land now, the people are now being told to prepare to abandon it. And from that point on, it was an accepted fact that they would be leaving. They were going to Russia. It was just a matter of when, and word might come down at any time that they were evacuating immediately. So they had to be ready, keep a bag packed. After the meeting, Jim held back the Jonestown doctor who attended to him and asked him to ponder a question, which the doctor answered in a note back to him. He said, There is a good chance I can develop germicidal means. I am quite capable of organizing the suicidal aspect. Plus, we'll follow through. Plus, try to convey concern. Plus, warmth throughout the ordeal. From that point on, white knights were called periodically every few weeks. After a nighttime meeting, people would finally retire, exhausted to bed. And when they'd been given just enough time to get to sleep, Jim would come blaring over the loudspeaker. Alert, alert, we're under attack. White knight, white knight. And the people would grab their weapons and rush out to their assigned defensive positions, you know, wavering with exhaustion and screaming in unison at some imaginary enemy out in the jungle. And just imagine the scene. It's just a lot, a lot of this story is so wild that you have to stop again and just remember that all of this happened. It all happened. These are all real people. Just imagine flying over it in an airplane. And there's just an ocean. It's 2 a.m. There's an ocean of jungle in every direction. And then down below, there's just a little patch cleared, lit up by torches and floodlights with a thousand Americans, old people, kids, 
most of them old people and kids. Some of them rushed out to the tree line in their underwear, waving meat cleavers and cutlasses and shovels over their heads and screaming at the top of their lungs at some imaginary enemy out in the jungle. And they're not just play acting. You know, we're talking about a group of people whose sense of reality had been so twisted that they think this is real. Even Jim Jones and his staff, who knew about the staged attacks and knew that black people weren't being rounded up into concentration camps back in America, they thought of those things as little white lies necessary to keep the people focused and prepared for the threats that they really did face. And you just think, okay, how did we get here? You know, just retrace all the steps that led a preacher from a small town in Indiana to this place. And the answers have a lot to do with how an honors grad from Berkeley from a middle class family ended up sending bombs to Diane Feinstein's house with her weed dealer boyfriend who eventually split her skull and drove up the PCH with a bag of her brains. And how a pharmacist's daughter and a bunch of other white activists ended up following a mentally ill black convict into a suicidal shootout with the LAPD. Ask these people why they were doing what they were doing. And they would all give very similar answers. They would cite the same influences. They would tell you about the same books. They would repeat the same slogans. At this white night. People show up, they're ready to fight, they got their weapons, and at first it's no different from others. It's, it's become routine almost. Guyanese soldiers have been spotted nearby, attack is imminent, everybody's called to the pavilion to discuss strategy. Someone suggested fleeing to Russia, but Jim says things aren't in place for that yet. And so they debate what to do through the early morning hours until the sun comes up. Jim's leaving from time to time to get reports from the radio room, and finally he comes back after one trip with the grim news that the military, the Guyanese military is on its way. The very existence of their socialist community was proving to the world that such a thing was possible. And it was actually stirring up revolutionary movements in the United States and, and other parts of the world. And so the powers that be had made the decision that this had to end right now. And, and, the military was coming to exterminate every man, woman, and child in Jonestown. The number of troops on the way was overwhelming. There was no escape. And so rather than wait for an ugly death at the hands of their enemies, the only way to maintain their dignity and make sure that their children weren't carried off as captives was to embrace Huey Newton's call for revolutionary suicide and go out on their own terms. Nobody argued and many spoke up with enthusiasm for the heroic revolutionary gesture. And vats of liquid were brought out and everyone was told to line up. And they filled their cups and they drank and they waited for the end, which they were told would come in about 45 minutes. And as soon as everybody had taken their turn, Jim informed them that this had just been a test and that they had all passed. And he congratulated them and they congratulated each other for their revolutionary spirit. And Jim gave them all the day off work and the exhausted crowd of people stumbled back to their bunks and went to sleep. And now Jim Jones knew that he had a plan that would work. The doctor was instructed right then to put in an order for one pound of sodium cyanide, enough to kill nearly 2,000 adults. At the next night meeting, writing materials were passed out. 
and the people were told to write essays on the topic, what I would do if this were the last white night. One woman wrote, I will do anything to keep one person free from the imperialist. I will use my life fighting for the freedom of all people. And another wrote, I don't mind dying. I want to fight for this land and also die for it. I sure don't want to die alone. I want to take some of the traitors with me, as many as possible. Tie a bomb on me and let me walk or run into them. Or revolutionary suicide. A young girl, Gail Chaikin, wrote, I am willing to do any mission, including killing any traitor or myself. Grace Stone said that I was the favorite person she used to take care of. I would like to personally kill her. I could attach myself to a bomb, burn myself in front of the U.S. Embassy, or tell them that I wanted to destroy the church and ask for a meeting of all those who have left the church, then kill them. And another older woman wrote, Age is against me. I know I could do more if I was younger. I have considered what I could do back in the States or in another country. It would be easy to set up a big banquet of the most important officials, then kill them all. I would find a poison that would be immediate but tasteless. I would use this on the mass of them. In the process, I would kill myself because I would eat it too. Then no one could trace who or what or why. No one would ever know, but the socialists would be left in a position to move in. Should I perhaps establish connections, they might perchance know that I was a socialist and block me. This would satisfy me, just knowing that my children were fighting hard in the cause. If I am imprisoned, I would hold out as long as I could, and then I would dig into my jugular vein or at the side of the neck where you bleed to death in two minutes. I would see that I had plenty of time to accomplish this so that I would not be stopped before I started it. I would prefer taking a batch out with me. I have also considered being a walking bomb. And a mother wrote, I will take orders if necessary and do anything in my power to get all babies aside, then lay my life down to fight until the end, kill myself if it takes place so as not to be left for the fascists. I will leave no one else either. I will kill them off if they are not dead already. There are hundreds and hundreds of these. From little children, from old ladies, everybody wrote them. The nightly meetings became consumed with fantasies of violence and revenge against the traitors. Children were encouraged to describe to the group what they'd like to do to their own relatives back home. My so-called brother and um, Bill Aarons for the crap that both of them have caused over these years since they've left. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Your dad was up on the steps. Dad, I'd personally like to grab my father and string him up by his nuts and have a hot poker sticking it in some coals and sticking it up his ass and burning the hell out of him for doing the things he's doing because he knows that you saved my sister's life and he knows all the good things you did for us both. And he knew that we wanted to come over here and live peacefully and this is why he's causing all this hell. And I'd like to personally do those things to him just to get get him to realize that he's... <laughs> I'm sure when you have him tied up by his balls and a hot burger goes up his ass, he would realize something. Mm -hmm. um, I think that Mr. Tupper should die and um, that um, I should... Um... Mr. Tupper, this always kills me, this family. Mr. Tupper, 
It's always been Mr. Tupper. Everybody calls him Mr. Tupper. I don't want to know it. It's funny. I like it. Mr. Tupper, go ahead. I think that I should um, take a knife and cut Mr. Tupper all up real good. And, uh... <laughs> cut him up real good. And then make him look like, you know, um, cut him up and then put poison in him and invite all, all my relatives over there and have them eat him and then I'll die. <laughs> You've been talking to Reb. That's what you've been doing. My mom is a damn fool. Hope I, I hope I knock the fucking shit out of you. <laughs> you. I'm glad I put my life on the line to save you. Say my mom is a goddamn fool. I beat the fucking shit out of her. I dare, I dare come out because I'll be the one that's, uh, I'm a shotter. Good. <laughs> My mama's a goddamn fool. These kids, not new. It's tough kids coming up here, honey. And by this time, it's becoming clear to everybody in the inner circle that enemies or no enemies, Jonestown's a failing experiment. Several of the most knowledgeable insiders were assigned to run the numbers and provide a report on the settlement's prospects. And they came back saying that there was just, there's no way Jonestown is ever going to be self-sustaining. It's just a matter of holding out until the money runs dry. And then every day, new unexpected costs rolled in. 44000 for a new tractor. 22000 for aluminum to patch roofs. 16 grand to replace ruined livestock feed. The constant expense of Charles Gary's legal retainer, which was high and never seemed to get anywhere. And the concerned relatives knew that, and they planned to keep the legal pressure on to keep the expenses high. There were only about 300 temple members total back in America. There's almost no money coming in from the United States. There were millions of dollars in temple accounts, but they were draining money at a rate of over a hundred grand a month, even things when even when things were at their best. And so it was just a matter of time. Maybe they could last a few years, but the walls were closing in, and Jim did not see a way out. He had visions of the temple declaring bankruptcy and his people sulking back to the United States in shame for having followed an idiot like him there himself a subject of scorn and mockery in the media while he does his time in jail. He imagined his son living with Grace and Tim Stone, learning from them what an evil man his father was and what a joke he was. He told his people that he had terminal lung cancer and not much longer to live. There's no evidence that that's true. He complained of having strokes and heart attacks all the time. He did constantly suffer from migraines. He was terribly depressed and irritable all the time and basically only kept out of bed by inhuman doses of methamphetamines and put to sleep only by other drugs. A common acquaintance put Jim in touch with another lawyer back in the United States, a famous guy on the left named Mark Lane, who was a sort of 1970s left-wing Alex Jones kind of figure. He'd written books with conspiracy theories about the Kennedy and MLK assassinations, 
and he had defended James Earl Ray, Dr. King's convicted assassin, in court, claiming that the assassination was actually an FBI hit. More than anything, he was a publicity hound, always looking for a new way to get his name in the papers, and in that way he was very similar to Jim's other lawyer, Charles Gary. And Gary didn't want to share the limelight with this guy, Mark Lane, but Lane knew better than Gary how to talk to somebody like Jim Jones. He understood the paranoid mindset. Everything Jim Jones said, he agreed with. The CIA's after you? Oh, totally, I agree. You know, they, they've entered into a conspiracy with your former members and relatives of current members? Yeah, right on. The boy John Victor's your son because you had sex with his mother because she demanded or else she would commit treason? Makes total sense. You know, again, he was he was a pretty famous guy on the left back then, uh, especially in, in the radical circles. Jim and his people would have found credible. Jim believed, for, Jim believed uh, had read his books and, and, and believed his theories. The last thing that needed to happen at this point was a guy like this showing up and telling Jim he was right about everything. And he made it even worse. Mark Lane tracked down the private investigator who had previously been hired by the concerned relatives to look into Jim's contacts in Guyana and see about getting John Victor back. And he flies this private investigator out to Guyana to talk to Jim. Charles Gary, uh, for all his faults, is begging Jim, cut this guy loose. Do not listen to this guy. But he, but he flies this private investigator out there to talk to Jim. And he tells Jim and the staff that Tim Stone is financed by the CIA. And that the concerned relatives' efforts against the temple are all part of a CIA operation. He says that Jim had been right about an imminent attack during the six-day siege. The first white night. He said that he... This guy's name was Joseph Mazur, at that time had been leading a team of armed mercenaries to the edge of the settlement, that they really were there the whole time, to kidnap Jonestown children on behalf of the concerned relatives. Now, I don't know much about this guy, and I can't find out. I have tried. Um, the books about Jonestown just say, you know, well, what a crazy guy. He must have been full of it, stringing Jim along to get money out of him and you know, who knows? That may be true. If it is, that is dark. I mean, you could probably say that no single person outside of the temple community and its ex-members did more to create the conditions for the mass suicide of Jonestown than this guy. And if he was just making all this up, it's very dark. Because you can imagine the effect that it had on Jim Jones and his people. You're like, oh my God, it's it's all true. Because even even Jim probably had doubts at times. Psychosis and paranoia are funny like that. You know, people with delusions sometimes have intimations that it's all a delusion. But there's a part of them that says, whoa, 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 back away from that realization. Because if you admit that to yourself, then you got real problems. And you got to deal with the situation you've put yourself in and all the things you've done as a result of your being delusional. And it's much easier in some ways to just ignore that voice and keep the game going. You know, you, you read accounts of people with paranoid delusions and you see this again and again. Even, even people with extreme psychosis, you can sometimes find nurses and orderlies in psychiatric hospitals, people who are experienced and, and have learned how to, how to work with these people uh, and know how to deal with them. Sometimes they, they are able to get through to them just by kind of kind of winking at them a little bit and letting them know that they see through the game. 
Like, okay, okay, very funny. I get it. You're crazy. I see what you're doing, but you know, come on, we got somewhere to be. Let's go, let's go. And, th- and that'll work sometimes. You'll hear hospital workers talk about these occasional moments where the patient and them have this moment like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. And delusions are not always as cut and dry as they're played out in movies. And sometimes moments of clarity or doubt break through, if only for a few moments before you're sucked back in. But then for somebody like Jim Jones, in the situation he's in, to have a famous lawyer bring him a private investigator who for sure had been hired by his enemies, that that's definitely true, who tells him flat out that everything he's been paranoid about is true. It's always been true. He was right all along. And these people are trying to kill you. And then they have tried. And I know because I led the group of mercenaries. You know, if he was just making that up for a few bucks, that is dark. I mean, it's not as dark as the other possibility that he was telling the truth. That's so dark that none of the accounts of Jonestown even go near it. You know, I, I don't know of anyone who's even tracked this guy down and interviewed him. And so I hate to do this to you guys, but I just don't have any more information on this part. The best I've got is that Mark Lane, the lawyer, knew that Jim Jones was a meal ticket, you know, a desperate paranoid with millions of dollars and potentially a story that would make a good book. And Lane had this private eye feeding Jim what he wanted to hear to string him along. I'm not accusing the guy of doing that. It's it's what the biographers imply. I just don't have anything else for you. And so we're moving into the fall of 1978 now. We're getting close to the end. Marceline's parents visited Jonestown briefly in October, and her mother described Jim Jones as very near mental collapse. The final dominoes began to fall when the concerned relatives finally got the attention of a U.S. congressman named Leo Ryan. He seems to have been a decent enough guy for a politician, you know, a media hound for sure. Um, but, you know, he's a politician. His publicity stunts were at least in the service of good causes. You know, one time he had himself booked and checked into a California prison as an anonymous inmate for a while so that he could experience the conditions for himself, make his case for prison reform, that kind of thing. He's kind of a gonzo politician. Again, good intentions to bring attention to an issue. Uh, but one of those intentions was making sure that his name was in the headline for the story about the issue he raised. That's how the concerned relatives sold the Jonestown issue to him, and he bit. He put in some inquiries with the State Department, but got back the usual disclaimers that, you know, they 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 looked into it. They'd inspected Jonestown regularly. Jonestown wasn't breaking any rules. And, you know, the State Department, they really were sensitive about infringing on religious liberty. The federal government got in a lot of trouble in the 70s for messing around with different groups, and they just didn't want to deal with it. And so Ryan told the concerned relatives that he was going to go there himself to check on the status of their family members and to meet Jim Jones and to see for himself what was going on. Mark Lane, the lawyer, informed Jim Jones of this and told him that Ryan is probably part of the conspiracy. So Congressman Ryan sends word to Jonestown that he's going to be coming in mid-November 1978. By this point, Jim's emissaries had been bugging the Cuban and Soviet ambassadors about their request to relocate for months with little movement. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere. They're kind of giving up hope on that. 
his contacts in the Guyanese government are tired of his incessant badgering, and they're to the point of throwing his people out of their offices or just not taking their phone calls anymore. Jim had his lawyers inform the congressman that he was not welcome at Jonestown and would not be admitted if he did make the trip. Both of them told Jim that that was not the way to handle things. They found out that Leo Ryan would be making the trip with some with some other people. He was bringing along several television and newspaper crews to document the whole trip. And his lawyers told Jim that if he refused the congressman entry to Jonestown, then Ryan was going to use the journalist to turn it into a big dramatic scene and then take that back to the U.S. to show how he'd been denied entry while trying to check on the status of U.S. citizens and grow the issue into something even bigger. And so they said, look, just let him in. Let him take a look around and talk to some people. And he'll see what the U.S. Embassy has been seeing all along. Just prepare for the tr- prepare for the inspection. Show him you got nothing to hide. And then if that works, you can be done with this for once and for all. If Ryan comes away satisfied and then, you know, other officials are contacted by the concerned relatives to try to take action against Jonestown, they'll talk to Ryan and Ryan will say, I didn't see anything. And, and they probably won't waste their time. Jim wasn't sure. He didn't want to let anybody in. He was very wary of that, but the people discussed what to do. They argued about whether to let them in, what to do if they were allowed in. Some people suggested lying in ambush and attacking the party once they came, killing them all, burying them in in the jungle, and then committing suicide. Some people pointed out, and many were agreeing with them, that it was becoming clear that nothing was going to stop the congressman from coming in and doing this. He got in a congressional committee to authorize the trip, meaning that this was now official U.S. government business, so the government of Guyana was not going to intervene. Several of Jim's inner circle were now agreeing with the lawyers that you got to let this guy in. Marceline said that, you know, even if a few people wanted to leave, just let them leave. Who cares? Just a few people. Even at this late date, as this is approaching... I don't actually think even Jim knew what he was going to do. He was starting to realize that this was happening, but at night he would rage against his enemies. But I don't ever say hate is your enemy. Love has practically caused me to just get you destroyed. If I had hated a little more, just a little more, we would have had a little less trouble. Because I look at my thoughts analytically. Sure, you got love. Principle, but don't say hate is my enemy. What do they say? What's that words? Hate is mine, and I gotta fight it day and night. What else is there? The line. Love is the only weapon. Shit! Bullshit! Martin Luther King died with love. Kennedy died talking about something he couldn't even understand. Some kind of generalized love, and he never even backed it up. He shut down. Bullshit! Love is the only weapon with which I got to fight. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws, I got purposes, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a hell of a lot to fight. I'll fight, I'll fight, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight. Let them hear it in the night.
Let the night roll with it. They're out there. They're out there. They're listening. Let the night roll with it. All Let the night roar, because they can hear us. They know we meet. We'll kill them if they come. Congressman Ryan arrived in Georgetown, Guyana, on November 15th and made his way to the temple's headquarters there in town. And they tried to give him the runaround, but after a long trip and a frustrating day, he wasn't going to be put off. He was going to Jonestown, and that was that. Jim's worst fears of Ryan's intentions seemed to be proven by the fact that one of the news crews that he brought along with them was from the National Enquirer. And worst of all, Jim found out that several of the concerned relatives, including Tim and Gray Stone, had accompanied Ryan to Guyana and were expecting to be allowed in to Jonestown. And again, you got to remember, like, very recently, he has been told by the private investigator who was hired by the concerned relatives that Tim Stone was CIA, that he had been hired to lead mercenaries into the camp. Jim believed this. Okay, now these people are accompanying the congressman on this trip. So he's thinking this is it. I mean, he's thinking that <laughs> these people are here to destroy him, if not kill him, if not kill everybody. Jim closed himself off in his cottage and radioed to Georgetown that, no, tell them they're not coming. No, they're not allowed. They're not welcome. And so Congressman Ryan takes a harder line. He says that he doesn't see any religious pictures or any other paraphernalia on the walls of the temple headquarters there in Georgetown. And so given their political activity, he thinks he's going to have to go back and really lean on the IRS about removing their tax-exempt status. And it'll probably actually be retroactive. And so who knows how much how much money they're going to owe in back taxes going back many, many, many years. Or they can let him come. And so this gave Jim's lawyers the leverage that they needed to get him to budge a little bit from his position. But he stayed in his cottage, and he was still very, very reluctant to let anybody in. At the last minute, when he heard that Congressman Ryan was boarding a plane to come out, he sent several of his men to Port Kaituma to the airstrip to cut down a bunch of trees and scatter them all over the airstrip to render it inaccessible by air. He hoped that this would at least force Ryan to land at another location further away, which would delay his arrival and shorten the duration of any visit. But when they got to the airstrip, they found it occupied by a Guyanese military plane, which had broken down and was getting repairs. And there were several soldiers around, so they, they couldn't do that. Marceline was in Georgetown at the time and spoke to Jim via radio and they got into an argument. He's being really obtuse about this visit and she is arguing with him, shouting at him, taking him to task in a way that nobody who was listening in on that, on that discussion had ever heard anybody do. She said, you have to take this guy in and she's screaming at him that she's been holding this whole operation together for a long time and he's destroying it and things like that. But Jim won't change his position, but it didn't matter. Everybody else had changed it for him. The lawyers, his wife, and his staff were taking the decision out of his hands. Ryan and his company were going to be allowed in. A few of his staff had anticipated that this visit was inevitable for quite a while, and so they had begun getting things ready and getting the people ready. 
Ryan's plane touched down in Port Kaituma on November 17th with 19 passengers. There was the pilot, Congressman Ryan and his aide Jackie Spare, who today is a serving U.S. Congresswoman. The lawyers, Charles Gary and Mark Lane. There was an official from the U.S. Embassy and one representing the government of Guyana. There were nine members of the media, including NBC News reporter Don Harris. And then there were several concerned relatives, although the Stones, Tim and Grace, had the good sense to remain in Georgetown, having some idea of what they might provoke from the temple if they showed up at the Jonestown Gate. At first, Ryan and his aide alone were hauled into Jonestown, and Marceline was the first person they met. When they got there, they found the camp in immaculate shape. Everything was prepared. The paths were swept. Everything was tidy. Some of the people looked at them warily, but most of the people had been well prepared, and they stuck to the script, and they smiled. Marceline offered a tour of the camp, but Ryan had had a long day, and he demanded to speak with Jim Jones. Jim emerged wearing his dark sunglasses, certainly less than 100%, but he held it together. After talking with the congressman, they came to an agreement that the press and the visitors in Port Kaituma would be allowed in to Jonestown, with the exception of the National Enquirer people. He didn't want them in, and so the tractor was sent back to retrieve them while Congressman Ryan and his aide began interviewing Temple members whose family members had been speaking with him. And he found none with any complaints. Jim himself was a little bit disconcerting, and the standoffish behavior of many of the people seemed sort of suspicious, but, you know, distrusting the government's not a crime, and Congressman Ryan found nothing that indicated he was visiting a concentration camp. He didn't see any armed guards, there were no watchtowers. The people seemed, you know, healthy enough. They were skinny, but they were healthy enough. And while some were nervous by his visit, from his visit, you know, their answers to his questions seemed genuine, plausible. So far, so good. By the time the rest of the visitors arrived, it was getting near evening, and everyone was beginning to gather at the pavilion for dinner. The settlers were looking forward to this meal because they knew it was going to be special, and it was. For once, they got pork and fried chicken. They had greens, potatoes, biscuits. This was the best meal they had in a long time. Jim sat at a table to one side and answered questions from the reporters. There's video of this, and, and he's shaky, but he held, he held up. At one point, he had John Victor brought to him, and he's holding him up and showing the reporters how much they looked alike. The good meal put everybody in a good mood. The Jonestown band's playing R&B hits on stage, and people get up and they start dancing and, and singing along, and even some of Ryan's entourage are kind of feeling it. Then the band played Earth, Wind, and Fires, That's the Way of the World. You know the song. That's the way of the world. Plant your flower and you grow a pearl. You know a child is born with a heart of gold. Way of the world makes his heart grow cold. 
after this song, Congressman Ryan was invited to say a few words to the community and the members who survived the next 24 hours, even ones who hate Jim's guts today, they all swear that what happened afterward was totally spontaneous. So we are at least uh, friends in that, to that extent. I'm very glad to be here. This is a congressional inquiry. I think that all of you know that I'm here to find out more about uh, questions that have been raised about your operation here. But I can tell you right now that from the few conversations I've had with some of the folks here already this evening, that uh, whatever the comments are, there are some people here who believe that this is the best thing that ever happened to them in their whole life. festivities wrapped up for the night, a few people noticed that members of the NBC News crew seemed preoccupied with something. One member of the temple had passed them a note asking for their help getting out of Jonestown. But no one else knew that yet. The visitors to Jonestown were told that there wasn't enough room for anybody except for Congressman Ryan and one other person to stay in Jonestown for the night, and so everybody else was taken back to Port Kaituma. Then Ryan was informed of the note, and over the course of the night starts formulating a plan about what to do. The reporters are back in Port Kaituma drinking beer and kind of going over everything that they'd seen during the day. And by now, Jim Jones would have known about the note as well. Only a few people picked up on this as it happened, but a young boy who had seen it being passed called it out. But... Rather than reacting to the news, Jim just disappeared into his cottage for the night, and that was the last anybody saw of him. The next day, everybody returned to Jonestown, and right away there was a heaviness in the air. When Jim finally emerged from his cottage, much later than everybody else, it was immediately apparent that something was wrong with him. He ambled around unsteadily, clenching and unclenching his jaw and working his tongue around his mouth nonstop. He was so high he could hardly speak, but he consented to do an interview with NBC News, and the reporter confronted him with the note from the would-be defector. He slurred his way through it, said that the defectors were lying, said they could leave any time they wanted, pointed out that one of the people who said he wanted to leave, the guy who'd passed the note actually, was leaving his son behind in Jonestown, which was true. The man, Vernon Gosney, was a longtime drug addict who had essentially abandoned his son to the care of the temple, and he was planning to leave without him, and he actually did leave without him. And his son died there that day as his father scurried off. Soon others began to approach the congressman, saying that they wanted to leave. First one then a handful, then about two dozen in total. And Jim is going around pleading with his people to stay and promising to make changes in Jonestown, whatever it takes, but the people are unmoved. Several of these people were from two big families that had been with Jim since Indiana. One of the families was the Bogues, whose daughter Juanita was three months pregnant and whose boy, Tommy, was one of the two who'd been placed in leg irons or trying to leave camp. 
Some were leaving while their family members insisted on staying, and some of those wanted to take their children against the will of those remaining. People are screaming at each other, you can't take my kids, you bring my kids back here, as other people are carrying their kids toward the trailer to leave. The whole community is in one place now, and things are getting extremely tense. The defectors were speaking to Congressman Ryan and his aide, and telling them that we got to get out of here now. We're in danger. And Ryan, he's totally oblivious. He doesn't understand at all the situation that he's in. He tells them to relax. You're all protected by the shield of the U.S. Congress. You know, there's there's media here. There's NBC News cameras here. You're fine. Jim tells the reporters, hey, you know, these people could have left anytime they wanted. You know, I don't know why there's such a big uh, hullabaloo. They, they can leave whenever they wanted. They can certainly leave now. And if they ever want to come back, of course, they'll be welcome. You know, farewell. There were enough people now who wanted to leave that they were going to have to be brought to the airstrip in two trips. As arrangements were being made, the sky suddenly, very suddenly, just went black. And thunder tore across it. And wind starts ripping through the camp. And everybody rushed to the covered pavilion as torrents of rain began pouring down heavier than anyone who was there could ever remember having seen in Jonestown in the whole year that they'd been there. Everybody's on edge, wondering what's going to happen, as nearly a thousand people now are huddled together under the cover, eyeing each other warily, looking at Jim, looking at the defectors, looking at the congressman. Jim's lawyers are telling him, look, having two dozen people out of a thousand wanting to leave, that is not a problem. On the flight the day before to Port Kaituma, Mark Lane had told a Washington Post reporter that he expected maybe 90% of the people to stay. So that would have mean that would have meant maybe 90 or 100 people leaving. It turned out that 97% of the people wanted to stay. And so they told him, "Look, the story is not the defectors. The story is the people who are staying. We can sell that story. That's no problem. There's nothing to worry about." As quickly as it came, the rain ebbed and people began to make their way through the muck to be transported to the airstrip. As they were getting there, another man ran toward the trailer holding a small child under each arm, saying that he wanted to leave as well, but he was tailed by their mother who was tugging at the kids and screaming that they were her children too and he couldn't take them. Other people joined the commotion and people began to argue, and Jim is standing apart with several of his most trusted aides and they're all whispering to each other. And the trailer was full and so Congressman Ryan tells them to get moving to the airstrip, drop them off and come back, and I'm going to stay behind and try to work out a compromise between these quarreling parents, and then I'll come back with the second load. And so the first batch of defectors takes off down the jungle path. At the very last moment, Larry Layton, one of Jim's most loyal lapdogs, Carolyn's original husband who had given her up when Jim set his eyes on her. This is the guy who used to stand on the side of the stage with a cup while Jim would be ranting all night so that Jim wouldn't have to step away when he urinated. Larry Layton would hold the cup and Jim would piss into that. He runs off toward the trailer saying he wants to leave as well. And right then the defectors who were on the trailer are like, no, 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 no. I don't buy this. This guy can't be trusted. There's no way that that guy would want to leave. But he was allowed on board and the trailer disappeared into the jungle as the remaining members who were staying behind shouted curses at these traitors. Before they were out of hearing range of Jonestown, they heard more shouting erupt. 
as Ryan was trying to intercede between these two fighting parents, a temple member and former Vietnam vet named Don Sly grabbed the congressman from behind and said, you're going to die, motherfucker, and put a knife to his throat. And he would have killed him. But the temple lawyers happened to be standing right there, and they jumped him and wrestled the knife away. Blood covered the congressman's shirt, but he wasn't cut. It was from his attacker who'd been cut in the struggle. Ryan's shaken, but he's not harmed, and Jim calmly walks over as the congressman is getting his bearings and Don Sly's being dragged away, and he says in a very calm voice that everybody thought was strange, does this change everything? And Ryan replies, well, it, it doesn't change everything, but it changes some things. The lawyers are trying to salvage this situation they ask if anything can be done you know what do we have to do and ryan's trying to hold it together and he says you know look it's a very stressful situation for everyone as long as the guy's handed over to the police i can live with that but at this point alarm bells are starting to go off for congressman ryan and he takes off down the path toward the tractor which had become stuck in the mud a few minutes out of jonestown and soon catches up to them the tractor and the trailer are unstuck and they continue their way toward the airstrip and back in Jonestown, Tim Carter remembers Harriet Tropp looking at him and saying as matter-of-factly as if she were discussing the weather, well, I guess we're all going to die now. The air was still, and Jim is so high on drugs he can, he can hardly speak, and people remember him taking it all in and slurring, I've never seen Jonestown so peaceful. There was a problem at the airstrip. The number of people leaving had grown to the point that two planes were going to be needed to bring them all back to Georgetown. And they were haggling over who was going to leave with the first plane. Some of the journalists had short deadlines and so forth and who was going to stay behind to wait for the second one. Ryan was giving an interview to some of the reporters. Larry Layton took a seat on the first plane with several reporters and a few of the concerned relatives. And at that moment... Another tractor with a trailer emerged from the jungle path to Jonestown out onto the airstrip and made its way in a wide circle around the plane and people and placed itself between the group of people and the closest path to the jungle. And then it came to a stop and several men emerged from the trailer with guns and began firing at the people assembled near the plane. On the plane, Larry Layton pulled a pistol that he had hidden away and began shooting at the seated passengers. He shot two people before others overtook him and wrestled him to the ground. But outside, rifle and shotgun fire were tearing into the plane and into the bodies of the people as they scrambled for cover. One defector, a woman who had been with the church since Indiana, was shot in the back of the head while she was climbing the gangplank to board the plane. Congressman Ryan went down, as did his a. Jackie Spear and Don Harris, photographer Greg Robinson, NBC cameraman Bob Brown and soundman Steve Sung. Anthony Katsaris, Maria's brother, was shot, as were San Francisco Chronicle reporter Tim Reiterman, the U.S. Embassy official, and a concerned relative named Beverly Oliver. Those who were alive and able to took off into the jungle. Those who were still breathing but couldn't run played dead. One of these was Jackie Spear, and she heard the footsteps of the temple assassins as one walked up and shot her in the head. Incredibly, as I mentioned, she survived. She's a standing member of, of Congress today. Her boss, Leo Ryan, died that day. 
the first and only U.S. congressman ever to be killed in the course of his official duties. A handful of Guyanese soldiers had watched the whole thing from the other end of the airstrip, but they didn't intervene. They didn't know what was going on. They just knew it had to do with Americans, and they decided it was safer to stay out of it rather than to have to explain why they went and shot a bunch of Americans. And then the killers left. The survivors saw that the plane had been ruined and the tires popped, and they expected the killers to return at any time to finish them all off. But that didn't happen. Those people had somewhere else to be. Back in Jonestown, the call went out for everybody to assemble at the pavilion. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you a good life. But in spite of all that I've tried, a handful of our people with their lives have made our life impossible. So my opinion is that we be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial. No man lay, takes my life from me, I lay my life down. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. And we're all ready to go. If you tell us we have to give our lives now, we're ready. I'm pretty sure all of us and brothers are with me. Alive today, I just like to thank Dad because he was the only one that stood up for me when I needed him. And thank you, Dad. Of the children here, a great deal because of Jim Jones. And the way the children are laying there now, I'd rather see them laid like that than to see them have to die like the Jews did, which was pitiful anyhow. Be insane. It's just something to put to the rest. Oh, God. Mother, 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 please. Mother, please, please, please. Don't do this. Don't do this. Stay down your life with your child, but don't do this. I would respect die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. There's nothing to death. It's like Max said. It's just stepping over in another plane. Don't, don't be this way. Stop this hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialists and communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. 